Coming up, bad news for savers as even those with high interest savings accounts are seeing their money disappear thanks to inflation. But first, we'll detail every possible thing you could die from. He's a rational investor. Dividend digester. Save some of his paycheck just like all his ancestors. Him looking for high yields? That's never the case. He's seeking 6% returns. Slow and steady wins the race. When he checks his accounts just to see what they're fielding, it's like driving in Maryland. Ain't nobody yielding. What is he to do? He shouldn't be in a drought. So he visits his advisor just to sort it all out. Inflation's higher than your bond rate. That's what I was fearing. So your savings account is slowly disappearing and your CDs are pointless. That's not very funny. What would you like me to do? Put it all in dog money. Dog money, dog money, dog money, dog money. I'm trading it in for dog money, dog money, dog money, dog money, dog money. I'm putting it all in dog money. My 401k is now a 401k9. The sum of my net worth ain't no longer in a straight line. I'm making small fools. I ain't gonna be a pun. I sold my IRA and bought an NFT of one. All in on Doge, I dish them out like a Tommy gun. You think I was statehood the way I'm passing on Washington? I feel like Matt Gates. You know what I mean? Assuring everybody it's above 18. It's a modern day gold rush. The prices will boom like Reggie White versus the Oilers. I'm headed straight to the moon. My broker's calling. You know that it's on. Buy dog money. Don't stop till it's dawn. One more airbase, two more museums, three more walls, four more Supremes, five more stadiums. We're all out of fiat. Can you take trillions of these and go and make a Xerox? We pay our debts in our currency that might be unfurled if it's no longer the reserve currency of the world. Confidence in the dollar is permanent. Just ask any scholar. People are exchanging their dollars for dog money. Dog money? Dog money. Dog money. We trade in it. That is another parody by Remy. Actually, not a parody, more of an original song about Dogecoin, which has been over 30 cents again. Who knows where that's going to go? And the biggest owner of Dogecoin that I know personally is my son, Benjamin, who has 4,000 Doge. So that's worth more than uh, $1,200 right now. Pretty good for him. He got it uh, as a gift that I spent uh, like 10 bucks on at the time. <laughs> anyway, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff Wittellis. This is being brought to you live and recorded live on May 2nd, 2021. The time right now, 9.48 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. I'd like to say happy birthday to sometimes co-host Cal Watt. In fact, I would have loved to have him here on his birthday, but two reasons why we don't. Number one, it's his birthday. I'm sure he wants to be with his family. And number two, it's after midnight where he is. In fact, it's not even his birthday where he is right now because it is May 3rd. But this is a West Coast bias show where I sit right now on the West Coast it is still May 2nd. It's going to be May 2nd for more than two hours. So happy birthday, Calwatt. And I actually saw a picture he posted on Facebook that one of his kids drew for him. A very, very good picture. Like, he is a very talented kid. Drew a great picture of him. The only criticism I'm going to give to his kid there is uh, his kid wrote various things on the picture. The kid wrote to him, are you 32? <laughs> 
I hope the kid was joking. No one's going to confuse Calawat for 32. But aside from that, the kid did a great job. So that kid definitely has a future in the art world if he wants one. Okay, so Trader Ruski probably sleeping tonight, but he did give a donation for the free roll. And we have a free roll. In fact, it's running right now. You still have time to get in. You have until 10.10, about 20 minutes from now, to get in with a full stack because it started at 9.45 and there are 25 minutes of late registration. It is a $68.18 free roll. And you may ask, well, that's kind of a weird number. How would you have a 68.18 free roll? Well, it came from two sources. $50 from Traderuski in honor of Calwatt's birthday. So I, I guess I can kind of say that's a present to Calwatt, except it's more of a present about Calwatt to you guys. And then an $18.18 tribe donation. And that is a donation from someone in it, doing it in honor of, uh, of Jews, because 18 is considered a uh, good luck number in Judaism, because the uh, Hebrew letters that spell the word chai add up to 18 if you convert the letters to numbers. I won't go into explaining it all, but just uh, know that 18 is considered a good luck number for Judaism. And that person gave a donation of $18.18 for that reason. So that's 68.18, 35 for first, 21 for second, and $12.18 for third. 35, 21, and 12.18. That's not 1218, $12.18 for third. And I can pay you by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by Bitcoin Cash. Notice I said Bitcoin Cash, not Bitcoin, because Bitcoin's fees are too high. I will not send you small amounts of money by Bitcoin anymore because the fees will eat up most of the prize. So I refuse to do it. Even if you want to give it up, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to waste free roll money like that. So Bitcoin Cash, where there's almost no fee, that I will send to you. But no more Bitcoin for now. And I can also send it to you in some other ways. If you have some methods of payment where you can receive money on the internet, maybe some which have been around for some years or for some many years. You can ask me if I have that. I probably do, and I can pay that way. So a lot of ways to get paid here. Don't ask me for ACR money. I always get that question. Can you pay me an ACR money? Answer, no. I don't have an ACR account. I just never made one. I am not against making one. I just haven't had an interest to be on there. So no ACR money. But those other methods, yes. If you want to know the rules for the free rolls who qualify for the free money, Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash FreeRoll. It's all lowercase, PokerFraudAlert.com slash FreeRoll. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD55, 775-372-8355. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. Mount Charleston is a mountain, which is near Las Vegas, and you can get there in about 45 minutes by car. It snows there in the winter, and we have a cabin up there with an old 70s rotary phone. I once posted a picture of it not too long ago on Twitter. So there's an old 70s rotary phone on top of Mount Charleston, forwards to me wherever I go. That phone number is 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808. We have a call to listen line. It's a number you can use to call and listen to the show. It does not require a smartphone or a data plan or a computer or the internet or any of that newfangled technology. No, 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 no. If you're living in the past and just want to make a phone call to listen to the show, you can. 
You really can. That phone number is 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736. That is the call to listen line. We have an alternate number in case that one doesn't work. 641-741-1095. They both work the same way. Unless you have T-Mobile, it's a free call provided you can call the U.S. for free. And listen as long as you like. You can listen to the live show, and when we're not live, you can listen to the streaming reruns that are on there. You just call up, and it'll play a show from the past. We've had uh, a lot of shows till now. In fact, I have to see if we've had 400 episodes yet. It's, it's possible that we blew by the 400th episode. It's possible this is the 400th episode, in case I'll feel stupid if that's what's going on, because I did not prepare for it. But I knew it was going to happen kind of around April, and we may have gotten past it already. So if that happened, oops. <laughs> I guess we will not have that celebration. But we have about 400 episodes in our library, so you can just go find it and go listen. And we have archives. If you want to pick one of those 400 episodes to go listen, that is in various places on the internet and on your smartphone. We have iTunes. We have Google Podcasts. We have Stitcher. We have TuneIn, where you can also use to listen to the live show, by the way. We have the Bullhorn app, which has its own call to listen line to listen to the archives. We have iHeartMedia and Spotify. A lot of different ways to listen to the show, and you can always just download or play the MP3 file of the show in the Poker Fraud Alert Radio Archives forum. You just click the MP3 button from the radio page or just go to the Radio Archives forum. It's right there. The great thing is it does not require an app. You just click on the MP3 file itself and any device will just automatically play it. In fact, that's often how I go back and listen when I want to hear something in an old show. A lot of ways to listen. And remember, we do have streaming reruns 24 hours a day, seven days a week when we're not live. Like a few hours before the show, I'll turn it off. But aside from that, you just go to... uh, the radio tab, or call the call to listen line, or go to the TuneIn app, and you will find just random reruns being streamed from our nine-plus-year history of the show. And I notice we always have various people listening, because I can see the numbers. In fact, it's rare that there's not at least one person listening. So that's pretty cool. So you should be aware of that, in case you just want to kind of have in the background and don't want to have to pick an episode to listen to. There's a chat room. It's only active during the live show, but if you're listening to the live show, go in the chat room, press the chat button near the top of the screen. You need a Poker Fraud Alert forum account that is validated and in good standing to chat in the chat room. I will read it every so often during the show, but keep in mind I have a lot of things I do during the show, but I will read it. If you want to text me, you can text me at that main number, 775-372-8355, That's a number to text me anytime before, after, or during the show. If you text it during the show, I may read your comments on the air unless you ask me at the beginning of the text not to. If you text me another time, I probably won't read it on the air. I recently uh, received some news from one of our regular listeners that they're having some serious health issues. I know more than that, but I don't want to reveal this person's identity or exactly what they're going through because they just found out yesterday, and uh, I don't know if they want that out there. But uh, it is a regular listener to the show who's been around for uh, many years, someone I've met personally many times, and uh, just want to wish them well, hope everything uh, works out as well as it possibly can, and 
you're in my thoughts. So I'll let you know that, and uh, I will be happy. Not as happy as you will be, but I will be happy if uh, you give me the news uh, later this week that it's not as bad as it first appeared. So hopefully that's the news you'll get, and I'll be very happy to receive that. Though I'm sure you'll be a lot happier, but I will be happy to. And I've, I've thought about this uh, several times today. So I just wanted to wish that listener well and hope it gets better. Okay, so free roll, you still have uh, over 10 minutes to get in. And I'll give you the agenda. We'll get going. Maybe Trader Ruski will call in at some point during the show, <coughs> especially towards the end. And maybe uh, Brandon will call in at some point. We seem to be picking him a lot uh, during the show these days. He just kind of appears. We never know. But it's going to start with just me, unless someone quickly calls in before I get done with the agenda, which is as follows. A gunman went into a Wisconsin casino and killed two people. So I will tell you what happened there. And we will discuss how much of a danger you are in when you're in a casino of something like this happening. Is this a fluke to where you don't really have to worry about it? Or is this something that uh, might be an upcoming epidemic? So we'll discuss that. Vlogger Matt Vaughn won $136,000 in the Ignition Sunday Million, which is the same as the Bovada Sunday Million. And you may say, okay, well, big deal. Someone wins that every week. Why am I making that a topic? Well, it's because he claims he didn't get paid. So we will discuss Ignition, which is Trader Ruski's favorite site. Okay, not really, but it's a site Trader Ruski used to play on and quit because they pissed him off. Rightfully so, that he's pissed off. But anyway, I'm sure he'll like this topic because it's another person who's pissed at Ignition. And we will discuss whether Matt Vaughn was screwed here out of 136K. And I will play you his video where he discusses it. And we'll stop it every so often and talk about it. Las Vegas casinos can reopen to 80% capacity. This decision was handed down on May 1st. Also, nightclubs can reopen. Also, other things can reopen, like brothels. But is this the right thing to do? We'll discuss that when we get to the segment. Vital Vegas, who... I used to not get along with all that great, but we've made up. We get along okay now. So we're going to discuss something that he has brought to the table this week, a news story. He claims that the Palms has been sold to the San Manuel Indian tribe. So is this true, or is this one of those things like where he reported that the Sahara is about to be sold and really was not going to be, though it's understandable why he thought that, because uh, they were very close to doing that, apparently. But... Is this a reliable report? And I will tell you about San Manuel, about their existing casino in California, and what I think of this sale, if it's going to happen. I'll tell you if I believe it's going to happen. And uh, by the way, we may even have Vital Vegas on this show at some point in the future. Not tonight, but possibly in the future. Players Casino, they may not have a future because... They have filed for bankruptcy and moved out. They were a card room in Ventura, California. Ventura, California is in Ventura County. It's the county seat of Ventura County. And it is located 
northwest of Los Angeles. It's in Southern California. It's in the L.A. area. But it's a locals casino for people in the Ventura County area. And that is gone now. It's a COVID victim. And we will discuss whether it has any possibility of coming back. I have an update on scammer and fake sports betting genius Rob Gordetsky. He got a prison sentence. So I'll tell you about that and remind you of his story. It's pretty amazing. Speaking of amazing, a player who was on a stream called out the flop, the turn, and the river before they were dealt. So he called out a flop that he thought would come out. It came out. He called out the turn. That came out. He called out the river. That came out. It was right on stream. So we'll discuss that, and I will tell you what I think of it and whether there's anything shady going on there. A new gaming compact in Florida might bring legalized sports betting and online poker to the state. This could be very big for online poker. Remember I told you online poker needs big states. Well, Florida is a big state. So if that happens, very good for online poker. We'll discuss that. Speaking of online poker sites in the legalized market, the Pennsylvania market, which right now only has poker stars, will probably be getting other sites very soon. So I'll tell you which sites and what you can expect there. We don't talk very much poker strategy on this show, but I'll make an exception this week. I started a segment, or not a segment, I started a thread, which will also be a segment on this show, called Limit Hold'em with Dandruff. I am a Limit Hold'em player. I realize Limit Hold'em is not a popular game anymore, but it still exists. You can still find it in card rooms in a lot of places. And I know we have some Limit Hold'em players who listen to the show. I am an advanced Limit Hold'em player. I play against some of the top Limit Hold'em players in the world. And I've been playing it very regularly for 20 years. So I will give you some insight, even if you don't really want to play Limit Hold'em, just so you understand the game a bit better. Because even if you understand No Limit Hold'em very well, even if you're a very good No Limit Hold'em player, that doesn't make you a good Limit Hold'em player. And vice, or vice versa, by the way. They're two very different games, even though they are both Hold'em. And some concepts in Limit Hold'em can be difficult to understand if you're a No Limit Hold'em player. So I'm going to explain it to you and I'm going to tell you a very weird hand that came down where I took a line that you wouldn't expect. I three-bet a set on the turn out of position against two opponents on a board with three flush cards. Does that sound wise? Probably doesn't, right? Well, I'll explain why I did it. And neither player was a maniac, by the way. In case you think it's because they were both maniacs, no. Neither was. So why would I have done that? I will explain when we get to our first segment ever of Limit Hold'em with Dan Druff. Finally, coronavirus news, as we always do. India and Brazil are struggling with COVID, while first world countries are not. Well, I shouldn't say they're not, but they're improving. It's getting better in the first world, including the U.S. It's getting worse in India and worse in Brazil. Why is that? Well, there's several reasons, and I will get to them during that COVID segment. Of course, I am fully vaccinated now. I received my second shot two weeks ago today. I went back out into the world for the first time yesterday. Yes, I know they say two weeks, but 
13 days is close enough, and it was the weekend, so I said, let's do it. So I was pretty much out all day yesterday, which is the reason we did not have a show yesterday, and it was delayed to today. You may ask, why didn't we do it Friday? Well, Friday was the day before, and I needed sleep because I was going to have to get up earlier than usual and be out all day, because I wanted to do a lot of things on the first day I can go out and do everything. So I could not stay up all night during the show on Friday. So I said, well, can't do it Friday, can't do it Saturday. That leaves Sunday. So here we are, Sunday, May 2nd. And I hope, for those of you that like the Sunday day of the show, that you're happy with it. But it's not going to stay here. We're going to move it back to uh, Friday or Saturday soon enough, probably next week. So, okay, let's get going. Let's talk about the situation with the gunman in Wisconsin who killed two people. And it gives me no pleasure to report something like this. Violence in casinos is very serious business, of course, and it's tragic whenever it occurs. And I'll be honest, I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often. Because if you've been to casinos, as I'm sure you probably have, in fact, probably most of you have been to a lot of casinos in your lifetime, I bet you'll agree with me that casinos don't tend to attract the most stable people. I mean, sure, there are stable people there. I like to think of myself as a stable person for the most part, but there's plenty of people that you meet at the casino that you wouldn't like to spend any time with outside the casino. In fact, you don't even want to spend any time with them inside the casino. There's a lot of crazies and weirdos and degenerates and not the cream of the crop in there often. And that applies to all casinos, not any particular casino. Some worse than others, but I'm sure you understand what I mean. So it surprises me that given that casinos can be depressing places for people where they lose their entire net worth and feel very low after it happens, I'm surprised we don't have more of someone returning with a gun and just shooting. It did happen, and it occasionally happens, but so far it's happened a lot less than I would expect. In Wisconsin, there is a casino, it's in northeastern Wisconsin, and it's called the uh, Oneida Casino. It's a tribal casino. And a gunman showed up and opened fire, killed two people, and wounded another. Witnesses described it as a hailstorm of bullets. It happened on uh, Saturday night. Uh, that was uh, yesterday. And they have not yet released the identity of the gunman or his victims. The person who was wounded is currently at a Milwaukee hospital. At about 7.30 p.m. in the restaurant, a guy came in and started shooting. A witness named Jawad Yatim said he saw at least two people get shot. He said, I know for sure two because it happened right next to us, literally right next to us. But he was shooting pretty aggressively in the building, so I wouldn't doubt him hitting other people. We got the hell out of there. Thank God we're okay. But obviously, we wish the best for people who've been shot. The Sheriff's Department Lieutenant, whose uh, name was uh, Kevin Pollock, Kevin Pollock said he wasn't sure if the shooter was a former restaurant employee, but he said there is some relationship that has to do with employment. So this wasn't someone who came back most likely because he was a loser in the casino. I mean, maybe he was too, but this appears to be probably work-related. 
He said whether or not they all worked there, we're still working on this. So it's possible this was targeted. It's possible he went there and uh, shot people he used to work with, which is still tragic, still people being murdered senselessly. But for the general public, there's a little less danger from that sort of thing if a specific person's targeted rather than a spree killer who just goes in and starts firing. Uh, another witness, someone named Max Westfall, said he was standing outside after being evacuated from the building for what he thought was being a minor issue. And then he said, all of a sudden we heard a massive flurry of gunshots, 20 to 30 for sure. We took off running towards the highway. There had to be like 50 cop cars that came by on the highway. It was honestly insane. The tribal chairman of the Oneida Casino said that he feels uh, even though security is tight in the casino, they may have to have tougher protocols depending upon what an investigation finds of the shooting. They may have to have uh, either more security or watch people more closely. I, I really don't know how you can prevent this sort of thing if just someone just walks in with a hidden gun and starts firing. Governor, Governor Tony Evers issued a statement late Saturday night, said he was devastated to hear about the shooting. Our hearts, thoughts, and support go out to the Oneida Nation, the Ashwabinan and Green Bay communities and those affected by this tragedy. So we will uh, find out more as time passes. Apparently the uh, gunman is dead. The police shot him dead. At first it was reported that he was in custody, but that turned out not to be true. The gunman was shot dead. Last I saw when I was researching this story for the show he had not been identified yet, and they had not identified a reason other than he had some kind of relationship with the restaurant that was an employment-type or less relationship. So it really sounds like a former employee who probably got fired from the restaurant and came back and decided to shoot people, probably those he used to work with that he was mad at. There are 11 tribes in Wisconsin, and the Oneida is one of them. When I say 11 tribes, I mean 11 tribes that operate casinos. So the Oneida Casino is one of those 11. Though there's more than 11 casinos, it's just there's 11 different tribes. Some some of these tribes have more than one casino. Wisconsin is one of many states where the only permitted casinos are Indian casinos. And these are allowed to run through compacts with the state where there's certain rules agreed to and a certain amount of their revenue has to be uh, given to the state or some sort of very high licensing fee goes to the state. So it's supposed to be a win-win where these Indian tribes, which are known to have a lot of poverty, can get out of the poverty through these casinos and the state also makes money too. The problem in general with these compacts with the tribes is that uh, number one, the wealth does not spread around. You get some Native Americans who get very, very rich from this, but it's a very small percentage. And the rest of them, the rest of the tribe doesn't get much help. It, it does not benefit the tribe as a whole, typically. Second problem is that these compacts rarely give the state any power to strongly regulate the casinos. It basically just says, okay, you guys agree to have only these type of games there, only this type of gambling there, and pay us this much money or this percentage of your revenue. And that's pretty much it. So any consumer issues, any issues between the gambler and the casino where a dispute comes up, either that a gambler alleges that they were mistreated in some way or that uh, they were cheated, anything like that, 
the state doesn't get involved. And you can't even sue them. I mean, you can, but it'll be in their own tribal court. You're basically suing the tribe and your case is being decided by the tribe. So good luck ever winning that. So you basically have zero rights when you walk into an Indian casino. And I don't know why these compacts are negotiated in such a way. I don't know why the state doesn't demand that any kind of dispute is adjudicated by the state and that there's some sort of consequence for the casinos if they mistreat the people who go there. But there is no such thing, as far as I know, in any state with Indian tribes. And I've run into this myself in California. I told you a story on this show where I got detained because uh, they were accusing me of using somebody else's player card. And when they approached me, my own card was right in the machine. And I said, look, it's me. It's my card. And they said, nope, you're using someone else's card. I said, well, no, I'm not. Look. And they said, well, no, no, we're not saying right now. We're saying you did in the past. And then they wanted me to give a fingerprint. And they wanted me to give ID. And they wanted me to pose for a picture. And in Nevada, I would give them a big fat middle finger if they demanded such a thing. Because I have rights in Nevada. And in Nevada, I could say, no, I'm not doing any of these things. If you want, I will leave. You have a right to kick me out. But unless you can prove I have cheated in any way, you can't detain me and I'm going to leave. With these Indian tribes, they can do whatever the hell they want. So I had to basically do what they wanted. Otherwise, they could have detained me. They could have just held me there for a very long time. They, they could have made life very unpleasant for me. So I actually did what they said. And it was a very helpless feeling. So these Indian tribes really suck. And it, there's people with much worse stories than that. This was a minor story compared to what's happened to some other people. Some people have been outright cheated at Indian casinos. Nothing you can do. Now, that doesn't have to do with this story, but that's just an aside. But let's talk about the violence. Let's talk about uh, the reason we're having this segment, and that is violence at casinos. Now, it does appear that this was a workplace violence sort of situation, and it just happened to take place at a casino. This could have just as easily it happened at a regular restaurant that is not associated with the casino, and then we would not be talking about it. There's shootings at workplaces all the time in the United States, and I don't talk about them on this show. So this one happened to be in a casino, but still, it made me think about it, probably made you think about when you heard this story, if you heard it before we featured it on the show. It probably makes a lot of people think about, okay, casino violence, how much of a threat is it? How often is it going to happen? How often does it happen? Well, believe it or not, the biggest threat of casino violence is not spree killing. The biggest threat of casino violence is actually targeted crime, where you are followed to your car, where you're followed to your hotel room, where you're tricked into going into your hotel room with a criminal who either commits an act of violence against you or steals from you or both. And we've covered some of these stories on this show, including some recently. That's the most likely sort of crime to happen at a casino which involves violence. Not so much where just someone randomly goes in there and starts shooting. But is it possible that we are going to have a problem in the next few years, or more than that even, where people start committing spree killings in casinos? If you think about it, casinos would be a soft target. There's a lot of people there, and 
if a gunman were to walk in and start shooting, provided he doesn't care about his own life, as they usually don't. Usually when these guys start doing this, they've basically accepted the fact that in an attempt to stop this, security or police are going to shoot them dead. I'm talking about anywhere this happens. Anytime there's a spree killing, the shooter has already decided he's probably going to die that day. In fact, sometimes the shooter kills himself at the end before this can even happen. Usually the way it goes down is the shooter either gets killed by police in a gun battle or the shooter shoots himself when he's starting to lose a gun battle with police and knows it's just a matter of time and does not want to get arrested. Where, yeah, if he could escape, then great, but some of them just go in there trying to kill as many as possible and then when it seems like the police are closing in and possibly going to arrest him and disable him, then they would then he just shoots himself in the head and that's done. But usually the shooter ends up dead. Sometimes they don't, but usually they do. But they always go in thinking there's a very good chance they're going to die. So assuming the shooter is willing to give his life when they do this, which they almost always do, a casino, if you think about it, would be a target where a lot of people could die just because there's a lot of people there. And because you wouldn't be looked at suspiciously if you're carrying a bag because casinos usually have hotels attached to them. So you could walk in with a suitcase. You could walk in with uh, any kind of bag and nobody's going to question it because it's something where uh, it's expected for you to have. Interestingly, at Commerce, I'm not sure why they started doing this, but Commerce started checking bags. Like when I walk into Commerce with a backpack, and this of course goes back a year. I haven't been there in over a year because of COVID. But when I would walk into Commerce, I'd have a backpack on, which just has things like water and things like that in there, just water, snacks, whatever that I take to the game because I plan to be there a while. And they make me open my backpack and show them there's no weapons, which I think is a good idea, by the way. And that's exactly what they're pri- trying to prevent. It's not so much a prevention of, of a robbery. They're, they're trying to prevent any kind of uh, violence within the casinos that could give them very bad press. But most casinos don't do that. And uh, in fact, most casinos don't even have anything set up to do that at all. So you could walk through a casino floor carrying a big bag or a suitcase and no one would say anything. So someone who were to bring weapons in and then start shooting could kill a lot of people. Now, the downside of choosing a casino for this would be that it could end very quickly because what do casinos have? They have armed security. So a lot of times the shooters choose something to where it's going to take a while for the police to get there. And when I say a while, I don't mean hours, but I mean where there won't be someone within seconds running over there with a gun to try to stop them, where they have at least several minutes to start shooting people who are unarmed before the cops get there and take them out. So in a casino, there is armed security. There's a lot of armed security. And if someone starts firing in a casino, all the security guards are going to run over there. And uh, it's very possible the shooter would be dead within seconds. Not like three seconds, but they'd be dead in less than a minute. And that would lower the number of people they can kill because they just wouldn't have time to do it. I think that's the reason that we don't see many spree killings in casinos. But if someone were to have 
enough weaponry on them, and they could take everyone by surprise, they could still kill a fair number of people before being shot dead by security. This would especially be true if they were to shoot security first, then go after the people, and then uh, try to do as much as they can before other security guards show up there. There's no way they can kill all the security guards there, but they... Uh, the ones that are nearby, they could start there and then start killing everybody. But uh, yeah, other security would rush over there. But there there could be a good amount of death if a spree killer wanted to do it. I still think it's probably not that much of a threat because spree killers have so many other choices of places where they could start firing and expect to have longer to do it. Also with big crowds. So... I think that as much as casinos seem like sitting ducks for this sort of thing, they're really not because of the security factor. Now, if a spree killer just wants to kill some people very quickly and know he's going to get shot dead by security, then yes. Or if the spree killer has an issue with casinos, then this could happen. If they specifically are targeting the casino for this. But from what I've seen, if you think about every spree killer there is, a very high percentage of them choose a target where there's not going to be immediate gunfire back. That's why you don't see a spree killer walking into a police station typically and start firing. Yeah, he could do it and kill some people, but uh, of course the officers would pull out their guns very quickly and shoot the guy dead. So they tend to like where they can do this for several minutes before being stopped. And I think that is the reason casinos tend to be safe. And in this case, this person was not looking to murder randoms from what I can see. This person may not have cared that much if they killed randoms. I heard about a hailstorm of bullets. Maybe the person just started firing, trying to get who they were trying to hit. And if they happened to hit others, oh well. But it looked like this was mostly targeted. It looked like they showed up back to where they once worked and went after other employees there, which, again, I'm not trying to minimize or say is no big deal. I'm saying that's different than someone just showing up looking to kill randoms. Is there a way to stop anything like this? Well, yes, but it creates a massive inconvenience for people going into the casino. Well, not massive, but a... An inconvenience, let's just say. So they could put something like a metal detector with a security card standing there and everybody who walks through the door goes through the metal detector and if it goes off, then security takes you aside and checks on you. The problem is, you know how metal detectors are. It, they'll be set off by belts and uh, or keys in your pocket or things like that. So I don't know if they want to, number one, staff the casinos with the amount of security personnel to do this 24-7 and keep pulling people aside and checking on them. And number two, this could back up the whole entrance of the casino where people want to go in and there's a big line of people looking to get in through the metal detectors. So this could dissuade people from wanting to go into a casino and they don't want to do that. They want people to walk in easily. So it's a business decision. Obviously, casinos don't want people shot there, but they don't want to ruin the business or drive away customers while making an effort to prevent it. So even something like commerce, I don't see because I still just don't think this is something most casinos want to do. I'm not sure what made commerce choose to do it. 
I, I'm also not sure, now that I think of it, see, Commerce has like a few different entrances. And the entrance I come in is not usually the one that people enter where they would be uh, going to the hotel. But there is a hotel attached to Commerce. And what about people at the hotel who are bringing in luggage? Like, do they get the luggage searched? I don't know, because since they started this, I haven't stayed at the Commerce. I've gone to the Commerce, but I haven't stayed at the Commerce. But I wonder if you walk in the entrance that's closest to the hotel, if they have that same inspection. Or I wonder if that's a little hole in the security there. At least they're doing something. I mean, they're the only ones that do any kind of search from what I've seen. The rest of these casinos, you can just walk right in with a bag and it's assumed, okay, you're just a person staying there. I've never been stopped anywhere except for commerce. I'm sure there's others that do it, but it's not common. But I think you probably don't have to worry about this happening at a poker room, at a casino, just because the security that's there, which is really only there because of the money involved, they're not there to protect you. They're there to protect the money. I really think uh, that is what dissuades spree killers. Uh, spree killers and terrorists actually have something in common. The biggest fear they have is not getting killed. They've decided they're going to get killed. In some cases, they want to get killed. So their biggest fear is not death. Their biggest fear is failure. Failure to be able to take as many lives as they were hoping to take. If a terrorist or a spree killer gets shot dead before they can kill anyone, that is failure. Well, it's failure to them. To the rest of us, it's a success story for security or the police, but for the terrorist or spree killer, it is failure. So when they plan these things, they don't plan it from the standpoint of how can I possibly keep alive after this whole thing's over, or how can I possibly escape They usually plan it according to how can I kill the most people and not get stopped? How can I assure that there's going to be a lot of people dead when this is all over? How can I assure myself that I'm not going to be killed before doing very much here at all? Because that really is their biggest fear, is that they're going to get stopped before they commit the act they were trying to commit. Because they got one shot at it. They're either going to go to prison for life or get shot dead, most likely, or have to shoot themselves dead before they get arrested. So it's not that they can do a do-over. This is, this is their one chance to commit this horrible act of violence that they're compelled to commit. So they don't want to mess it up. So that's why they don't go after targets where security is sitting right there with a gun on their hip. Because if security gets to them quickly then they have failed. And that's their biggest fear is failure. So for that reason, even though this seems scary, it's probably something you don't have to worry about unless someone is targeting the casino itself because they're angry about their results at the casino. Someone who actually wants to make other gamblers or the casino itself suffer because the casino made them suffer. That's the only way that I could see this really happening. But when we see ones like this, I would tend to think it would be more likely to be aimed at specific employees. And we've seen other acts of violence over time, sometimes in the casino, sometimes outside the casino. There was a guy who used to work for a casino in Vegas that went to an employee picnic and shot a bunch of people there. 
And that was a case of workplace violence. We've seen targeted violence against specific casino employees before. Against customers, usually not. Okay, so uh, moving on. Before I uh, move on, though, let's actually read a text. This is from the 916. Overall, typical casino security is underarmed, low-trained, and not prepared for a mass shooting. Also, these Indian casinos are in remote areas where there's not a lot of law enforcement. Okay, well, that's that's true. Both both things this person texted me are true, but I do have a response to this. First of all, being in a remote area isn't always the best for a spree killer because uh, they can't escape very well if they want to escape. But, uh, I mean, you do have the point that if they feel they can handle all the security there, that bringing outside law enforcement uh, will be tough. Um, also, as far as the typical security at casinos being underarmed, low-trained, and not prepared for a mass shooting. That's true, but just the sheer number of them against one person, uh, they will typically take that person out. I'm not saying that if it was just one or two guards, they could put a stop to it, but if as long as there's enough security on premises, just the sheer number of them versus one, they're probably going to win. So nothing you wrote to me is wrong there. I'm just saying I don't think that would encourage spree killers for that reason. Okay, so moving on. Vlogger Matt Vaughn put out a complaint on YouTube that Ignition took $136,000 from him that he won in the Sunday Million. The Sunday Million is a tournament that was really invented by poker stars many years ago, where on Sunday they have their biggest large field tournament. Biggest meaning by buy-in, where there's also a large field. And they call it the Sunday Million because it's a million dollars guaranteed in the prize pool. Not for the top prize, but for the prize pool, the entire prize pool to be a million. And usually the entry is around $200, $215, something along those lines. It's been that way for a long time on many sites. Poker Stars was really the one to have invented this. I was never an online tournament player. I never enjoyed online tournaments. I've played very few in my life. So to me, Sunday was not a big day. I'd always hear, oh, you know, today's Sunday, you know, today's all the tournaments. Like some online poker tournament players since the 2000s really look forward to Sunday. Sunday is such an important day to them. They revolve their life around not ever interfering in the Sunday million that they play on various sites. But that's not me. I'm a cash player online. So to me, Sunday's just another day. Anyway, Matt Vaughn won the Ignition Sunday Million for 136k, but he claims that he did not get paid. Now, before I play you his video, I just want to tell you something: that despite the fact that Traderuski has an issue with Ignition, and it's a valid issue, Traderuski did get screwed by Ignition, not for anything like 136 thousand dollars, but it, it was for a uh, hundred something dollars. But they did screw him. And support was very nasty and difficult with him about it. So I understand why he took his business elsewhere out of principle. So I support what he did, and I fully agree with the points that he has raised. But I will say this for Ignition and Bovada, and that these two are part of the Bodog network, which goes back to the year 2000. It's one of the oldest poker networks out there. 
and they've never had a major scandal, and they've always paid people. So this is not one of these no-pay poker rooms. And this is not a poker room that's known to do really major bad things. Now, they've done a lot of smaller bad things over time. I've had my own issues with them. So they're not perfect. They're not saints. I have a lot of criticisms for them, including what they did to Trederuski. But it's important to know that this is not like a scam room. There are some outright scam rooms that have been around over the years. Lock poker was a good example. This is not a lock poker. If it was, I wouldn't play there. But I've always gotten paid from Ignition and Bovada and Bodog. So why would Matt Vaughn not get paid? Well, I will play you his video starting from the six-minute mark. It's called I Lost $136,686. That's the name of the video. It's on his channel, Matt Vaughn, exactly as it sounds. V-A-U-G-H-A-N is his last name. He has about 18,000 subscribers. You can find him on YouTube. I'm going to play starting the six-minute mark, and we're going to discuss his situation. Everyone at this point should know that Sunday, February 21st, 2021, I played the Ignition monthly million dollar guaranteed tournament and won it. It was a $535 buy-in and I pretty much luck boxed. Oh my God. Misclicked. Oh fuck. I misclicked. Oh my God. See, this is what is the worst. Just triple guys. And time outed. Oh my God. Timed out. Fuck me. <laughs> Timed out my way all the way down to the final table through the final table. Let me stop it right here. The reactions you're hearing in the background, oh my God, oh fuck, fuck, like things like that. He's playing little clips of himself when he was playing it in February. Because he's a streamer. He was actually streaming himself playing. You saw his face on the screen and the poker table at the same time. So you got to watch him play kind of like almost live. It's not exactly live because he doesn't want his opponents to watch it and know his whole cards. But it's on some kind of delay and you're, you're watching him almost live play this tournament and he won it in february and went on to win we did it we technically won now to understand what happened next there are a couple pieces of background you need to know about online poker in the united states and ignition poker specifically so first and foremost the united states has inconsistent online poker regulation on a state-by-state -state basis meaning that individual states determine uh, the legality of it now Ignition operates in the United States as an unregulated poker site. So they're, they're not operating within the sort of regulations that are put forth by those states. Um, playing on Ignition is not explicitly illegal in most U.S. states, but banks aren't allowed to transact directly with them. And uh, they kind of circumvent this primarily by using cryptocurrencies for deposits and withdrawals. Now, it is vastly more complicated than what I've just laid out for you, but that's sort of the gist of the situation. Now, because the U.S. has several states that do have regulated online poker, um, there's really only a few, Nevada, New Jersey, Delaware, Pennsylvania, now Michigan, and I think that's it. Um, Ignition chooses not to operate in those states, presumably to mitigate the risk of uh, the states with those regulations going after them uh, because they might sort of be taking revenue away from them. Now, Ignition, in their terms of service, states that they do not accept players who reside in several of the states, um, mostly those ones, 
um, but including notably Maryland and Nevada. A side note, it's always confused me that several of the unregulated poker sites don't allow Maryland players when Maryland doesn't have regulated online poker. Um, I think it might be to do with the fact that several online poker executives from back in the day, like pre-Black Friday, were indicted in Maryland specifically, uh, but I'm not really sure about that. I can answer that. It's because a U.S. attorney's office that operates out of Maryland has been going after online gambling sites. Same with New York, too. I don't know why they don't stop New York, maybe because uh, it's a big state. They don't want to lose those people. But Maryland is a small state with a small population, and yet there is a U.S. attorney's office there that goes after online poker sites and processors fairly often. So you may say, well, if it's a federal office, then why does stopping Maryland players from signing up do them any good? Well, it's a jurisdiction thing. Even though it's a federal office, the way these federal offices work is they only can take they only deal with federal cases that have to do with ones that take place in their jurisdiction. So if they just don't allow anyone from Maryland to play, then that pretty much prevents these offices from going after them. And uh, then another office has to do it. And if those offices aren't as aggressive with this, then Ignition has taken away a big vehicle to go after them. This doesn't leave them safe from getting busted, but it makes it more likely that they won't be. So they're happy to give up Maryland to get that office out of their hair. That's basically what's happening there. That, or, you know, it could just be the, the closeness to D.C. that they don't, I, who knows, you know, who knows what's going on with that. But that, that's the deal. Okay, moving on. So for those who don't know my history, I moved from Wisconsin to Maryland in 2017, which is from an allowed state to a disallowed state. And I hadn't been on like ignition in a while, right? I hadn't been active. I ended up sort of picking them back up kind of randomly. And I never updated my address in their system because I just, I didn't think about it because I hadn't been active. So I, I was not prevented from playing on the site because there was no obvious geolocation process. There was no obvious IP check when playing on the site. It seems like it only was occurring maybe during withdrawals. Now, it wasn't until I took down their weekly 100K guaranteed tournament for $16,000 that I put in a withdrawal request and received an email saying something to the effect of uh, your play is coming from a location that's different from your address. What's up? Long story fairly short, I was allowed to cash out my funds and my account was closed because I ultimately verified my identity and I was playing from a place that was a disallowed jurisdiction. I made the case that because I travel a lot and spend a lot of time in states that are not my state of residence, that I should be allowed to play when physically located in those other states. But I was told no. It's based 100% on residence and has nothing to do with where you're physically located. Exactly. That's just what I was saying. What they do in these offices, like the U.S. Attorney's Office that's located in Maryland, is they are supposedly investigating crimes against Maryland residents that are federal crimes. And often how they establish this with online poker is they either receive a complaint from someone from their own jurisdiction, or... They even set up someone in their own office to do it. So if they want to go after Ignition, for example, they will have an agent who lives in Maryland 
sign up with his real Maryland address and see if the site accepts their money and lets them play a hand of poker. And if they do, they've got them right there. So that's how they work. That's how they do it. They need to establish that a Maryland resident, whether one who came to them or someone in their own office who lives in Maryland, can sign up and can play real money poker, then they can go after them. So it's fine if that resident actually does this from somewhere else. It is. It has to do with residents because that has to do with the jurisdiction for this U.S. Attorney's Office in Maryland. So it's not like the regulations with being able to play on these state-level sites like WSOP Nevada, WSOP New Jersey, uh, PokerStars Pennsylvania. That's a different matter. That's where state law says that you can only play on these sites if you're physically standing in the state where the site is licensed. That's different than the U.S. Attorney's Office investigating crimes that were committed against residents of their state. So that's why someone who is a Maryland resident that were to go over to a different state to play, they're still a Maryland resident, and then the U.S. Attorney's Office in Maryland still has jurisdiction. So that's why they told him he can't play. I mean, they're right. If they want to avoid that office from going after them, they've got to keep guys like Matt Vaughn off there while he's living in Maryland. In fact, somebody who has an ID in an allowed state that it marks them as being their physical residence and spends 99% of their time outside of that state in a place that is a disallowed jurisdiction, they can play, uh, but I could not. Well, mostly. Um, You're not really considered a resident of a different state if you're spending 99% of your time in the other state, unless it's temporary. Like, let's say you're a resident of uh, California, but then your mom, who lives in Arizona, gets very sick, and you drop everything, and you drive over to Arizona, and you commit that you're going to spend the time with your mom (coughs) as long as you have to, until she either gets better or passes away. And you end up being there for the remainder of the year. Let's say it happens on January 2nd. And on January 2nd, you uh, pack up, drive over to Arizona. You're not sure how long you're going to be there. Maybe your mom's going to pass away within a few weeks. Maybe she's going to last the entire year. Maybe she'll even get better. You don't know. And, th- and then you're, you're with your mom all the way until uh, January 18th the next year and she passes away. So you spent uh, almost the entire year in Arizona taking care of your mom during her final days. That wouldn't make you an Arizona resident. That would make you uh, a visitor to Arizona for the entire year who is a California resident. However, um, if you get a place in Arizona, like a second home or even rent an apartment, whatever it is, and just voluntarily spend all your time there and still maintain a California place and are never there, and then you admit this to be the case, then you really are an Arizona resident that year. So he can say he's, uh, yeah, what he's saying doesn't really apply. He, he doesn't really understand the way residency is determined. But again, it, it has to do with the jurisdiction of that federal office. That's what he's missing here. So there you go. So this is all kind of confusing, this idea of residence over physical location. Not really sure, you know, 
from a legal standpoint, how that would hold up or shake out, but it's how they choose to do it. It's a little bit different than say like poker stars or, you know, some other regulated sites. And uh, I think that this is just the easiest thing for them to do is to just disallow by residents only and not worry as much about geolocation. So fast forward to me living in Nevada, which is recent as of maybe the past seven or eight months. I had heard uh, really crazy good things about this Ignition Monthly Millie Tournament. Uh, I heard it was super soft, that it was extremely good value. It didn't always meet the guarantee. And it was one of the biggest recurring guarantee tournaments that was available to Americans. So I'd also been aware of various players circumventing, you know, the TOS by playing on friends' accounts, friends who, you know, lived in allowed states, maybe weren't that active on their ignition accounts in the first place. All right, let's stop right there. I mean, I I don't know why this guy's even making this video. He's multi-accounting. Now, I understand why. I'm not saying he was cheating because it's a site where everybody's anonymous so as long as uh, your friend's not also using the account, as long as you're not like trading back and forth or something, as long as you're the one who enters and plays the whole way, it's not really a big deal from that standpoint. It's not cheating because no one can see who you are anyway. But it is still multi-accounting. And just about every online poker site for many years says you cannot multi-account, meaning you can't make more than one account for yourself or you cannot use somebody else's account. There's two forms of multi-accounting. It's either sharing account with someone or playing on multiple accounts yourself. Either way, it's called multi-accounting and it is very against the terms of service. At the very beginning of online poker, it wasn't. At the very beginning of online poker is very common. A lot of people don't know this because a lot of people don't go back that far. But in the early 2000s, not only was multi-accounting common, it was accepted. And in fact, on some sites, like the old CryptoLogic site, it was actually allowed where you could make as many accounts as you wanted. But the culture changed, the terms of service changed. And in 2021, there's no way that you could not know, especially as a poker vlogger, that multi-accounting is very against the terms of service. And if you were caught, you could lose everything that you win and they can confiscate all your money. You can say it's right, you can say it's wrong, but you go in knowing the risk. And I have a hard time feeling sorry for people who justify why the multi-accounting is okay and then do it and then it blows up in their face and they go, oh man, I got cheated. Well, no, you took a risk. You knew what this, you knew this could happen. You knew this, you knew there's a possibility you won't get paid because they're going to catch that you're multi-accounting. I don't care if others are getting away with it. You knew it was a risk. You knew you were blatantly, you were blatantly breaking the terms. And if you were blatantly breaking the terms and then you get caught, then you lose the money. I mean, (laughs) otherwise, let's look at it the other way. If, if they had a rule against this, And then when people were caught, they didn't do anything. What would happen? Everyone would do it because uh, there would be no teeth to the rule. So the only way a rule can actually have any effect is if it's enforced. And word will get around very quickly if it's not enforced. Let's go on and listen to what he has to say about all this. And it seemed pretty common and like not a huge deal. Uh, for the people who were circumventing it. Now, still obviously breaking the TOS, 
but it seemed like it was just sort of a known thing. No, it wasn't. It's it's a known thing that people do it, but people get caught. It's a known thing that people deal drugs. And for people who deal drugs and don't get caught dealing drugs, then nothing's happening to them, right? They're doing it. They're making money. They're getting away with it. And then one day at five in the morning, there's a knock on their door and it's the police and they kick down the door and they arrest you and they seize everything in your house. And at that point, it becomes a big deal, doesn't it? Or maybe one day they pull your car over and take everything in there and then you're in big trouble. Then you spend years in prison. See, that's when it becomes a big deal. So you can't just say, well, because these people haven't gotten caught yet, it's not a big deal. No, I mean, I I don't know how this guy can claim he didn't know about this. This has been treated as a big deal by these sites for a very long time. One important thing to note about all of this is that Ignition is an anonymous poker site, meaning that the players don't have screen names. Uh, If my screen name on another poker site was Matt Vaughn, uh, usually I go by Scourge, but let's just say it was Matt Vaughn. On Ignition, like nobody would ever see Matt Vaughn at the table. They would just see player 106 or player 77. And it would be a different number in every tournament I played or every cash game table that I sat down on. So there's no element of sort of pretending to be someone you're not to gain an advantage. It's just playing that session or that day or whatever um, on whatever account you're on and having that new player number every single time. So living in Nevada and having my account currently closed um, and inaccessible to me, I chose to enter and play this tournament under a friend's account. Somebody who doesn't really play the site, who just has the account sitting there. I didn't have access to any other account during this time. And in effect, I was doing the same thing that I did in Maryland, just under a different account name. But knowingly breaking the terms of service and potentially risking not being paid out in this case, Whereas in Maryland, I just didn't even realize I was playing in a disallowed jurisdiction. I went on to win the tournament. Okay, let's stop right here. That should be the end of the video. He knew he was taking a risk. He knew they may not pay him. They caught. They did not pay him. Okay, video over. Done. We're done. We're done. No more. Segment over. Now, wait a minute. There's 14 more minutes in this video? What could he possibly talk about for the next 14 minutes? He just admitted that he knew the risk, he took it, and he got burned. Okay. I got to hear the rest. I mean, I, I don't know what he's going to say next. My friend went through the standard security checks, verifying his identity since uh, the withdrawal and the deposit and the playing uh, happened in Nevada. But he was ultimately stopped as Ignition found out that I was the one who played the tournament and it wasn't actually my friend. I expected at the time that the same thing would happen as when I lived in Maryland. I would be paid out, the account would get closed, and I'd just go back to being someone who can't play on Ignition. Um, just <laughs> a little bit richer than before. Did he? What? 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 You really expected that? So they caught you before and you said, sorry guys, I didn't know. Please pay me my money anyway. Pay me my 16K, wherever the hell he won there. Please, I I had no idea that I couldn't do this over here in Maryland. And they're like, okay, fine. Here's your money. We're not going to stiff you. We're going to give you every penny out of your account. Now we're closing your account. Goodbye. 
Then he sneaks back on? And he, he thinks they're going to pay him a second time? Well, what if he does it a third time? Does he get paid then too? What about a fourth time? What about a fifth time? Like, at what point is it okay for them to say, no, you're not supposed to be here. You're not going to get paid. Did, did he really believe they're going to pay him the second time? They paid you the first time because you pled ignorance and they gave you the benefit of the doubt. But now you can't claim ignorance anymore. This is unbelievable. But no. I was told that because I played the tournament on an account that was not my own, I was technically multi-accounting. Uh, I use the word technically. No, but you were. It wasn't technically. You were multi-accounting. That, that's exactly what multi-accounting is. I agree with what you said a little earlier, that it wasn't cheating, but it was multi-accounting. Because that's actually a word that they used um, on, on the phone call with me after they you know, basically told us that they were aware that it was me playing the tournament and not my friend. And the reason why I put big air quotes on multi-accounting is because I only ever had access to one account uh, at any given time. And so using that phrase is uh, frustrating and multi-accounting is a legitimate problem that plagues online poker and other areas. And this is just not what was happening. But despite the fact that my own account had been closed for over a year, and I didn't have access to any other. This falls under their multi-accounting clause of their terms of service. And from their perspective, uh, is grounds to not pay. I was told that in the vast majority of cases like this, clear-cut cases of what they call multi-accounting, but what is effectively circumventing the, the TOS uh, by playing on another account, the player does not get paid out. And instead, the site pays out the tournament as though the player was never in it. Like I never even existed. Okay, sounds fair to me. So they take you out. Second place becomes first. Third place becomes second. Blah, blah, blah. And that's that. Okay, sounds fair to me. They're not keeping the money. They're giving it to everybody else in the field. And yes, you were multi-accounting. They are clamping down on this, not because they think you were cheating, they cl they're clamping down on this because they don't want to get busted. They have gone 21 years without getting busted. What other poker site can say that? What other poker site has gone 21 years without getting busted? But they have. The Bodog Network has not been busted, despite offering poker to U.S. residents for real money since the year 2000, and we're in the year 2021. That was not all luck. They are very good at avoiding it. So they make sure that the problem federal offices and the state offices, for that matter, that might go after them are excluded. So they have to be very hard line about that, because if they're not, if they start making exceptions, if they start saying, OK, we'll pay you this time and the second time and the third time and the fourth time, then they're opening themselves up to get busted. Understand yet? I was told on the phone that it wasn't a finalized decision, but that was the most likely outcome and that they would give me the final decision over email within a few days. It took about two weeks, which allowed me to sort of sustain a little bit of hope, a little sliver of hope that maybe they'd pay me out. Maybe it was taking a long time because they thought that, you know, my circumstances were different, but no. They gave me the final decision that they were not going to pay me out and they were going to pay out the rest of the tournament as though I did not play it. 
like I never even existed. Now, you might expect that this is the end of the story, but it's not. In fact, I would argue that the rest of the story is even more incredible than the first part. Wait a minute. I don't think that was incredible at all. This is a very, very standard by the numbers getting caught when you had your account closed and played on somebody else's account and won a tournament and they figured it out and didn't pay you. Like this is very, very standard. This is not incredible. This is not crazy. Kind of sucks for you that you won 136K, but uh, it's not incredible. I'm sure it's a very big thing in your life, Mr. Matt Vaughn, but this is not a story which is shocking or scandalous, at least not so far. Let's hear the rest. The thing that makes this whole thing even more crazy is that when I got down to heads up, I received word that the guy who I was heads up with was interested in chopping. Yo, Matt, I know 86. (laughs) He wants to know if you want to chop. His name was Tom Brabant. People who mutually knew both of us got us in touch and hard vouched for each of us. And we got together on Skype while the tournament was running. Um, Basically, multiple people knew our reputations, felt that they were strong enough, we were both trustworthy, and that we could basically have a conversation where normally online this wouldn't really be a thing unless the site itself was was facilitating a chop, basically. Uh, This is important because Ignition doesn't facilitate chops. There's no button that says chop. It's like the payouts are going to be what the payouts are based on how you finish in the tournament. So that being the case, there needs to be a lot of trust involved. There needs to be uh, sort of protection for you as a player so that you don't get free rolled where like if you were to get first, you would pay them out the chop money. But if they got first, they wouldn't. So what he's talking about here, in case you guys don't know, a lot of you probably do know, but some of you probably don't. Um, The chop they're talking about is where, because there's a lot of variance in tournaments, at the very end, a lot of it's luck-based. If it's a bunch of good players against each other, it's pretty much whoever gets the better cards. And since there's such a big difference between the first few places in a tournament as far as the payouts, sometimes people will take the luck out of it, at least somewhat, by saying, okay, how about we agree that uh, we're going to split this money and play for a much smaller sum of money. So we're going to all lock up such and such money and then uh, we'll play for something much smaller. Now, there's some tournaments that will do this for you. And then there's other informal deals you can make where the tournament, and I'm talking about both live and online, where the tournament will not facilitate this. And the only way you can facilitate this is by making an agreement with the remaining people in the field and hoping they honor it and don't screw you when it's all over. So that's what he's talking about, that one of his viewers, remember he was streaming this, one of his viewers said, hey, guess what? I happen to be friends with a guy your head's up with, and he'd like to make a deal with you. And then there were some discussions, and uh, basically both parties decided that uh, they trusted each other enough through reputation, like, I guess uh, yeah, he talked to uh, the friends of that other guy and that other guy talked to Matt's friends and they decided that neither is likely to screw the other, that both of them have enough of a good reputation in poker to where they're not likely to screw the other person. And they agreed to some kind of deal here that has nothing to do with Ignition. Ignition is going to pay out the places as listed there. So they made this agreement when they were heads up to uh, not 
play for the money that was listed, but to actually agree that whoever finishes first is going to give money to finish second, and that the distance between first and second and what they get paid is much smaller than what will show on the screen. So he's saying that basically that deal was made because it happened that the guy who was playing him heads up was a friend of one of his viewers. Otherwise, there's no way to know who you're playing. You can't even call up the person if you do know them. Like I, for I, if I were, let's say I was in the ignition Sunday million and Trader Ruski was still there and me and him ended up heads up. Unless we happened to be texting that day, um, we would have no idea we were playing each other until after, after the fact. So uh, here it was a unique situation where it was only discovered because he was streaming it and the guy playing him heads up was a friend of one of the viewers. So let's go on and hear what happened. That's important. Now, it's also important to note that the heads-up match we were playing was worth about $40,000 of additional money. Second place was supposed to receive 93200 I believe. First place was supposed to get $136,686. So playing a basically 40K heads-up match is uh, well, well outside proper bankroll management for me, even after locking up what I thought was going to be a 90K plus score. And so... With the people vouching for it and feeling pretty comfortable about the situation, it was sort of a no-brainer for me to run a chop. We ultimately came to an agreement where we would pull 2500 out of first and second place each, setting aside that $5,000 to play for heads up. So basically, instead of playing a 40k heads up match, we were going to play a 5k heads up match, which I might still not be rolled for, but a lot closer. The rest of the money above second place, we chose to ICM chop, which means that we used the stack sizes that we had at the time and chip modeling uh, to set the value of those stacks to what the dollar amounts were and pay that out basically separate from the heads up match, regardless of that outcome. Now, Tom had a decent chip lead at the time when we came to this agreement. And so his ICM stack value was just a hair under $115,000. And mine was just a hair over $110,000 thousand dollars the 5k left to play for would go to whoever won the event as you know i went on to win it at first moving my total payout to about 115k and just a hair over what tom would earn and it would require me to send tom about twenty thousand dollars as the events following the tournament took place i kept tom in the loop and i ultimately explained to him the full detail of my situation and the risks potentially involved of not being paid out As it became more clear that I realistically might not get paid, I kept Tom aware of these concerns and just kept him fully in the loop and mentioned that if the worst were to happen, we'd sort of have to have a conversation about what was fair. See, when we agreed to chop up the prize pool, Tom could have won about 120K if we chopped and he won on top of that. But if I was disqualified from the event by ignition, he would then be receiving $136,686, which is, you know, 16.7K-ish more than what he could get through the chop. I contended that if that were to happen, the chop should be honored and Tom should get the ICM value that we agreed to with me getting the remainder, which would be obviously a lot less than what first or even second place money was. But still, when we found out I wasn't being paid at all, I immediately went back to Tom and gave him the news. And I'm not going to lie. I thought there was a very high probability that I would get nothing. And that's nothing about Tom. I didn't know him personally that well. But 
I had a lot working against me. I was disqualified. I had no real legitimate recourse whatsoever. I had no basis on which to claim the money other than through our agreement. And on top of that, Tom had a backer. Tom was a pro. He could obviously be helped by the money. And so it seemed like this was sort of going to be a a moment where we were pretty at odds. When we spoke next, uh, we did so over video chat and a part of me wanted to record it for the content purposes to, to share it with you guys, but not knowing Tom's decision yet, I, I didn't want to make him uncomfortable in case he was choosing not to pay me. And that didn't really seem fair. As much as I felt like I should get a portion of the prize pool, I didn't really feel like I was in a place where I could pressure him in any kind of way. I didn't think that was fair. And it's ultimately his decision. What happened next absolutely blew my mind. Over the following 30 minutes or so, Tom explained his process for coming to a decision, emphasizing that he wanted to remove the monetary element completely and instead focus on what was ethical and fair and protected his interests while not being purely greed motivated. First, he had to be sure that he wasn't getting free rolled. Like we kind of talked about earlier in this video, you need to make sure that you're being protected in case, you know, I would do something unethical when he's going to do the ethical thing. So what did he do? Well, he found out as much as he could about me. He watched some of my videos, tried to get a sense of my character. He basically wanted to make a reasonable assumption about what would happen if the situation was reversed. If I wouldn't pay him in the reverse scenario, it actively hurts him to pay me out. Even if it's only in a theoretical sense, it's important. As poker players, we need to think in terms of EV. We need to think in terms of protecting our own interests. Secondly, he sought out experts uh, in our field. He spoke with nosebleed, high stakes players. He spoke with a tournament director. And he spoke with all of them with the intention of finding out if there was a precedent for this situation. Let me stop right here. I know I've played it a while without a comment. I wanted you guys to just hear the whole thing. So I'm sure you see the dilemma here. So this guy, Tom, got paid 136,686 instead of 93 and change because uh, Matt got disqualified. So remember, they took Matt out as if he were not there and moved everybody up one spot. So before what it was going to be was that, you know, before the disqualification, was that Matt would receive 136 and then Tom would receive 93. But by their chop agreement that uh, they were only actually playing for 5K heads up and that they were also going by the ICM value of what their chip stack was worth at the time they made the deal to where uh, Tom basically locked up uh, 114K and that uh, Matt locked up uh, 110K. So basically, they uh, so, so basically, when Tom lost, Tom was supposed to get 114k. He only got 93k from Ignition, which, as Matt mentioned, Matt owed him another 21k. So when the whole thing was said and done, Tom was supposed to be holding 114k from the whole thing, 93 on Ignition and 21 off Ignition. But Matt got disqualified. So then what happened was that Ignition shipped Tom 
another 43K. So what do we have here now? Now Tom is holding 136K instead of 114K, which means Tom has 22K too much. So it's very obvious what the ethical thing to do here is Tom ship 22K to Matt. And I haven't heard the end of this, by the way. I decided I'm going to watch this along with you guys. And I wanted my reactions to all be genuine. I didn't want to feign reactions as we played this when I've actually heard it all before. So I don't know how this ends either. But I'm going to tell you that I think what should have been done, and we'll hear the result in a second. There's only a few minutes left. I think that Tom shipped him the 22K. It seems 100% that's the right thing to do. Not more, not less. Why? Because whether Matt was playing against their terms of service isn't really Tom's business. I understand why Ignition kicked him off. I understand why they didn't pay him. But really, as far as Tom was concerned, the only thing that he was expecting here was 114K. He made an agreement with Matt that no matter what happens, he's going to get 114K unless he beats Matt heads up. So, yeah, you could argue that Matt wasn't supposed to be there in the first place. And like, had he been disqualified before the whole thing completed, that maybe Tom should have had another 5K. But that would be the most you could argue that Tom should have is another 5K on top of the 114. What you could not argue is that uh, Tom deserves any more than that. And really, to me, it's pretty straightforward. The most obvious thing to do here is just make sure that Tom walks away with 114K like he thought and then give the rest to Matt. And it's not a case of Tom helping Matt with his problem. It's a matter that they had an agreement and that's what the agreement was. And whether Ignition takes... Matt's money is not really Tom's business either way. It's not up to him to make that up, but it also doesn't mean he should break their agreement. He just needs to walk away with 114K from that tournament. And once he does, then the agreement has been met. But let's hear what happened. In terms of what should be done, what was fair, but there was no precedent. And third, he just tried to be a good human. He tried to be as fair as he possibly could be. And this is what he came up with. When we agreed to the ICM chop, we basically entered into an agreement to remove a portion of the money that was paid out by Ignition and separate it between us as we saw fit. We decided to leave 5K of the payout to whoever officially won the tournament as ruled by Ignition. When Ignition disqualified me from the event, Tom effectively becomes the winner and the 5k goes to him. But he determined that in his eyes, Ignition disqualifying me did not alter the rest of the money in our agreement. It did not change the outcome of our agreement. The roughly $35,000 that was left to be split should still be split. And so our agreement in effect is honored with the caveat that I am technically the second place finisher of the event as determined by a combination of us and Ignition's choice to disqualify me. Less than a week later, Tom sent me the money, 
plus the money that I had already started to send him when we believed that I would be paid out first place money. This whole thing really blew me away. Actually, it's blowing me away that he kind of got screwed here. <laughs> it sounds to me that Tom actually declared himself the winner and instead decided that he deserves 119k instead of 114k in which case he only sent 17k over to Matt instead of 22 plus whatever Matt had already sent him which of course he needs to refund if that's the case he kind of got screwed i mean it's better than nothing it's better than tom just saying f you there's nothing you can do and you shouldn't have been on there in the first place and you got disqualified and you're a multi-accounter so even though you were only putting ignition at risk and it had nothing to do with the integrity of the tournament i am sending you zero point zero so yes tom could have said that but he would have looked bad it would have hurt his reputation and matt has a voice matt has a vlog with 18k subscribers and had Tom sent him 0.0, Matt would have gotten on. And instead of the title being, I lost 136K, the title would have been, I lost 136K and Tom, whatever his last name is, screwed me out of this much. And Tom would have had his name trashed in poker for the remainder of time. And remember, he said that Tom is getting backed. So that also could affect future backing deals where people wouldn't trust Tom People would think maybe Tom's not an honorable guy. So it's very possible Tom did this anyway just because he wanted to do the right thing. So I don't want to say Tom only did this out of self-interest that he paid Matt anything because he's afraid it would affect future backing deals or his reputation. But I will say if he only sent him 17K, that's not fair because I don't think Matt should be determined the second place winner for their agreement. For their agreement, Matt should be the first place winner because he was, because he beat Tom fair and square heads up. So at that point, Tom believed he won 114K. He did win 114K. And that's what Tom should get is 114K. So because Tom received 136K, the other 22 should be sent to Matt. And if he was only sent 17, then guess what, Matt? You got screwed by 5K. And I started to get really emotional as the call went on. And certainly in the moments and days after and especially after receiving the funds very quickly, I felt like I'd experienced the most insane roller coaster in online poker history, barring maybe people getting screwed over by Black Friday. I won the tournament. It was my biggest score ever by a factor of two and a half. I lost it all. I thought I wasn't going to get anything, not even my entry feedback. Then, Tom chose to honor the chop and I effectively got sixth place money. Not only that, but he chose to do this despite it inherently hurting him monetarily. From a selfish perspective, he hurt himself to do this. And without any sort of obvious payoff for him going this route and, and paying me, I feel like so many times in the poker world, we just hear about the cheating the scumbags, the, the guys who don't pay out their backers, the guys who go into infinite makeup and then just disappear only to be found years later playing on the other side of the world. So this experience, Tom's choice was such an insane moment. Tom, thank you. 
my faith in humanity is officially restored. And always remember, just triple. Big announcement. Okay. We're not going to put the big announcement up. It's about some stupid game they're going to have. But let's talk about the end of that video. So notice that Matt did not say, you know, Tom, you should have given me five more K here, but uh, you know, 17 is better than 20. 17 is better than zero. Should have been 22. He gave me 17. And, you know, you could have done worse, but you really should have done better. So why was he almost in tears? <gasps> Tom, you, you restored my faith in humanity. And I... There's just so many stories about poker players and they're screwing people. And here is is a human interest story about a player, a heads up player who, against his own financial interests, paid out money he didn't have to pay. Oh my God, so many poker players wouldn't have done this. He was so nice. (laughs) How, How can we got that? How can we got that? Well, because Matt knew that he could have been screwed there. So he wanted to give Tom some props. I'm sure he realizes the same thing I did, that he kind of got shorted by 5K, but he knew that he could have gotten nothing, and he got the majority of it, and he also knew this was his own fault. He knew that he created the whole situation by doing that stupid multi-accounting. And yes, it was multi-accounting, Matt. So he didn't want to be an ingrate, and say anything that would imply that Tom had underpaid him. Also, this would really make Matt look like a dick in a lot of people's eyes if after Tom shipped him 17K, he came out and bitched about it. So I'm sure he realized it, but I'm also sure, or not sure, but I'd say I'm uh, highly suspecting that he doesn't think as highly of Tom as he's saying there. But he's putting it out there to seem like a gracious guy. And remember, he has a channel with 18K subscribers. He needs people to think highly of him. He needs people to like him and to be interested in him. So he cannot come off like an ingrate. I'm talking about Matt now. He has to be very gracious about this. But in reality, he kind of got screwed. So it's funny. The beginning of the video... I felt like he was being too harsh on Ignition, and I felt as if he was somewhat playing victim when he really didn't deserve to play victim. It really was his fault. It was really very obvious what Ignition had to do there. And then the second part of the video, I thought he went far too easy on the guy he had to deal with for keeping an additional 5K. Again, you didn't lose to Tom. You beat Tom. You played Tom heads up in a fair poker match. He knew he was playing you. You knew you were playing him. There was nothing shady about the match. Even if you technically weren't supposed to be there, you guys had a gentleman's agreement that the winner of that match gets 5K. So why would he withhold the 5K? Because Ignition decided because that you weren't supposed to be there and now you're the, quote, second place finisher. Ignition didn't decide that. Ignition decided you're... Uh, that you didn't win at all. Ignition decided he didn't cash. Ignition decided you're on the same level as someone who entered and busted on the first hand. So what do you mean Ignition made you the second place finisher? No, they didn't. They made you the last place finisher. So what does Ignition's decision have to do with this? They, Tom really kind of broke your gentleman's agreement in part. 
he paid you most of the money. That's good, but he kind of broke the agreement. Unless I'm missing something here, but that's kind of weird. I mean, he's got to know he got shorted 5K, but <laughs> he's afraid to say it. <laughs> it even sounded kind of phony at the end. It restored my faith in humanity. All these bad stories out of poker, and then we have this. A guy working against his own interest. Give me a break. I mean, I'm glad this mostly had a happy ending, kind of, but... To me, the whole thing was straightforward. To me, Ignition's decision was straightforward. Tom's decision was straightforward. Minus the 5K. Tom would have been beaten up all over Match Channel if he didn't pay out. I don't think any of this was amazing. I, I think it was interesting especially the part that he happened to have this deal with a friend of one of his viewers, a deal that otherwise could not have been facilitated because nobody knew who each other were. And then this happened. I mean, that that was pretty unique. I, I admit we probably won't see that again anywhere. I don't think any of the decisions anyone made here were out of the ordinary or surprising. Okay, so let's move on to talk about Las Vegas and their reopening. So I mentioned on a previous show, a recent show, either last week or the week before, I'm forgetting now which one it was, doesn't really matter though, that the state gave the authority to the counties to decide what opens and what does not open and what is safe and what is not safe. Basically, the state said, we're out of this. Counties, you handle it. And this was probably being done by Governor Steve Sisolak because he wants to get reelected, and he does not want this hanging over him, that he was thwarting the rebound that uh, Las Vegas so badly needs to have. They need an economic rebound, and he doesn't want to be in the way of it anymore, nor does he want to be blamed for all kinds of COVID death and illness. So what's the smartest way to get out of this? Well, it's to say, all right, I'm not going to stop you guys anymore, but I'm not reopening everything. I'm going to pass the buck. I'm going to now put the burden on the counties. And now the counties can pay the price if they either are too restrictive or too permissive. So if too many people die of COVID, then it's the county's fault. Or if the economy does not rebound because the county is too restrictive. Well, again, it's the county's fault that you don't have a job. See, now it's not Sislak's fault. Sislak, he was the responsible guy who let the counties decide. So that's why this is happening. But let's talk about what the actual decision was in Clark County. Clark County is the county where Vegas is located. So here was the tweet from City of Las Vegas. That's at City of Las Vegas, exactly as it sounds. On May 1st at 7 a.m., starting today, May 1st, capacity increased to 80%, social distancing reduces to three feet, day clubs and nightclubs and adult entertainment may reopen. Masks will continue to be required. Now, even though this is from City of Las Vegas, this decision was not made by the City of Las Vegas. It was made by Clark County. So they linked Clark County's statement on this, which is on ClarkCountyNV.gov. And it said, the state of Nevada today notified Clark County 
that its local COVID-19 mitigation and enforcement plan can go into effect on Saturday, May 1st. The Clark County Commission approved the plan on April 20th to increase capacity restrictions for public gatherings to 80% occupancy effective May 1st and reduce social distance requirements from 6 to 3 feet. Additionally, businesses currently closed, including nightclubs and adult entertainment, may reopen. By the way, adult entertainment means strip clubs and brothels where those are legal. Of course, in Clark County, that's not legal, but in counties that do have it, like uh, Nye County, I'm not sure what Nye County decided, but if they made the same decision, then I guess those can reopen. Commissioners decided that capacity and social distancing requirements will be removed when 60% of the eligible population receives at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. Masks will continue to be required per Nevada Directive 24 and Section 4 of Directive 28. So that's a state law that masks have to be required. Today, 46.5% of the eligible population of 1.83 million of those at least 16 years old have received at least one vaccination shot. To reach the 60% threshold, about 1.097 million people would have to get at least one shot. The Clark County plan ensures that our reason region continues to stay vigilant in protecting the health of our residents, blah, blah, blah. I won't read all that. Under Clark County's plan, restaurant seating will be expanded to 12 patrons to a table from the current limit of six, and buffets will be allowed to return May 1st. Curbside delivery and carryout operations, along with expanded outdoor seating options, will be continued to be strongly encouraged. Areas assigned for dancing can open up once 60% of the eligible population is vaccinated. Bar top seating can expand from two to four. The plan further allows for increasing occupancy to 80% for gyms, fitness studios, and similar establishments, pools and spas, water parks, libraries, and museums, retail stores, indoor malls, karaoke establishments, community recreational centers. Salad bars, salsa bars, and other self-service options will be allowed under certain conditions, and food sampling will be allowed at grocery stores and farmer's markets on May 1st. Body, Body art and piercing establishments, spas and massage establishments, a.k.a. jerk shops, will be will remain subject to capacity restrictions and social distancing requirements and services will be subject to appointment only gaming establishments remain under the purview of the nevada gaming control board but non-gaming areas inside casinos are subject to local control elevator capacity will be expanded from four persons to eight events with more than 250 attendees must submit a preparedness and safety plan to the clark county recovery enforcement work group for matters such as testing and screening of participants, managing the flow of people, cleaning and disinfection, and other concerns. A plan also will have to be submitted for more than 250 spectators or attendees are expected. Any full contact league or tournament that resumes after May 1st will also need to submit a preparedness and safety plan. Sounds like a lot of bureaucracy to me. Large gatherings and events with prior approval from the Nevada Department of Business and Industry are considered approved plans under the local authority, Those large gatherings and events approved with stricter capacity and social distance requirements are able to request approval to comply with the capacity and social distancing requirements as under the county's plan. Large gatherings with less than 20,000 people will be approved at three feet social distancing with up to 80% capacity if, one, the venue is outdoors or if indoors and the area is well ventilated, two, 50% of the community has completed their first dose of vaccination for COVID-19, Capacity can increase to 100% with no social distancing and less than 20,000 attendees if, one, 
All attendees have either completed their vaccination for COVID-19 at least 14 days prior to the event and are, or are tested using a PCR test 24 to 48 hours prior to the event and have evidence of a negative test result. And two, the venue is outdoors or if indoors, the area is well ventilated. And three, 50% of the eligible community has completed their first dose of vaccination. Okay, this is, I have so many problems with all this. I mean, this, this is junk. This is garbage. This is a terrible plan. There's so many poor, there's so many examples here of a poor understanding of COVID danger and, and why we are here on May 2nd, 2021, I guess this was May 1st, 2021, but whatever. In May 2021, for this to be where they are with such poor understanding of how COVID transmits is pretty amazing to me because they are taking too many chances where people can legitimately get sick and they are at the same time putting on unnecessary restrictions where there really isn't much of a risk. So it's like the worst of both worlds. It's too restrictive in some areas and not restrictive enough in others. And you know what? I I could understand either way if they're going to go one way or the other. I could understand a very conservative approach saying, look, we're just not ready yet. There's just not enough vaccinated people yet. We just have to be restrictive. Or you know what? We have a lot of vaccinated people and anyone who wants a vaccine pretty much could have gotten one by now or we're very close to that point. So you know what? Uh, those who aren't vaccinated yet probably chose not to do it. They're taking their own risks. So do what you want. Gather how you want. Get together how you want. Don't wear a mask. Whatever. Have fun. I, I, I could understand either approach. In fact, I'm kind of more partial to the second approach. I think once everybody has the opportunity to get vaccinated, which we're pretty much there. If not, we're very close. So once everybody who wants a vaccine can get one, then what's the issue? If people are choosing not to get vaccinated and then they get sick, then that was their own choice. Much like Matt Vaughn made a choice to play on an account that was not his on ignition and he got his money confiscated. If you make a choice where there is a risk involved, and then you end up on the bad side of the risk, the person you blame for that is you. And we have instances of this every day that have nothing to do with COVID. People take risks every day, some small risks, some very large risks. When I drove today, I didn't go very far, but I drove within the neighborhood. I took a risk that someone might hit me and kill me or injure me badly. It didn't happen. I came back fine. Nobody hit my car, but they could have. I took a small risk by driving. I would have been safer had I stayed home. But I took that risk because I wanted to go somewhere and get something. So every day you take a series of risks. And if you are choosing not to get vaccinated, then you're choosing to take a risk with COVID. So I would understand either approach, but this is like this weird middle ground where they want to feign safety. But in reality, they're not really being very safe at all. So let me tell you where my problems are as I scroll through this again. First of all, I don't see why the percentage of people getting vaccinated really matters. It matters a little because this also seems to prevent transmission. So if you're vaccinated, not only are you safer, but you're less likely to transmit. But still, the question should more be how many people can get vaccinated? Is there still a problem with people getting appointments? 
Like right now, Nevada is open to everybody who wants to get a vaccine. And they also have to consider people from outside the area, people who don't live in Nevada. Can they get a vaccine? But I believe every state can get, anyone can get a vaccine right now. I don't think there's a single state right now where you cannot get vaccinated because you're not in the right group. I think everybody 16 and above can get vaccinated right now. At least they can get the process started. I know by the time you're fully vaccinated, it's five to six weeks. But you can get the process started and get this first shot, which is what they're talking about. And about two weeks after the first shot, you're 80% vaccinated anyway. So that's good enough. So given that's the case, that should be what they're focusing on. And if the answer is yes, people can get vaccinated if they want it, then that's it. That, That should really be out the window as far as worrying about that. Then, we have a caller, by the way, but let me make this rant here, and then we'll get to him. Um, Then the whole thing about uh, restaurant seating will be expanded to 12 patrons to a table from the current limit of six? I mean, okay, but why was it ever six? Uh, If people want to get together at a table, uh, you shouldn't be restricting that. These aren't strangers. It's not like you're just plopping 12 randoms together it's either 12 people who happen to all live uh, at the same place or uh, people who probably hang out together anyway so yeah it's more likely like a few different families together maybe even six different families together like six couples but uh, that's a dumb restriction because if you don't allow that these people will probably get together in someone's house so that's a dumb thing that's that's something you shouldn't be preventing at all so that's i mean it's good it went from six to 12 but they shouldn't have that restriction at all and then uh, the, the whole thing about, uh, about cleaning, I mean, why, why are they even worrying about that? We realized a long time ago that it's not spreading through surfaces. So there, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of stuff in this whole thing that, that is, it's more performative. It's more about appearance than actually keeping people safe. Uh, like it's, it talks about cleaning and disinfection. Why? That's, that's to prevent the flu, right? That doesn't help with COVID. We know that. So why, why are they talking about cleaning still? Why, why, why is anyone obsessed with cleaning at this point? Because it looks good? Because you feel good? Because you see them cleaning? It's not doing any good. It's stopping you from getting the flu. It's stopping you from catching a cold. It's, it's uh, keeping uh, some of these germs out of your body. It's not stopping you from getting COVID. That's dumb. And uh, then allowing uh, certain, you know, a certain number of people on the bar tops that changing the social distancing requirement from six to three feet. Okay, again, they just did a study that indoor social distancing doesn't matter, that six feet and 60 feet were basically the same. So they have to rethink that you can't just decide COVID works like the flu and treat COVID like the flu. That's what we've been doing for the past year plus, but it's been wrong. That's why we have over 500,000 people dead from COVID. So let's change our thinking and also adjust our thinking because we have the vaccine available to everybody and then make protocols that make sense. Don't just say, well, we're, we're only going to allow four people to sit together at the bar tops because, well, anything more than that looks uh, unsafe. I don't care if it looks unsafe. I care if it is unsafe. It's, it's just so frustrating to read these things. Like they, they should just... Like, same with buffets and salad bars. I know it feels weird to go to a buffet after we just experienced this pandemic, while we're still experiencing this pandemic. But uh, have we seen proof 
that food is causing people to catch COVID? The answer is that was never really studied as far as I know. That's why I actually didn't do takeout food until after I was vaccinated. So I'm not saying that there's no risk there, but I know that's not the main way COVID is transmitted. So that's another dumb thing to worry about. So there's a, what should they worry about here? And then we'll get to the caller. What they should worry about is how many people are being crammed indoors, not how close they're sitting to each other, not how many are at a table, not how many are at the bar tops, but how many people are indoors. And they talk about ventilation. You don't necessarily want ventilation because ventilation is actually believed to cause the spread of COVID more because it blows it around. It blows the little particles around. So the question should be, how many people do we want in a space indoors? How big is the space? How many people are in the space? How many is appropriate to have? That's what we should determine now. And I will agree that that probably does need a restriction still because that's really the way it spreads. If you're going to have any COVID protocols, it's got to be based on that. Not on cleaning, not on who sits at the table together. None of that nonsense. Not about buffets. It needs to be about how many people are inside together. Period. That's it. Not, not a, they don't have to submit a plan to the county and wait 120 days or, or with 250 attendees have to do this and that. It's dumb. They just have to simplify this to what we already know. Not what the Democrats want you to know. Not what the Republicans want you to know. But what the truth is. Not what makes Trump look good or bad. Not what makes Biden look good or bad. But the truth. We lost our caller. I was ranting too much. I'm going to call this guy back. I feel bad now. I answered his call and I just ran it over for five minutes. Oh, here we go. He's calling back. I feel better now. Okay, caller, you, you've uh, you've gotten the message across to me. You hung up on me. I'm going to let you talk. Uh, yeah, I, I, well, I hung up on purpose because you took so damn long with your rant. <laughs> uh, this is Go Buckos calling. Yeah, hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Um, I, I'm I'm with you on most of this absurdity regarding the, the what Clark County has put out. Um, the, I disagree with you a little bit in that I, I, I actually think there is some merit in tying loosened restrictions to community vaccination rates. But here's my problem with it in this instance. They're referring to nightclubs and dancing. Okay. If people are, if, if dancing is once again eligible at the 60% vaccination threshold, who are the people in these nightclubs dancing. They're not Clark County residents. I mean, I, I mean, it has nothing to do with it. Right. It doesn't. Most they're, of them are, are out of the area. The, yeah. The people in these nightclubs are the people who are from out of state visiting. You have no freaking idea whether they're vaccinated or not. Yeah. So in that case, in that case, I agree that it's absurd. Um, and, you know, also, okay. So night, nightclubs are eligible to reopen immediately. But there's no dancing until a million more people are vaccinated. Well, why do you go to a nightclub? (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) What else do you do in nightclubs? That's true. I I guess you can sit around drinking. You can get. But uh, other than that, yeah, I know. I I admit with the with the dancing gone, why even go? Right, right. I mean, I mean, so that 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 doesn't make sense to me. Now the day clubs are being treated the same as the nightclubs in this instance, and I think that's a mistake. Because where are most of the day clubs? They're at pools. They're outside. Which, yeah. of course, you know, lowers the risk exponentially. Um, but, you know, they're being lumped in with the nightclubs as well. 
Um, to touch on something you first talked about, uh, which is you know the, the turnover of the control to the counties, uh, I I have a feeling that it will end up being a red versus blue county thing. So, which basically, I mean, what are the blue counties in Nevada? Clark and Washoe, right? Yeah. So they're going to continue to be relatively restricted, while the, all the red counties, which is basically every every place else, are going to be wide open. Um, you know, that's, that's how I think this is going to play out. And given that the other counties are rural areas with probably lower rates of COVID anyway, maybe that makes some sense. Well, they're, they're, they're um, at least rural areas with, uh, hardly any people. So I, I don't know about the rates of COVID, yeah. but the, the thing is, there's not going to be many tourists in these areas that are not either Clark or Washoe County. Right. Right. But, uh, you know, you, I, I do understand that the commission has to look like they're doing something. Uh, you know, there's pressure on them from all sides of the coin. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's tremendous pressure to reopen the economy, you know, just because Vegas was hurting for so long. Uh, and yet they also have to throw a bone to the medical community uh, and say, look, it, it, at least we're just not throwing the doors open. Although, you know, what's three feet of social distancing? It, it, it's nothing. Yeah, it's not, exactly. And, and uh, by the way, there's something else you brought up that I want to expand upon. You talked about how the day clubs and nightclubs are being treated the same and they shouldn't be. And that's a good point. I'll take it even further and point out that everything in that statement from Clark County keeps referring to either outdoors or indoors with ventilation. Well, that's a tremendous difference. Why are you putting them in the same category, outdoors or indoors with ventilation? It should be outdoors has this ability indoors with ventilation if they really think that's better which i don't think it really matters uh can do this and indoors without ventilation can do that Uh, they they should make three categories there they shouldn't lump outdoors with indoors with ventilation as if they're the same thing because it's vastly different i I agree with that and also how do you define well ventilated you know what 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 is that i don't i don't even know what that means well, I think, Does yeah, that's a good that point. Means? It's a good point. They don't define that very well, and uh, they're... They don't define it at all. Yeah, and there was a concern. Seriously? And there's a concern, by the way, last year, which I believe still is a concern, that ventilation systems, like air conditioners, heaters, that they were actually causing COVID to get worse, that when they would go on, that uh, people would catch COVID more often because it would blow the particles around the room. And uh, they even found... Yeah something interesting which wasn't studied all that much because it wasn't all that important but it maybe was because it could have given a clue about other things that taller people in these situations were getting it more than shorter people and they especially found this among women because in women um they they were looking at women who were like six feet versus the ones that were like five three and they found that the ones who were the very tall women, the ones who were like you know, around six foot, five eleven, they were getting COVID way more in these indoor environments than the ones who were closer to average height, five three, five four. And uh, there was a theory that it had to do with the ventilation systems blowing it around. And that, uh, that, is, that is correct. But but Drev, let me let me tell you what's changed about that. Uh, and I, I have a rel- I have a close relative who is in the HVAC industry, and that's how I I'm privy to this stuff. Um. Ventil- the definition of ventilation now is a little different than it was when COVID started. Uh, the, a lot of the new systems that are, putting, that are being put in place, what they're doing is they are exchanging the air in the room with fresh air from outside as opposed to just swirling it around. That's the change. 
Uh, and that's what you're seeing in more and more places. Now, these are extremely expensive systems to install that, that do this. Um, but for example, uh, that's why the COVID risk on an airplane is actually a lot lower than you think it might be. It, and this was already in place because that air is constantly being recycled with, or constantly, constantly being replaced with air from the outside. And that's what's starting to happen in these buildings with the, that, are, that are installing these new ventilation systems now. So I, I don't think that's going to be much of an, as much of an issue anymore. But A, it's an extremely expensive system to install, and not many businesses can afford it. And B, uh, that still doesn't change the fact that the county in this document, which we've both read, uh, you know, still doesn't define what well-ventilated means. Yeah. Um, but but I, I don't think it's a case where the air is going to be swirling. Ventilation means just the air is swirling around in the room anymore, at least not by their definition. So hopefully that helps things a little bit. Um, but uh, like I said, I actually have a I actually have a road trip scheduled for pretty much the entire state of Nevada next month. It'll be interesting to see, you know, and I, I mean, I'm going to every corner literally, and it's going to be, it'll be interesting to see that, uh, you know, the differences and I'll be sure to do a full report on it. But, uh, uh, but I, again, I agree with you uh, for the most part that, that this is not, and, I, and also I, I got to tell you something else about social distancing. COVID hasn't really stopped me from doing a lot in public. I know it stopped you. It hasn't really stopped me at least, you know, the things I can do. Never once have I heard a person in any kind of authority or power say, hey, you're standing too close to that guy. You need to move. It, it's unenforceable. Yeah. Any concept of social distancing is unenforceable, whether it's three feet, six feet, or 60 feet. How, how do you enforce it? it? It is tough. And in fact, I noticed when I would be anywhere that um, – People weren't even trying very hard. Like they just walk right by me, and I, I would actually have to get out of people's way. Usually, people weren't even trying to keep uh, a certain distance away from me. So, uh, yeah, and, and it is hard to enforce. And you're right; I I can totally picture that this isn't said very often. Oh, you're too close. Get away. So, yeah, it's, see, that's what I mean by the, so much of this being performative and looking safe rather than being safe. And it's time to it's time to just stop the whole sham. It's time to just say. Look, we're either going to do something that really matters and not do too much and not do too little, but do something that really matters and, uh, and do something that makes sense, or just F it, just don't do anything at all. Like, seriously, I'm, I'm not even well, trying what, to... What, I told you I'd give you an update on some of the, so what some of the southern states are doing. That's what they've done in Mississippi. Um, the, state, the governor removed the mask mandate, uh, I think, like a month and a half ago. Uh, but the Gaming Commission in Mississippi said, you still have to wear masks in the casinos. Uh, they loosened some capacity restrictions at that time, but they said you still have to have masks on. And then I believe it was just uh, Friday, April 30th, they said, okay, no more masks. Um, and, and so basically it's, it's COVID never happened, Bill, uh, except there are still a couple of casinos that are still, that still have their own mask policy, um, Harrah's and Biloxi being one. Uh, I, I believe the Biloxi casinos are split about 50-50, whether the individual casino is still requiring masks or not. Um, in Louisiana, while there's no statewide mask mandate, uh, the city of New Orleans still has one and all the New Orleans casinos, uh, are still requiring masks. Uh, but even, I suspect it's, a, it's only a, a short matter of time before that goes away because they are unpopular. And I do think that if one casino has a max mask mandate and the place down the street doesn't, 
the place the place that has the mask mandate is going to su- mask mandate is going to suffer. Yes, I, I so agree. We'll see. It's going to be interesting. I agree. But um, so that's kind of what's going on down here. Of, of course, you know, Mississippi is a bright red state, so it's logical that just because of the politics of all this, they open up first, and they have. Um, but you know, where where whereas Nevada, yeah, Sisolak's a Democrat. He wants to get reelected. I agree. Um, it is a punt on his part. I agree with that also. Um, but there are huge differences in Nevada with regard to urban versus rural areas, much more in all these other, than in a lot of these other states. So I, I think it makes more sense there to have it on a county level than it would in some other places. That, that's, that's kind of my thought on that. Um, but I mean, look at Newsom, you know, once he realized the recall election was going to go, he couldn't open up fast enough. Yeah, I know. You know? I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, same thing. It, it's, it's, it, it's a shame that politics has been as interjected into it as it has, but what do you expect? This is America in 2021. So here we are. You, you know what I was talking about with somebody uh, yesterday about the whole mask thing? I said, and I know this is not going to be, uh, this can be heresy in some communities to say, but I think in the long view of history of these years, once uh, enough time has passed to where it's not uh, politicized anymore, to where there's no longer uh, much judgment about what was done, like say in the year 2050, when we're so far off from it that uh, it's not going to matter of which side was right at that point. I think that they're going to look back and say that the cleaning was a mistake, that it was just something that was useless. I think they're going to say that the social distancing indoors was a mistake and was mostly useless or completely useless. And I think that the masking will be believed to have been a mistake because the cloth masks don't do much good. But what I did say... I agree, I agree with you. Go ahead, sorry. What I did say to the person I was discussing it with, because they said to me, well, yeah, I agree with you, but that's why I bought uh, N95 and KN95 masks, and that's why we do wear those around. And I said, you know what? That's a good point. How come in all this time there wasn't a major effort to step up production of N95 and KN95 masks and push those being worn? Because that would actually bring well, some because, value. Well, because it's about compliance and not about safety. It is about compliance. Yeah. In my opinion, I know that's an unpopular take too, with you know a segment of your your listenership. But uh, and there's actually some current evidence to support this. So there are still hot spot, hot spots that flare up in various places. Where have the recent hot spots been? The Northeast, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Michigan, other places in the Upper Midwest like Minnesota, and now the latest hot spot is the Pacific Northwest, Washington and Oregon. What do all those states have in common? Those are all blue states with heavier restrictions than the rest of the country. And yet those are the hotspots. The place was with the strictest mask mandates. Uh, why is that? I, I think what's going on here is I think that uh, they just haven't been effective at all. And it's just kind of random of when, 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 when it hits certain areas versus others. And that, uh, so that's the whole point. We haven't seen evidence that uh, places with mask mandates or even mask compliance where people are wearing them is making any kind of dif- difference 
in the COVID transmission rates. And that's, uh, I, I think it's just one of these things that feels like it's safe and you kind of got conditioned into believing it, but it's really not doing very much at all. And, uh, and so, and, but then I wondered, like, why not just, like, maybe they were kind of on the right track if we had the right kind of mask. And I understand right when this all happened last year, we didn't have them on hand. We couldn't just snap our fingers and have 330 million masks uh, that are KN95 or N95 available. But we've had a long time, and these are still not easy to get. So I, I thought if they were going to push masking, that's what they should have done. They should have just admitted that that's the masks that we need. We don't have enough at the moment. We're going to manufacture them very quickly. We're going to throw a lot of money at manufacturing them very quickly. And, uh, and, and then we're going to get them out to people. We'll make them free of charge, make them where you can go to a distribution center and get them, whatever. Uh, or you can get it by mail, whatever it's got to be done. And, and then encourage people to wear those masks. And at least there, I know there would have been still some people objecting to it. But I would have said, okay, well, this seems to follow the science. But this, this just seems to be and, – and there's so many people – like I – it's mind-boggling. I'll read things online of, uh, oh, Trump killed 500,000 people by not having people wear masks. And I'll say, no, no. <laughs> Not true. Not true. It's it's so sad that this is being pushed out here. This isn't a defense of Trump. This is just saying that uh, I, I just want the truth out. If if Trump really had caused that, he, if he, if Trump's not pushing the masking enough really did cause people a lot of people to die, I would say so. But uh, and I had a lot of problems I, with some I things mean, Trump did at the end of his term. But uh, this this is not well, one of them. I, I do too. I'm with you on that. But even on a more basic level, also 500,000 people have not died of COVID. 500,000 people have died with COVID. Not all of those deaths were from COVID. But, yeah. but the, the guidance is so loose that pretty much anything can be considered a COVID death just as long as they had it at the time that they passed. It could be a totally, something totally unrelated, and yet those are getting labeled as COVID deaths. We know that. I, I still think the, so, the, the vast majority of them were... Um, if they had these people, if they had not caught COVID, would not have died then. Though there probably were some on the brink of death that may have died uh, within weeks or months anyway. That uh, were just kind of pushed over the edge by COVID. So where yes, it was technically a COVID death, but it really didn't cut uh, someone's life all that short. I think because a lot of them were very very old and very bad bad shape to where they were going to die very soon. And there was some percentage that died of something else and happened to have COVID at the same time. Of course, there's going to be that with, with that many people who, who died. And um, so I, I can see where there's some of that. I, I am of the belief that most of those 500,000, whatever, were actual COVID deaths. But uh, the, the, the point is here that I just, I don't want any politics in any of this. And there has been, and I just, it was, that's what's been the most disappointing. And we still see it. That's why I'm, I'm talking about this right now with, with the Clark County guidance is that uh, it's too much of how do we look? How does it feel? How does this appear to the population? Not what makes most sense? Because the, there, there should be two factors that are used to determine what these rules are. Number one, the economy. And number two, safety. And it's a trade-off. The, the most safe you can be is if you just make everyone stay home and never go anywhere. And then the, uh, the, the best for the economy is just let everybody do anything with no restriction. And so if you want somewhere in the middle of that, then you have to find the right sweet spot where you're giving up not that much safety 
and improving the economy and the freedom a lot. And that's that's where you well, need to and find in, it. And in fairness, I think in fairness, I think that's what the Clark County Commission is trying to do. Um, I, I don't think this is a poorly intentioned document that they put out. I, I think in their minds, they think they're doing the best that they can. And, and you have to admit, they are in a really, really tough spot. Um, but uh, I, so yeah, I, I think they're trying to find this middle ground that I think is prioritizing the economy which is fine. I have no problem with that. But like you said earlier, if they're going to prioritize the economy, just prioritize it all the way. Instead of, you know, having these half-assed measures and restrictions that we know are not going to make a damn bit of difference. Yeah, I I agree. And, uh, you know, I I think that it may not be badly intentioned. Like the thing is, the people writing this document may really believe everything they're writing it, that they are really coming up with good safety measures, and they're just oh, they wrong. Oh, they don't believe it. I guarantee, I guarantee they don't believe it. Well, they then it's, then it's not a well-intentioned it's document. It's, it's actually not if well-intentioned, they then, if they, if they know it's not true. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they just they have to put something out that makes that tries to make both sides happy, and this is the best they've got. Okay, so be it. You know, just come out and say so. We're, we're trying to make everybody happy here. But I don't, yeah, I don't even know because there's, there's so much incorrect information out there, especially from supposedly reliable sources about COVID, that that's uh, because it's been so politicized. It wouldn't surprise me if the people writing this document really just thought that they're doing the correct thing. They thought that they're doing this based upon the science here when they're not. So that's uh, it, it really and, could and, be and an and honest fairness, mistake. You know, and in fairness, Trump had a lot to do with that, you know, with how he uh, – I, I do not think that – you know, I, I'm, I, I think you and I are about identical – in our political leanings, but I do not think he did a good job on this. And I, I think that will be a serious stain on his legacy. And I do think Donald Trump is responsible for a lot of the politicizing of this, uh, you know, causing an equal and opposite overreaction from the other side. And that's a lot of, that's a lot of the reason why we are where we are today. Uh, I, he, his messaging definitely wasn't good with this. And, and yeah, there, there was definitely some mistakes that he made like along those lines and, and he did politicize it too. Uh, I, I still think the media is more at fault for this with, uh, it, because they used it as an opportunity to try to hammer him over the head with it and beat him in the 2020 election. And it worked. He he was the clear favorite in January 2020 to be reelected, and he lost, and it wasn't even super close. But so I guess I guess they got done what they were trying to get done but uh but now he's gone there's they can't even say anymore that they're doing this to be trump <laughs> he's he's out but uh we're, we're still seeing a lot and there's, there's a lot of people who really just don't understand it most people don't understand it and it's because well, they've well, been given the wrong information the media backed itself into a corner uh, because now you know they can't they can't just go and change their messaging now uh, you know their their messaging was you know trump bad trump bad COVID bad, COVID terrible, COVID the worst thing ever. And now that Trump's gone, which was, I agree with you, was the initial intent, they can't, they can't really back off that message. They, they, yeah. They've boxed themselves into a corner, in my opinion. Yeah. The whole thing's really too bad. Like, I just, uh, this was such a serious matter. And as you guys saw, um, even though I, I, I don't make any denials that I'm on the right. But as you guys saw, I took COVID very seriously, personally. I didn't go back out into the world until yesterday. Yesterday was my first foray back out into normal life, 13 days after I was fully vaccinated with a second shot. So 
so I took COVID very seriously as a threat to my health. And so I, I was never a COVID denier. In fact, I was one of the earlier people taking this very seriously. But at the same time, I wanted to take this seriously based upon the truth, not just based upon what felt right or what, or so I could shout, I'm following the science in people's faces. I wanted to do what was actually correct. And I wanted to take the precautions that meant something and not take the precautions which didn't mean anything. Like when I went out hiking, I wouldn't wear a mask. I didn't care what anyone said or said I had to do or the regulations were or the way people would look at me. I said, I'm not doing this. This is dumb. I don't need a mask outside hiking. I'm not going to do it. It's uncomfortable. I'm just not doing it. But yet I was very careful with COVID. So um, anyway, that's, uh, we could go on with this all day. But uh, um, I, I'm very interested to hear your report once you uh, travel the state of Nevada. I, I'm going to be traveling the state of Colorado in a similar fashion in uh, the summer. So I will give you guys a report of that. Yeah, I, I, I saw you put the, uh, the Glenwood Canyon part of I-70 on your itinerary. You will not regret that. It, it, is, it is absolutely stunning. Yeah, it should be very interesting. Thank th- and thanks for the suggestion. Thanks to everybody who posted in that thread in the Colorado. Uh, I, I created a thread on the forum asking for some advice about Colorado because other than Colorado Springs, I haven't been to Colorado uh, since uh, the mid-'80s when I was a kid. So I remembered some of it, but as far as planning a trip as an adult, I needed some help, and uh, people gave a lot of good suggestions. And uh, so I put together something. And uh, I'll let everybody know what I see there and what I have experienced regarding COVID there. Though this will be the summer, so maybe some things will change by then. But uh, I, I do look forward to your trip report. And uh, thank you for the call. Always uh, always good uh, hearing from you. You always uh, bring a lot of good points here to the show when you call in, so I appreciate that. All right, Jeff. Good to talk to you, man. Take okay. care. Thank you. You too. Bye. So that was Go Buckos from the forum, also a radio listener. And I always enjoy his calls. Okay, so uh, compl- concluding this whole thing, I think we've said most of what needs to be said here. But as far as what I would suggest for you, if you go to Vegas, you know what what you do and what is deemed safe from the county sh- should be two different things. You shouldn't listen to the county or what they feel is safe, because there's a lot of factors determining that. There's politics, there's economics. You should determine for yourself what is safe. Even though I'm fully vaccinated, I really wouldn't want to go into a nightclub at this point with a lot of people in there. And it's not going to impress me if people are sitting apart at tables. That's not going to help. If there's like a lot of people in a nightclub, I wouldn't feel very comfortable in one. At the same time, uh, I would eat in a restaurant. I would prefer to eat outside than inside still, even fully vaccinated, but I I wouldn't refuse to eat in a restaurant. In fact, uh, I'm probably going to go to a restaurant soon here locally just because I haven't been to one in so long, and I'd like to. And in fact, I think right now is safer than down the line when maybe some variant will show up that will get past the vaccine. The longer time that passes, the higher chance that one of those will show up. It may never happen, but if it is going to happen, it's more likely to happen down the line than right now. Because right now they're vaccinating against uh, the, the current form of COVID. So right now is the time to do it. I think 
places that are indoors with a ton of people crammed in there where there's like a high person to space ratio in there and just a lot of people in general. I think that that's something which you may want to avoid, even if you've been vaccinated. I'm not saying it's super dangerous. I'm saying that that's where you should pause and say, do I want to do this? Anything outdoors? Feel free. Go ahead. Just I, it, There shouldn't be any restrictions. Maybe they should say, hey, nobody get like right in each other's faces. But aside from that, I think that it should pretty much just be a free-for-all. Just whatever. Do what you want. Anything outdoors should be that way. I think once you're fully vaccinated, for the most part, you should just return to normal life. And these restrictions are kind of stupid, to be honest, now that anybody can get a vaccine if they want it. There's a certain percentage of the population that is choosing not to get vaccinated, and they are choosing their own fate. I'm not part of that population. I got vaccinated, and that was my plan the whole way. I think that's a smart thing to do. I think you should not politicize that either, and I'm talking to people on the right here. If you're on the right and you don't want to get vaccinated, I think you're making a mistake. I think you're making the same mistake as those on the left who are married to masking and, and bashing Trump over COVID and, and blaming him for 500,000 deaths. When you hear those people and the people who are shutting down beaches and parks, you, you may laugh at them and rightfully so, but if you're not getting vaccinated because your other right-wing friends aren't getting vaccinated, you're, you're making a mistake. I'm telling you that. It's the right thing to do. If you want to really follow the science, not, not the left-wing science, but the actual science, you should get vaccinated. That's why I got vaccinated. It's safest for me as someone who's 49 years old. But I think once you are vaccinated, you should mostly return to normal life. And I think that policy should be written around whether everybody has the ability to get vaccinated. And if the answer is yes, then you should write policy as if people are vaccinated. Because those that didn't are choosing not to. And they're choosing their own fate. And that's the way they should do it. Now, Clark County, if you guys like to get a hold of me and have me rewrite your document, I'll be happy to. I'll write a much better document for you. I'm not kidding here. I mean, I don't think they're going to get a hold of me. But if they gave me this job, I would do a much better job coming up with these policies than they would. I'm not great at everything. There's some things I suck at. There's some things where I have no ability. But uh, something like this, I could do a far better job than they did. Okay, moving on. I want to talk about Vital Vegas and the latest rumor that he is bringing forth regarding the fate of a hotel in Las Vegas. Vital Vegas is a one-man operation. It is run by a guy named Scott Robin. He's in his late 50s. He is a Vegas resident. He has a pretty big following on Twitter at Vital Vegas. He had me blocked for a while over something stupid, but we got over that. I'm unblocked now. We get along okay now. I get along with his girlfriend. Like everything, so like you know, it's, it's 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 all better. We may even have him on this show. He does have a lot of people coming to him, bringing him rumors because he's well known as someone you go to who will publish this sort of thing. So 
I will get people bringing stuff to me. But he has a bigger audience than I do because he has a very big Twitter following. He doesn't do a show like this, but he has a Twitter following and he has a website. And he has a lot of people to follow him. So there's people around Vegas that will hear things and bring things to him, often anonymously, or at least off the record to where he can publish it but can't name them. And sometimes he'll hear false rumors and publish things that aren't true. And sometimes he'll publish something that is correct and way ahead of any other media publishing it. And you've kind of got to read it and figure it out for yourself. And sometimes there's no way to figure it out. And sometimes what is appearing to happen at that point doesn't happen. Like with the Sahara, he got sued over this, but he said the Sahara was going to close by September and it did not. It's still open. But they were making motions to close. They were hiring liquidators to go take a look at the place and, and get bids. They were very close to doing it, but for whatever reason, they didn't do it. So he ended up being ultimately incorrect by saying the Sahara is going to close by September, but he did it based upon actual good information. It's just the circumstance must have changed in some way. So sometimes there'll be things like that, where he gets a correct rumor, but then circumstances change. And by the time anyone hears about it, the whole story has changed and you never get to see the evidence of what he said in the first place. So it's a mixture of those things. So it's interesting to read the news he brings and the rumors he brings. Uh, You have to take it all with a grain of salt. I don't believe he ever intentionally puts out false information. I do believe that he just hammers the rumors out there that are given to him, and uh, sometimes he's given bad info. That's going to happen. This is what he wrote about the Palms, though, which is what this segment's about. The title of his segment on uh, Vital Vegas is Palms Casino Sold to San Manuel Band of Mission Indians. He wrote, as we reported days ago, Palms Casino has reportedly been sold. Now we can share who's buying. The San Manuel Band of Mission Indians. San Manuel runs a wildly successful casino in Southern California, but this is the first time the tribe has undertaken a venture in Las Vegas. The scoop hasn't officially been confirmed, but you know it will be soon. While this purchase may come as a surprise to many, San Manuel did a pretty good job of telegraphing their intention to get into the Las Vegas market. The tribe has advertised extensively in Las Vegas, including on digital billboards at the T-Mobile Stadium during the Vegas Golden Knights games. While it didn't get nearly the media coverage it deserved, San Manuel also donated $250,000 to Las Vegas nonprofits during the pandemic. The nonprofits include Shade Tree Make-A-Wish, Nevada Public Radio, and the Smith Center. San Manuel also donated $9 million to UNLV's hospitality and law schools to expand tribal gaming and hospitality studies. San Manuel is also a founding partner of the Las Vegas Raiders. For anyone paying attention, it was pretty clear San Manuel was coming to Las Vegas. Now you know where. Fun fact, the CEO of San Manuel, Lawrence Voslu, was formerly the executive director of finance for Las Vegas Sands Corporation, which owned the Venetian. Voslu graduated with dual Bachelor of Science degrees from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas in accounting and management and earned his CPA license in Nevada. 
Palms never reopened after the mandatory casino closure on May 18, March 18, 2020. The casino struggled following an expansive overhaul and suffered serious losses with its doomed nightclub, day club chaos. We trust San Manuel won't make the same missteps as the former owner. All due respect to Cardi B and her 15-minute $300,000 shows. I didn't even know those existed. We're just relieved the buyer of the Palms isn't an REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust, or Investment Fund. New blood, please. He's saying that a lot of times what these buyers are is just uh, the same thing over and over. They say, oh, such and such place got sold. And what's really happening is it's just uh, they're spinning off the existing company to become one company that buys the real estate, the other company that operates the place. So he's saying he's happy it's a real sale. San Manuel's purchase of Palms is one of several moves by tribes in Las Vegas. Mohegan Sun currently runs the casino at Virgin Las Vegas, and we've shared the rumor that the Seminoles are expected to purchase Bally's. I didn't know about that. That's interesting. Details of the Palms purchase aren't available yet, but we wanted to drop some boom anyway. More to come. And then there is an update. Update 43021. It's a few days ago. As promised, we've got updates up the Yang. We're hearing the sale price of Palms to San Manuel is in the neighborhood of $660 million. That would mean... A $340 million loss for station casinos given their $1 billion investment. The Palm Sale deal with San Manuel is expected to close in about 90 days. We understand San Manuel plans to reopen Palms as quickly as possible after the sale is finalized, and the resort will keep the Palms name, which makes sense since it's still strong, a strong recognized brand. A Palms job fair in the coming weeks is anticipated. Early plans do not include a splashy day club or nightclub scene or expensive headliner entertainment, avoiding some pitfalls of prior ownership. We assume none of the existing restaurant partnerships, such as with Michael Simon at Mabel's, would survive the change in ownership, but appears discussions are being had to carry certain venues over. The timing of the reopening of Palms is not only contingent upon staffing up, but San Manuel currently doesn't have a Nevada gaming license. We understand the license approval will be fast-tracked, but it's unknown whether that will be finalized or when that will be finalized. Check back again for all the exclusive scoop about Palms Casino, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so, interesting. How much do I believe of this? I think he's probably right. That's just my gut feeling here. I have nothing to back that up, but I think he's probably right. I think San Manuel did buy it. I think he got an early scoop on this. The sale price of $660 million seems high to me. Here's the problem with Palms. Palms is a has-been. When Palms first opened, the criticism was, it's not on the Strip. It's got a bad location. Too far from the Strip. You can't really walk to it. I mean, you can, but it's too much of a walk for what most people would want. It's just not in the place where the high-profile casinos of Las Vegas were and still are. Like, it's just out there. And it wasn't opening to be a locals casino. I mean, yes, it served locals as well, and it served locals more than strip casinos do. Like I'm talking when I say served, I mean it was aimed somewhat at locals, but it was aimed primarily at tourists. It was not something like uh, the other station casinos that are, are around Las Vegas. There's a lot of Vegas casinos that are really aimed at locals. Palms was not that. Palms was really aimed at tourists, and there was a lot of criticism of their location and that it was never going to work out. Well, they made it work out for a while because they successfully captured a vibe of being young and hip. 
And that's where all the young, good-looking, cool people went. And you'd see that when you go to the Palms back in the day. Not, I'm not talking about recently. I'm not talking about the last few years. I'm not talking about the last five years. But I'm talking about back in the late 2000s, the mid-2000s, the early 2000s. I'm talking about in those days, that was the cool place to go for that crowd. And for that reason, people would venture off the strip to go to it. And they had a viable business for that reason. And they were able to make good money. What killed the Palms, they opened in uh, 2001, the end of 2001. What killed the Palms was the opening of the Cosmo. The Cosmopolitan basically took their entire vibe and did it better. And they had a better location, and it was a newer hotel, and it was a nicer hotel. Just It was a better version of the Palms in every way. There was nothing the Palms brought to the table that the Cosmo didn't do better. So people said, all right. It's a has-been. We don't need it anymore. And they stopped, they stopped going. That's never going to come back. It's not like the wind's going to change and people are going to go, you know what? The Cosmos kind of old hat. Let's go back to the Palms. That's not going to happen. Now, it's possible that the Cosmo will lose that vibe one day, especially as it gets older. Though it's not that new anymore. The Cosmo's over 10 years old now. It opened at the end of 2010. It's possible the Cosmo will lose that vibe too. It's possible... It won't be the hot thing with the young, hip crowd anymore in Vegas. But it's not going back to the Palms. The Palms had it and lost it, and it's never coming back. It's not so much the Palms' fault that this happened. It just happened that a better version of them opened up on the Strip, and they lost it. That's what happens in the free market. You do something, you have a certain market, and competition opens, it does it better than you can, and you're out. So the problem is, you can buy a place like the Palms, and you can look at mistakes the previous owner made, and you can try to do some things better, but you're never going to bring back what it had if that's already gone and can't come back, no matter who the ownership is. Let me compare it to MySpace. Do you think MySpace can ever be revived? I mean, it's still there, but like nobody's on it. Do you think no matter who the owner of MySpace is, it will ever become a popular social media site again? No. It is a relic of the 2000s that nobody wants to go to anymore. So MySpace, no matter who owns it, and believe me, it went through a few different ownerships that, that thought that maybe they could revive it. But no, once it lost its cool... Once people didn't want to be there anymore, once people moved on to greener pastures online, to other social media sites, I know they were the original social media, they were original big social media, but then they lost it and they're never going to be it again. They can't get that back. So the Palms are the same way. They can't get it back. Now, Vital Vegas is mentioning that they're not even trying that right now, that it seems like San Manuel is not even trying to start a nightclub and day club scene. Well, okay. But there's a problem. Then what is the scene? Why do you buy it? What are you going to do with it? It's still a big hotel casino with a bad location off strip. So if it's not that, which I agree is kind of hard to do given the competition now, what are you going to be? 
it's just something that isn't that viable anymore. I think all it can really be in the best case scenario is competition for the local market. So they can try to compete with like the Red Rock. It's not that close to the Red Rock, but the Red Rock is a semi-high-end local casino. It's a nice, a fairly nice place. Not super nice, not super luxurious, but it's a nice, clean, kind of mid-range, maybe middle-upper range casino hotel that's aimed at locals instead of tourists. Tourists can stay there, but it's not aimed at them. That's what the Red Rock is. It's trying to get locals down there who are turned off by the trashier, old, or run-down vibe of many locals' casinos. And it does pretty well. So maybe this could be going for that market, except for people who live in that area rather than by the Red Rock. As I said, they're not that close to each other. So yeah, I'm not saying it can't make money, but that's about the best it can be. I don't see how the Palms is ever going to attract a lot of tourists. Because they have to come up with something that the Strip isn't doing. And I don't know what they can come up with that would be there that wouldn't be on the Strip. And the truth is, if they even come up with something, then guess what's going to happen? Someone on the Strip will do it too and do it better. (laughs) Then what do you do? So I don't know what they think they're doing. I think this is a dumb purchase. They can say, oh, well, you know, look, look, we got a good deal because uh, the station casinos, they invested a billion dollars and we're getting it for 660. Well, that doesn't matter. Station casino could have invested uh, $5 billion. If the, if the place isn't going to generate much profit, then why bother? I mean, they've got that issue in Atlantic City with the old Revel, where that was a very expensive property and it failed. And then it's not just a matter of whether someone else could buy it and uh, how much they're going to pay for it, but can it be run profitably? And I'm wondering if it can be. It's currently the Ocean Casino Resort, the former Revel. It's not just about buying something and getting a good deal on the property itself. It's also about can you run it profitably? And if you can't run it profitably, you can't run it profitably. And if that's the case... There's no way to run it profitably. The only point of buying and getting a good deal is then reselling it. Otherwise, you've bought something that's a money pit. So I'm afraid the Palms is something that just isn't really viable in the 2020s and never will be again. Because it has the major weakness of location that's not going to be going away. It's not like the action in Las Vegas is moving that direction. Yeah, there was one time that the strip was considered away from the action. That the action was all downtown. As many years ago, but at at one point, if you were staying on the strip, you were staying away from where most stuff in Vegas was happening. Well, that's not the case anymore. Downtown has its own little scene, but when you think of Vegas, you think the strip now. You think Center Strip. So it's not like it's moving that direction and eventually Palms will be in the center of the action. It's it's not moving there. Like it's it's just never going to come there. So Palms is just next to the Rio, which is not even going to be a casino anymore very soon. And it's by the Gold Coast. It, it's it's going to buy 
locals casinos and residential areas of Vegas and commercial areas of Vegas. That's really where it is. It's not super far from the Strip, but it's too far from anyone to walk to or really think about going to unless there's a real reason to go there. So for some time, for most of the 2000s, Palms was successfully getting people to come down. After that, people had no interest. Think about it. When you go to Vegas, do you ever think of going to the Palms anymore? I bet you did in the 2000s. I bet you checked it out in the 2000s. I bet you saw some appeal of it in the 2000s. After 2010, after late 2010 when the Cosmo opened, how much in the 2010s did you think of going to the Palms? Or did you at all? Compare your interest of going to the Palms in the 2010s versus your interest in going there in the 2000s. Even if you weren't into the whole like nightclub scene, which I never was. But I'll tell you, I had much more of an interest to go there in the 2000s than the 2010s. I went there a lot more in the 2000s than in the 2010s. It's been several years since I've been there. Even though I've been right across the street at the Rio for weeks at a time. I don't think it's a smart purchase. Also, I don't like the Indian casinos nosing their way into Las Vegas for the reasons I stated before. I don't like the way they run things. I don't like how they think it's their way or the highway. I don't like how they believe they're kings of their own castle. Now, they can't be kings of their own castle. They have to answer to Nevada Gaming in Las Vegas. They can't do it the same way they run it in their own casinos on their own land. And that's going to be an adjustment for them too. But you also end up with these weird customer hostile policies that don't fly in Vegas, like what's currently happening over there at Virgin and the Mohegan Sun. That the weirdness about charging people for comp rooms if they didn't play enough, which is very anti-Vegas. Very not part of the current Vegas culture. The weirdness with uh, not allowing outside food or drink until finally backing off that policy. And yeah, I know that was a policy that existed at the Hard Rock, but the bottom line was they were going to continue it until that got backlash for it. And they still have the policy about the comps. I mean, that's a crazy thing because that makes comps not comps. If you have to earn your comps while you're there, then you're not there on a comp. You're there on nothing. And you're going to pay for it unless you earn not to pay for it. But you can do that without a comp. So a comp isn't a comp then. So I don't like the Indian casinos coming to Vegas. They bring just a general customer hostility. A general, we do whatever the hell we want and we don't give a shit what you think. They bring that attitude into Vegas and that's not good for Vegas. I don't like to see this. You may say, well, yeah, but they're running a pretty successful operation out there in California. Yeah, they are. But that's because in California, the option is to go to something like that or to drive pretty far to a casino. So sure. Sure, they can succeed in California because there's not that much competition. But Vegas is a different story. Tons of competition there. Just because they're running a casino that's profitable in California, that doesn't mean that uh, they're going to come to Vegas and do a good job. We'll see uh, when the announcement is for that sale. I think it's a correct story. I think Vital Vegas has got it right. 
But we shall see. In case you're wondering where the San Manuel Casino is in Southern California, it is by San Bernardino. It's northeast of San Bernardino. It's kind of by the city of Highland. If you are driving to Big Bear, you're pretty close to San Manuel at one point because uh, the way you go to Big Bear for the most part from Southern California is you go east on the 210, either the 10 or the 210 and end up on the 210. And then you get on this uh, 330 and wind up into the mountains. And that's in Highland, you join the 330. Well, right before you get on the 330, right before the 210 starts heading south, if you get off on Victoria Avenue and go north a little bit, then you will get to the San Manuel Casino, which is part of their reservation. So it's convenient, I guess, if you're on the way to Big Bear, which is a mountain resort in Southern California. Or Lake Arrowhead, same thing. It's in the same area. If you're driving to Vegas, though I'm not sure why you'd want to stop there if you're on the way to Vegas anyway. It's a little out of the way, but not that far. If you're driving to Vegas from L.A., where if you get to where the 15 and 210 meet, if instead of continuing north, if you just keep going east on the 210, then it's not all that far to get to San Manuel. I've never been there. I really don't like these Indian casinos. Even when an advantage play comes up, you never know when they're going to screw you for it because they can screw you if they want. There's no recourse. This is what I have to say to Vital Vegas. He may be happy that an REIT is not buying the palms. I'd be happier to see that than an Indian tribe buying the palms. I don't think they're going to turn it around. I think this is going to be a big loser for them. I think it's going to lose money, and I think they're going to let it go. I think they're going to sell it. I think they're going to sell it at a loss, and I think they're going to rue the day that they made this deal. That's my prediction. I just can't see how the Palms ever become something that a lot of people want to go to. I think what they're probably believing is, hey, the, the previous ownership was spending too much. The, the previous ownership was trying too hard to make this a high-end property with high expenditures and needing high income to support it. We're going to ro- run a lower-budget operation. But I, I don't think it's going to work. just don't think it's going to work. Okay, well, here's something that didn't work. And that was the Players Casino in Ventura during COVID. Ventura is a city in Southern California between Los Angeles and Santa Barbara. Ventura County is also a county between Los Angeles County and Santa Barbara County, where Ventura is the county seat. The Players Casino was the only card room in Ventura County, to my knowledge. And it's been there for a while. Not a super long time. I don't exactly remember when it opened, but it's it's been there for a while, and it's been supporting itself and doing well enough. It's a small place. It's not like another Commerce or even another uh, Hollywood Park or anything like that. It's not even like the size of the Hustler. This is... A smaller card room. It's just a card room. It's not a casino or anything. 
It's not an Indian casino. It's just a card room that's run in a normal California city. The people that went to the Players Club, for the most part, were people who lived in Ventura County because this was a place they could go to play poker without having to drive to all the L.A. area card rooms, which not only is far, but you'd be battling out of traffic. That's a a big complaint people have who live in Ventura County who want to play poker is that it's, it's a big drive, like 50 miles or more, to get to the various L.A. card rooms, and if you end up having to leave during times of traffic, like if you want to leave the card room at 5 p.m. on a weekday or 7 a.m. on a weekday after staying up all night there, then it's, it's a nightmare getting back because of all the L.A. area traffic. So people have their own local card room there if they lived in Ventura County. And it didn't need a massive number of people coming there to support it because it was small. It was a, it was a small property and uh, it just needed consistent activity at the tables they ran. I've been there before. I'll explain my forays to the Players Casino and why I went there. It was not a high limit room by any means. It was all lower limit games. There's basically no high limit action there. It did have a restaurant attached to it, like a real restaurant. Not a high-end restaurant, but a restaurant nonetheless. And it, it had its niche following. There's some people that enjoyed it because not only was it kind of a local room, but it, it was small. It was more low-key. It didn't have all the craziness of commerce or some of these other big L.A. area rooms. Ventura is about uh, 30 miles southeast of Santa Barbara in the direction of Las Vegas, of, not Las Vegas, of uh, Los Angeles. So it's closer to Santa Barbara than Los Angeles, but people in Santa Barbara, a lot of them go to Chumash, which is an Indian casino, which last I checked had a poker room. And it's a little far to drive all the way from Santa Barbara for 30 miles each way just to go to a small room. Like, I think if Commerce was located in Ventura, you'd get a lot of Santa Barbara people coming there because it's a huge room. But for just a little locals room, I think 30 miles would be kind of a drive. But as I said, Ventura County had enough people to support this small room. I went there in 2018 and only in 2018, in the later part of 2018. If you remember, if you listened to the show in 2018, I'm sure you did. The show disappeared in August of 2018 because I came down with some very bad, some very severe psychological issues with anxiety and depression. It was related to a physical problem. If you remember, it wasn't related to anything going on in my life. But there was a physical problem that caused a uh, chemical disorder in my brain that caused very, very severe depression and anxiety very quickly. Like within days, went from normal to just horrible within days. And it was very difficult to function, even the most basic of things. And life was very bad for some time. And one of the things I did was I stopped playing poker. There's no way I could handle playing poker at that point. As I started to see a little bit of improvement in October of 2018... I wanted to try to do my first thing in normal life again. 
remember, of course, there was no pandemic then, but I was having my own problems. So I wanted to try to return to play poker and see how it would work out. I was no, by no means better at that point. I was still, uh, still had a lot of improving to do. But Eric Benzamokin, he was a fan of the Players Casino. He didn't live close to it. He didn't live in Ventura County. But uh, he, he liked the Players Casino. It's kind of, it was more low-key. He kind of enjoyed it. And he went there sometimes. That wasn't the only place he went to play poker, but uh, he'd go there every so often. And he said to me that he was going to go, and he invited me to come along. And I said, I don't know. I don't know if I want to go anywhere. I haven't really been anywhere, done anything. I can't do anything the way I am. And he kept trying to encourage me to come out and try. And finally, one day, I said, you know what? I will try. This is the first time in two months I try to do anything. So I, I went with him to the Players Club. And I thought it was actually a good idea because if I was ever going to go back to commerce, like I, I want to jump feet first into something like commerce, which is a very stressful and loud environment. I needed to start with something low key and work my way back up to commerce. When I say work my way up, I don't mean financially or poker ability wise. I mean, atmosphere wise because of what I was going through. So this is kind of a middle ground between doing nothing and going to a crazy place like commerce. So I went with him, and it actually worked out. That was actually a good decision. I wasn't perfect there. A few times I had to step out and take a little break. A few times I had to kind of talk myself into not freaking out while I was there. But I got through it, and for the most part, I felt okay. I didn't feel normal completely, or even close to it completely. But it was, uh, it was a good first step, I shall say. And I actually had fun. Was, they had this uh, deep-stacked 1-2, half-PLO, half-big-O game that I was playing there. I didn't want to play No Limit Hold, and it was just boring. You know, I wanted to play something more interesting. You know, it wasn't high stakes by any means, but it was a lot bigger than a typical 1-2 game because the stacks were very deep. And you know how there can be action in PLO and big-O. So I did that. And then I, I actually went, uh, I think, two more t- two more times after that. And uh, each time I was better than before. As I said, I started just as a little improvement started showing up. And then uh, by the time I went like the third time, like the third and final time, I was a good deal better. And by then I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go to commerce. And I went to commerce and I was fine. So at least I have some good memories from the Players Casino. I won a little bit of money overall there. Nothing that exciting, but... That was kind of my introduction back into playing in live card rooms after I went what I went through in mid to late 2018. But after that, I had no use for it anymore because uh, it didn't spread the games I wanted to play. It didn't spread the limits I wanted. It's almost like a baseball player who is used to playing in Major League Baseball who's been injured for a while and then needs to go to the minors for a little bit of time to rehab and get used to playing again before returning to the Major League Club. That's something that really happens. So this is kind of my minor leagues was the Players Club. The Players Club has closed and has filed for bankruptcy. And in fact, they have completely moved out of their location. So it's, it's not a matter of if they leave. They're gone. They're gone. They have left the building. 
However, they are still licensed. They actually still have an active and valid license to operate a card room in the city of Ventura. So if they take a lease elsewhere, if they move to a different location in Ventura, they could open up tomorrow if they wanted because they have a a valid license and the license is for anywhere in the city of Ventura. They don't have to be at that specific location. So they could end up somewhere else. But the reason that the Players Casino closed is pretty obvious. COVID. They were not allowed to even be open. And that killed them. They say that they cannot even bother right now to open because right now they are only allowed by law to have 25% capacity. At a small room like that, they can't operate that way. 25% of something very small is tiny. So they cannot maintain a staff and operate that room with 25% of it full. It's just too small of a place. So they, they're not even bothering. It's like, th- think of a restaurant that has eight tables. I'm not talking about their restaurant. I'm saying like, th- think of just a freestanding restaurant that has eight tables, a very small restaurant, and they're told that they can have two tables. Well, the restaurant's not going to open with two tables. And let's say they can't do takeout. Let's take that out of the factor. Like they wouldn't do it because two tables is just not enough to have it worth operating a restaurant. There's expenses in operating. So same thing here. They just the place is too small to have twenty five percent capacity and be profitable. So they said, okay, we we not only lost our ass over the last year, but we can't even reopen and make money now that people want to come back and play because we're not allowed to have more than twenty five percent capacity by law, and we don't see that changing really soon. So f it, we're declaring bankruptcy. We're moving out. We're gone. But they did leave the door open that they could possibly return. They're not out of the business necessarily. They're not giving up. They're saying that they have to declare bankruptcy right now. And they have to move out right now. And the way it currently stands in Ventura, they cannot run profitably. But maybe sometime soon, they'll be able to take another shot at this. They're not saying they will. They're saying they might. Now, the city of Ventura took a hit from this. They have a 120 million dollar annual budget and because they are no longer collecting the tax on the rake at this player's casino which is the reason ventura allowed it in the first place it's the only casino there but uh, because they can no longer collect that they are out one million dollars they're actually out more than that they're out Two million dollars. Two million dollars of the hundred twenty million dollar budget in Ventura came from the Players Club and the tax on the rake. Well, you may say that two million out of one hundred twenty million is very small. It's less than two percent. But it's still two million dollars. The city had a budget of one twenty million. They had plans to spend one twenty million. And now they're not going to be able to spend $120 million because they only have $118 million. So they've had to adjust their budget and actually cut $2 million out of the budget, which gets a little tough once you've already established it. Had they known this was going to be the budget from the start, that's a different story. But they actually have had to cut this out, assuming that this could be permanent. 
So they can't even say, okay, well, we're going to cut this out for now, but expect in 2022 that we're going to have uh, the $2 million back. No, they, they can't even assume that. It may never come back. So they've actually had to adjust the city budget based upon the revenue. So it's interesting that a small room like that was still kicking $2 million into the state's coffers. Gatito 21, who's both an occasional poster on Poker Fraud Alert, very occasional because it's he's been on Poker Fraud Alert almost uh, seven years on the forum. He's made 14 posts, including the one I'm about to read you. He's mostly a radio listener. And I knew he was from that area because of his area code of 805. But he wrote, I am saddened that the players is closed. I'm hopeful they do indeed reopen. What doesn't make sense is why they need a new location. The current landlord wanted to keep them. I suppose they're trying to get out of paying back rent, but who knows? Any locals know what happened? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I wondered the same thing. If the old location was fine, and if everybody knows where they are, and if the landlord wants them there and is willing to work with them, why, why do they have to leave and go somewhere else? And yeah, the only thing that makes sense is they just don't want to pay the rent. And that's where the bankruptcy probably comes in. They probably owe back rent. They're probably declaring bankruptcy to get out of that. <laughs> and then they can do a fresh start and go elsewhere. I'm not saying they did this intentionally because obviously they uh, were hoping that they could have just operated normally if the pandemic never happened. So it's, they, they weren't going in there looking to screw the landlord. But once the pandemic started and they couldn't bring in any money, they had this whole awkward issue with the landlord, as many businesses did, where they're occupying the space, the landlord expects to be paid, but then they can't bring in any money because they can't operate. They weren't ready to give up and move out. They were hoping the whole thing would pass, and you know it takes a while, still hasn't completely passed, still they can only operate at 25% capacity, and they realize they're going to owe a lot of back rent, and even if they can make a deal with the landlord, it's still too much, so they'd rather just declare bankruptcy and either walk away or start fresh. That's basically what's probably going on. So I think your assumption is correct. If it reopens, I'll let you know. I assume most of you probably haven't been there and probably don't have a desire to go. It's nothing special. But if you're in the area, if you live in the area, and you don't mind playing low limits, it's not super low limits. They have like, a 3-5 no limit that runs sometimes. So, yeah, there can be some big pots there, especially sometimes it can be deep. Even that 1-2 PLO slash big O game that ran there, that was deep. I got in a funny pot there one time where, like, thousands of dollars went in from each person, like three ways. And the way it all shook out, we ended up with, like, we each of us, like, won or lost like $30. It was really weird by the way the pot, the way the pot chopped because we all didn't have the same stacks. Like the, but the way it all came down after, after the different uh, chopping and everything else because the high-low, uh, we all ended up basically breaking even there, which is funny. And and by the way, it, when all that went in was on the turn, so we all had to like hold our breath for the river. <laughs> and then the river basically just refunded everybody's money. It wasn't exactly even, but it's pretty close. Okay, so uh, moving on to the next topic. Then we'll take a break after this next topic. I have an update for you about Rob Gorodetsky, 
who is profiled in USA Today and elsewhere for being supposedly a highly successful sports better, even though he was only in his 20s and seemed to be making millions of dollars in sports betting, even though he admitted that he had little knowledge of the games that he bet on. We talked about him before on this show, and there is little doubt when I covered Rob Gorodetsky that he was a scammer, that he was a liar, and that the money that he got was from somewhere else. There is no chance he won at betting sports. But still, people wondered where did the money come from because he was young, and people wondered what was the true story. There was something going on with a guy that wasn't what he claimed. And it was very clear he was not a winning sports better. But it wasn't clear exactly what it was. Well, here's what happened. Eventually, it was determined that, indeed, he was not a winning sports better. But instead, he stole almost $10 million through a scheme with one victim, a wire fraud scheme, and then was feigning that he was a winning sports better, even to the guy he was scamming. That was some of the, quote, investment. This was a very immature guy who pretended, and I'm not using it as a defense of his. I'm just telling you that that was kind of the way he operated. It was just, there was no way he was going to get away with it. This wasn't even like a genius crime or anything that they caught him. I mean, this was... Uh, he he got interviewed in USA Today, of all things. <laughs> Here he's scamming this guy for $10 million, and he's going on USA Today bragging about uh, how he's this expert sports better, and none of this story made any sense. So it, it was pretty obvious that something shady was going on, or at least, at the very least, lying was going on. Either he was using family money and pretending to be a winner, or he was scamming, and it turned out to be the latter. So... This guy actually had some people fooled. It was interesting because he actually had uh, some celebrities and athletes who stupidly believed that he was a sports betting prodigy and were actually sending him money to bet with. So he wasn't just doing this quietly. He was actually uh, fooling some people who weren't very knowledgeable. Like he didn't fool any people in the sports betting industry. Anyone who observed this guy who had any knowledge of sports betting and how it worked, the guy was completely full of shit and a big phony. But uh, it, it fooled amateurs who were high profile, who then had to distance themselves from him. He actually uh, would walk around town with a cap that said gambler with the E missing for whatever reason, G-A-M-B-L-R. He would walk around in designer clothes, which were super expensive. He had a very, very high-maintenance lifestyle. And the posturing he did was just that he was a natural at sports betting, that he bet at very high stakes, that he ran up the money in the first place by being so good at betting sports. But he didn't have a process that was scientific or math-based or even with any inside information 
on the games. That he just had a feel for what was going to win. He was just this magical, amazing man who, knowing very little about the teams playing, could just psychically determine. He didn't say psychically, but it was almost like that. Just, I know this team's going to win. I'm betting hundreds of thousands on them, and then he'd win. So in 2017, he actually appeared, as I said, in the USA Today, called himself a successful professional gambler, and he talked about how he would win and lose millions of dollars at a time. He called it Big Rob style. <laughs> he also said that he's eventually going to be a billionaire and that he is the number one entity in all of sports betting. <laughs> in reality, he was stealing money from one person, tricking them into believing he was investing the money and using it for winning sports bets and lying about where the money was going and what his results were. When in reality, all he was doing with the money is shooting it off at sports books and casinos and on his designer clothes and his expensive trips. He, uh, he was just losing it all. It all evaporated. The investor believed that uh, they were just investing more and more and making more and more. In fact, he claimed that he was adding his own money to these investments. So this one person who he victimized thought that they were going in with him to make these big investments, that they were both investing their own money, but in reality, he didn't have any money. He was just taking this poor person's money and uh, blowing it. He was never a positive expectation sports better. He was never a winning sports better. He shot it all off. He pled guilty in 2020 to wire fraud. And the sentencing has come down. He has been sentenced to 28 months in federal prison. He actually also filed, he also uh, pled guilty to uh, filing a false tax return. His lawyer didn't deny that he did all this. His lawyer was claiming that he was just delusional, that this wasn't uh, criminal, that he really thought he was investing the money. He really thought he was a winning gambler. He really thought he was a winning investor. He just, he just wasn't good at it. He just incorrectly thought that this was a path to riches and convince someone else. So there's nothing criminal of talking someone into a bad investment. As long as you're honest about everything, there's nothing criminal about saying, hey, I think, uh, I think I could win at the casino. Do you want to back me? Do you have a way to beat the casino? Do you have a mathematical way? No, no, I just, I just go on feeling and I win. Or I bet on sports. I'm going to be a winning sports better. Do you know a lot about the teams? No, I know nothing about them. I just, I, I just know I can beat them. If you get suckers to lend you money, or not lend you, but to invest in you doing this, and you lose it, and you were never positive expectation, that's not against the law. In fact, they'd have a hard time even suing you, provided you were honest about it, that you were just doing it on feeling, and that you just felt you could win. Where it becomes problematic is either if you make 
false claims about uh, your previous wins or your expectation to win or the reason you're going to win or the reason your system works when it really doesn't work. If you're giving false testimonials of your own success, which it isn't really true, or even worse, if you take some of the money that's supposedly being invested and you spend it on other things, then there's embezzlement going on. Both of those were happening there, and that's why it was a crime. And that's why he wasn't just delusional. He may have also been delusional, but that's not really what was going on here. He was lying about his skill. He was lying about his success. He was lying about where the money was going. He, it's not like he was telling his investor, okay, well, I keep having bad luck over and over, but it's going to turn around, I know it. And the guy kept throwing good money after bad. He was lying about that he was successful and winning millions of dollars, and they were just investing more to win even more. That's not what happened. He even admitted in the USA Today article, I can't name one fucking player on the field. I can't name a quarterback. I can't name anybody. (laughs) He placed a $100,000 parlay, which he showed the USA Today author, and he was waiting on the outcome of it while admitting that he can't name anybody involved. Nor was he parroting any other sports handicappers who may be more knowledgeable than him. It is okay. Well, I wouldn't say okay, but it's not necessarily bad if you are just tailing or following or parroting a bet that somebody else made who you believe to be very knowledgeable. So if you, if you truly believe that someone is a winning sports better, and you say, hey, what are you betting on today? And they tell you, and then you go place a very large wager, and yet you know nothing about the teams and the players and the game, then you could still say it's a positive expectation bet because you're not the one who needs to have the knowledge. You're just copying somebody else's knowledge to make the same bet. But that's not what he was doing. He was making his own picks, not knowing anything about the games. <laughs> Gordetsky said, I'm banned for life, basically from Vegas. My life is over, basically, but nothing I can do. Uh, he, I mentioned this on a previous episode when we talked about him before. One of the biggest sports stars that he got to know was Odell Beckham Jr., who is a receiver in the New York Giants in the NFL. Odell Beckham Jr. actually distanced himself from him and tried to pretend like they barely knew each other. But he really was like wagering for Odell Beckham Jr. at one point. And Odell Beckham Jr. somehow, I don't know how he got to know him, but somehow really uh, believed that, uh, that he was a winning gambler. At one point, he showed a text message that was from Odell Beckham Jr. that he wanted to bet $20,000 on a baseball game that Gorodetsky had picked. Now, somehow that didn't happen. Somehow that wager didn't end up up occurring, but uh, Beckham did probably talk about it with him. I don't know why it didn't actually occur, but uh, there was discussion of it. The... Nevada Gaming Commission and FBI were investigating Gorodetsky because they found the whole thing suspicious, that he was betting so much money and that he was so young and couldn't really show a source of income 
that uh, would indicate that he would have such funds to bet. It, it's all part of the know your customer protocols that uh, if somebody comes in and just bets huge, I'm not talking about someone who comes in and plays a $1,000 bet. They're not going to follow that. But somebody who's betting really big like him, just shooting off a ton of money, especially if there's something suspicious about them, such as their age, someone who's very young like that, typically won't have that type of money to throw around. So then they're going to try to find out where you get it from. They'll even ask him. And then he probably told them, hey, I'm an, inv- I'm an investor or uh, I'm a professional gambler. I don't know what he said. But whatever it was, they were very suspicious that this was a case of embezzlement because that does go on a lot where people embezzle money and then blow it in the casinos. So the casinos are supposed to report this. So the Nevada Gaming Commission and FBI were investigating him. I am surprised he got only 28 months. I mean, there's almost $10 million that was involved here. This is not like tricking someone into giving $50,000 to you. This, this is almost $10 million. How do you only get 28 months? Now, he's been ordered to pay restitution, but, I mean, how's this guy going to make any money? <laughs> Where, where's he ever going to get $9.6 million? He's, he's never going to get that back. This guy, I don't know what he could even do for a living. Good luck getting anything out of him. The victim, you may wonder who it is, was actually a uh, former girlfriend's father who did this. He talked to this uh, girlfriend's father. He was with her at the time. He he convinced the guy that he was an expert sports better and investor. And I, I wonder how this girlfriend's father uh, became convinced of this because this guy was so young like how do you become convinced just because the guy's a big talker and brags about how great he is why would the father not just think he's a young punk who's delusional like it really makes me wonder how people like that make money in the first place unless he inherited it but how how can you be smart or business savvy enough to make 10 million dollars and then be tricked by some 21-year-old punk who lies to you about his prowess in investing and sports handicapping. It's one thing if it's small money, if the guy just wants to give Gordetsky some money to bet for fun for him, see how it does, but to invest this type of money is crazy. Gordetsky had social media accounts like Twitter and Instagram and constantly made it look like he was just crushing. He would show winning sports betting tickets for big money, like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And these were real tickets, but he just wouldn't post the losers. Somehow he convinced this ex-girlfriend's father that he needs to keep investing, that they're doing so well. He made fake documents showing their bankroll getting bigger and bigger. I don't know how he explained why they need more money if they're already making money. Why can't they just reinvest what they're making? But somehow he got the guy to keep putting more in. He said to USA Today at the time, 2017, the thing that gives me the edge is there's no fear of losing. What? He said, when he loses, you're going to see me here the next day. We're going to be in the game. (laughs) 
Okay, I mean, you could have no fear of losing. You still lose. Like, I'll be happy to sit at a poker table with a crappy player who has no fear of losing to me. Guess what? He's still probably going to lose. I could go play uh, one-on-one basketball with LeBron James with no fear of losing. I think I'm going to (laughs) lose. It doesn't matter how little fear I have. It's a dumb thing to say. Like, like, how does he talk like that to the girlfriend's father? And the father's like, oh, well, you don't fear losing. Okay, how much, how much money you need? Let me get my checkbook. You're not afraid of losing. Sounds like a good strategy to me. Sometimes these scammers, like I'm impressed by the sophistication that they bring to the table and how they trick people. I'm When I say impressed, I don't mean morally. I mean just the effort they put into it and the, what they came up with, the hustle they came up with. I said, well, at least there's some creativity involved. At least there's some intelligence involved in doing this. But this guy just seems like a moron. This guy just seems like a brash moron who just bragged and got some dummy to fall for it. This guy was never convincing the second his story came out everybody laughed at him they said this guy's a complete clown there's no way he's winning the the only question is where's the money coming from that's what everybody said like it didn't take an expert in the industry to see that the usa today author couldn't believe that he was willing to come out and say this can you imagine being so dumb you've got this moron on the hook for millions of dollars and, and you stupidly come out to USA Today and brag about it? And you, you have an Instagram and Twitter page? I mean, at least keep quiet about it. But, but he was so convinced that he was going to be this major figure that everyone respects. And I don't know where he was expecting to go with it. Because eventually, the girlfriend's dad was either going to run out of money or become wise to the whole thing. This is the second scandal involving sports betting where a rich person was uh, tricked into giving a lot of money to someone who's a losing sports better. The other one was with that uh, Adam Meyer guy. It was a little bit of a different story because Adam Meyer did this through threats. He pretended like uh, he was he, that he owed some organized crime figure money and he roped this victim into believing that he was part of the whole thing and that they were both going to get killed if he didn't pay off these organized crime figures. And uh, he built someone out of like $30 million doing this. But uh, in reality, Adam Meyer was in cahoots with a supposed organized crime figure who wasn't even an organized crime figure. It was just someone who was uh, pretending to be in order to help scare this guy into coughing up the money. Actually, it was $45 million. I thought it was 30 but seeing right here, it's $45 million. And he got uh, sentenced to eight years. I think he may have actually gotten a COVID release, which, if true, is pretty crappy. But anyway, Adam Meyer was a fake sports tout. A little bit different than Rob Gordetsky, who wasn't a sports tout. He was just pretending to be a major player in the sports betting world who just makes huge bets and wins big. Adam pretended that too, but he was selling his picks and that's how he got to know this victim who was someone who was in the uh, liquor business in Wisconsin. 
and he convinced this guy that he's going to get killed by organized crime unless he uh, keeps coughing up all this money because Adam got him involved in it. But the whole thing was a scheme by this Adam Meyer. And there was no threat. There was no organized crime figure. But in both cases, it was a fake winner in sports. In both cases, it was someone with very little knowledge on how to beat sports betting who postured that they were beating it and victimized some very rich person into giving them a lot of money. So that was a 2017 story. And I guess in a way, this is also a 2017 story. That's when the uh, USA Today story uh, came out. So it's both around 2017 when it's all going down. But I, I really wonder sometimes how people can pull that off. Like, it would make more sense if somebody who really had a process, even one that's not necessarily winning or proven to be a winning process yet, but someone who at least had some sound fundamentals behind it, who went to a rich person and said, okay, we're going to start betting big on sports in Vegas. So do you want in on it? Yes? Okay, well, I'm going to bet big. You want to bet big too? You can put your money up too. Send it to me. I'll bet it for you. We'll both bet big. And then you tell them why you have an edge and you show them from some sort of a solid fundamental standpoint of why you do, even if you really don't, and then get it going that way. And then if you embezzle or whatever, then then it at least you can understand how the victim fell for it. Like I could make a good case if I were to go to someone and claim that uh, I want a lot of money from them to bet sports with. Because um, when I'm placing my sports bets, when I'm making my sports picks, you'll see a lot of times they're along the lines of what a lot of the sharp sports bettors are doing. I don't just parrot their picks, but a lot of times we, we basically come to the some of the same games that we like. And uh, even when I'm, I'm not picking the same thing as a lot of the sharp sports bettors, there is a method to what I'm doing could be explained and understood as not just uh, picking games out of my ass that I think are going to win. Something like that would be more believable to someone who could be a potential investor than just saying, I'm good at sports betting and investing. I have no fear of losing. Oh, okay. So who do I make the check out to? Like, I, I don't understand how that works. I know he only fooled one person, but he got him for like 10 million. Crazy. So only 28 months, though. Pretty good, right? I mean, that's that's not a bad result for uh, Gorodetsky there, given what he did. He should have gotten way more than that. At least 10 years. I'd say 20. I mean, that's a lot of money. 9.6 million. You stiff someone out of 9.6 million, and he can't pay it back. It's not like he stiffed him out of 9.6 million but still, and still had it, and they were able to recover it. That doesn't make the crime any less serious, but at least the damage overall is less serious. But here it's it's $10 million, It's never coming back. It's gone. So how he's only getting 28 months for that, and then he can go back and live most of his life a free man, it doesn't make any sense to me. I, I think maybe that he, uh, he got a lighter sentence like this because uh, 
he was able to uh, use the I was delusional defense. He was able to pretend like he just let it get out of control. What they said in court was that as a kid, he, uh, yeah, he, he actually had rich parents, by the way. He, it's not like he was going to struggle in life if he didn't scam. This was a guy who uh, was from a rich family anyway. But he grew up in the uh, North Shore area of uh, Chicago. And he said that he was once very shy and didn't have friends and uh, that this was kind of his path into uh, getting noticed and being popular and he just kind of let it get out of hand. And that the whole persona of being this brash gambler, this is something he invented so so people would like him. So he was trying to be like a sympathetic figure rather than a cold-hearted scammer. And it was basically just delusional that he thought that... Uh, he thought he was a lot better than he really was. Now, prosecutors said that he spent over $2 million on travel entertainment, a Rolls Royce, a Bentley, two Lamborghinis, and $324,000 worth of jewelry. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of hard to claim that uh, you were just kind of delusional and trying to live out a dream. His lawyer was saying that uh, he could only concentrate on one thing, the rush he felt from gambling wins. So he was basically trying to say he was just an addicted gambler. He was just kind of a sick person. And, well, he made a mistake that he wasn't trying to be a criminal. He wasn't trying to be a scammer. But I don't care what you're trying to do. You, you, he lied. He, he went through a very purposeful series of deceptions to trick this guy to keep investing in him. He didn't just quickly lie about it. He made false documents and other things. He was trying to make this guy give money based on false pretenses. So I don't, I don't care what motivated him. So he was, for some reason, he was only ordered to pay $7.2 million back. Why not the whole 9.6? How does that make any sense? It doesn't really matter, though. He's not going to come up with $7.2 million in his lifetime. What's he going to go do? Flip burgers at McDonald's until he makes $7.2 million? Like, seriously, who's going to hire him? What's this guy's skills? He has none. I wish he was going to prison longer. 28 months is not enough. Okay, I'm going to take a break here. When we come back, we still have some topics left. We've got the possibly psychic player who knew what the flop term and river were going to be before they were dealt. We have the Florida situation where online poker and legalized sports betting may be coming to the state. We may, will have more sites on the Pennsylvania legalized park poker market. Limit holding with Dan Druff, our first segment of that ever. And coronavirus news. There's a bunch of stuff still coming up here. And Eric Benzamokin... My attorney, in just 10 days, will be in Sacramento court, virtually, but he'll be in court, and he will be making the case that one Mike Possle owes me $43,000 in attorney's fees, which he should, and we will see what the judge says. 
This is based upon our anti-slap motion, which was never ruled upon because Mike Postle dropped the case in early April. So what they're going to be determining on May 12th is whether our anti-slap motion was likely to have prevailed. They're not going to go through the whole thing. They're just going to be uh, looking at it from uh, more of an upper level and see, uh, does this kind of look like it would have prevailed? If the answer is yes, which I think the answer is yes, then they will determine what appropriate attorney's fees would have been awarded had it prevailed. And then those will be awarded if that is what is determined. But we will see. And the reason I bring this up is because I'm going to play his ad right now. And remember, any legal issue you have in California or federally, you should contact him at the email address that will be given in the ad. And he can help you. And if you want to see an example of his work, I've posted uh, some documents that he has submitted on my behalf in this case. And I think he's done a great job. I think you will too when you go take a look at uh, the documents which speak for themselves. So we'll be back soon. Do the rest of the show. Maybe Brandon or Trader Ruski will come in at some point. And then we'll figure out before the end of the show when the next likely episode will be. Talk to you soon. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California, you can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us.
Okay, we're back. Let's move on to our next topic. A player on a live stream did something really amazing. He actually called out the flop, turn, and river. And I'll tell you after I play this uh, recording how unusual this was or what the odds against him doing this were. And then we'll also have a discussion why it's possible this wasn't as amazing as it appeared. Let me get this up here. So this was actually on uh, Poker Go. And uh, this was from the Champions Poker Club. So this is a streamed hand. And when the hand was being streamed, it was not known yet that this was going to happen, of course. So this wasn't a rumor. This wasn't a report after the fact from players at the table. You actually get to hear it as it went down. So this has to do with an all-in hand in No Limit Hold'em of ace-jack against jacks. The guy who called out the board, which is going to be a five-card board, flop, turn, and river, he held the jacks against the ace-jack. And you've probably seen this before. Maybe it's even happened in hands you've been in or you've even been the one calling out the cards. But someone will call out what they think the flop will be. Now, sometimes people will call out a flop they want to see. Sometimes they'll call out a flop they don't want to see. Sometimes they'll call out just any flop that they think is going to come, whether it's something they really want or don't want. So we'll discuss that in a second and how that might have to do with the predictions he made. This does appear to be real. It doesn't appear to be staged. And I don't believe there was any cheating involved. I don't believe this was a case where he knew all the cards or where someone was tipping him off. In fact, if that were the case, he would be pretty stupid because he'd be giving it away right there. (laughs) So I believe this is just a case where it happened to occur. Very unlikely, but sometimes unlikely things happen. We'll discuss shortly how unlikely it is. But I'll play you the clip. This is on Poker Go. James did fold, by the way. Clogston rips with jacks. So this Clogston guy, they say rips with jacks. They're saying that he went all in with jacks. And then he's waiting to see if there's uh, any callers here. He's going to be the one who calls out the board. Ace jack for Iyengar. Remember, Duke is not in this hand. He does make the call, and here we go. Now, this is a tournament, by the way. This is not uh, a cash game. So this guy with jacks is uh, short-stacked, and he just goes all in pre. Did he say that's not good? That's very good. So the first comment they have is uh, he goes all in with jacks, and he gets a call from the big blind, and he says that's not good. Now, I don't know if he's just being a pessimist or just doesn't know poker very well. When you have jacks and you're like in middle position and you go all in with a short stack and someone snaps you, you're happy to see that. You're not looking to take the blinds there. It's not like he's going all in with jack nine offsuit and someone snap calls him and he's gone, oh, crap, I, I can't see how I'm going to win that. Or even like ace trash, like you go all in with ace three and you get called. You think, okay, unless I'm against like king queen, I'm probably screwed here either by a pair or by a better ace. But here, jacks, you're happy to get the call. You actually want the action here because you want chips. Now, yeah, there's way the jacks can get outrun and you lose, but 
is also a chance that uh, you're racing with bigger cards, even something like uh, King-Queen you're racing against. So you don't love that, but you're still a slight favorite. And then there's a small chance that Queens, Kings, or Aces called you. But you're you're happy to see the action here. You need chips. That's kind of a weird comment the guy made. Not really related to the rest of this. Just wanted to mention that. And the commentator mentioned that, too. That's very good, Troy. It is an easy call. Yeah, it is, but, but he had a lot better than you were yeah. giving off over there. <laughs> I was like, man, he got caught. <laughs> yeah. So the other players at the table are kind of laughing at him. Right, when he said, good. that's not good. Figure he was raising light there, but no, he had it. He has jacks. You're the one ahead. So, so the guy with the jacks says 8, 9, 10. They're talking about flops. Now, 8, 9, 10 is not really a flop that he wants if he's up against ace-jack. Because all that does is it gives outs to a chop, to a tie, to his opponent, who also is holding a jack with ace-jack. So if it's 8, 9, 10, then if the next card is a 7 or a queen, then they're probably going to split the pot, which, of course, he doesn't want, because jacks are 70-30 over ace-jack pre-flop. So you, if you've got a 70% edge, the last thing you want to do is give your opponent outs to a tie. Uh, what you really wanted to see is a jack on the flop. But, of course, that's not very likely, with, given the three of the jacks are out here. But if you're not going to have a jack on the flop, you want to root for no ace, especially. And small cards is good, too. That leaves your opponent uh, drawing fairly thin. Head Troy, you don't need to flop anything. You just need to get to dodge the ace. So he's calling out 8, 9, 10, though. I've seen this before, where someone calls out something they kind of don't want to see hoping that like it's almost like reverse psychology. Not that they can influence the cards, but just like they're they're calling out something they don't want to see, hoping it's gonna really come the opposite. And there it is. Eight nine ten on the board. Eight nine ten rainbow. And it's actually in the order of eight nine ten. It's not ten nine eight. It's not eight ten nine. It's not nine eight ten. It is actually eight nine ten on the flop. So he called eight nine ten. It's eight nine ten. So let's give him credit for that. Now, did he call out the suits? No. So he just called out eight nine ten of any suits, and we got eight nine ten. Wow. And it does wow. come ten nine eight. Strong. Nice call by Troy. Do you know how hard that is for that to come out? Oh, like the wow. That is. Wow. Did you see that right now, Pete? They called the flop on the nose. Guard. How strong? It's a four. So now they're they're really amazed because I don't know if you heard this in the background, but he said four of spades, and then a four of spades is put down. So they're like, wait, didn't you just say that? Did you say four of spades? I don't know why you would call for the four of spades on the turn, but there it is. If it's a queen or seven to chop, it's an ace to win outright. Craziness at this table. Someone called that card? Yeah. The, whole, the flop and the turn. He called the flop and the turn. Just wait till you see it in the So what's coming on the river? So, so they want to see if he can predict the river. So what's coming on the river? He says two of hearts. You heard that clearly. If two hearts comes, I'm leaving. For, you leaving? Yeah, for, for 24 minutes, I'm going to take the break. 
for Ricard. It's oh, a two point! Oh my god! No way. Stop! 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 That didn't happen. That didn't happen. Dude, I can't. I can't. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. He just called the whole person. No way. So. The, the reactions you heard from the other players that go, stop, stop, I'm done, I'm done. Like people, people kind of almost like walked away from the table for a second. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe what was just called right in front of their faces. Now, again, this was real. This wasn't staged. This was actually being streamed at the time. So he called 8, 9, 10. It actually came in that order, 8, 9, 10. Then he called the actual suit of the next two cards. He said four of spades and two of hearts. And that's exactly what came. Now, Looking at what he called out, I don't know exactly why he said 8, 9, 10, because as I mentioned on there, that's not really what he wanted to see. It's better than an ace, but it's not what he wanted to see. It gives his opponent tie-outs. But that was kind of a flop, like almost like the negative thinking, like, oh, what if it comes 8, 9, 10? That'll suck. That'll give the guy extra out. So he says 8, 9, 10, like that. So... It wasn't random that he said 8, 9, 10, given that they both held a jack and that he had pocket jacks. So Daly pointed that out in the thread I made about it on Poker Fraud Alert, that he probably said 8, 9, 10, not randomly, but that he kind of, just it's, it's something related to what he was holding. But look, even if you want to say that, that doesn't make it any more likely 8, 9, 10 is going to come. It may make it more likely he's going to say it and make the flop by itself less likely that he was going to call out something. He didn't call out random cards. But still, look, you can say 8, 9, 10 every hand. It doesn't make it any higher of a chance that 8, 9, 10 is going to come out. So the chance of it coming out the way he says, whether it's something he would have said often in that spot or not, was pretty low. Then to call out the four of spades... The chance of that is also very low. He's actually calling out the exact one card of the remaining ones that he's going to see next. And then same with the two of hearts. Now, the four of spades and two of hearts, he actually did want. They said, oh, I don't know why he's calling that. Well, it is true that uh, there's a better card than the four of spades, which would be the last jack, because the last jack would uh, give him a set to where the ace wouldn't beat him. And yet, that wouldn't change anything. It wouldn't make it any worse for him to where the, the queen and seven would still be a chop. And yet, this way, he couldn't lose if he got the other, last jack. But other than that, a four of spades is a good thing to call out. It's a, it's a rainbow board. The opponent could not have made a flush. So the four of spades, other than the other jack, is a good card to call out. And the, same, and the two of hearts in the river does win the hand for him, as would a lot of other cards. So the, the calling out the four of spades and two of hearts... Those are kind of cards you'd think of if you're going to call something you actually do want to see. Putting aside that one last jack, anything but that, you would think of kind of like low blank type cards, and those are both it. Four of spades, two of hearts. Now, what are the odds of this? Well, the eight, nine, ten, since he didn't specify a suit, it could be any eight, any nine, any ten, but it has to be in that order. It cannot be ten, nine, eight, or nine, eight, ten. Let's just assume it has to be eight, nine, ten the way he said it. There's actually a 1 in 12 chance of the 8 coming out, a 4 in 47 chance, which is uh, a little bit better than 1 in 12, of the 9 then coming out, and a 
one in 23 chance of the 10 then coming out. So that's uh, with each of the first three cards. So about six out of every 10,000 times, you're going to be able to call the flop right if you're ignoring the suits. If you just call out three cards you're going to see in that exact order, about six out of every 10,000 times you'll get it right because it's basically one in 12 times four, and 40, four out of 47 times one out of 23. So that's uh, yes, 448th, 447th, 446th. And the way I came up with those numbers is because that's how many unseen cards there are. If we're ignoring uh, the cards we may already know that are on the stream, if we just go by what these two guys know, which is the only two cards that they've already shown turning over when they run out the board. So it's Ace, Jack, and Jacks. There's 48 other cards left to come out. So before the first one comes out of the flop, there's 48 cards. Second one, there's 47 cards left. Third one, there's 46 cards left. And each of them, they have four possible cards that can meet the requirements because there's four different suits. So basically, it's 0.0618%. As I said, about six in every 10,000 times. If you call the flop out, you're going to get it right in that order. Now, for the turn, it was pretty easy to calculate the odds for that. There's 45 cards left in the deck at that point, and he's calling out one specific card, so it's one in 45. And then on the river, it's also easy. There's 44 cards left, and he's calling out one specific card, so it's one out of 44. So the chance of doing the turn and river, calling them out each by suit, rank and suit, as he did, four of spades, two of hearts, that would be a point. 0.505% chance of doing it, or about 5 in every 10,000 times. So it's actually roughly the same chance, interestingly enough, of calling the flop out in order without suits as calling the turn and river out with suits in order. The reason it's uh, close is because it's two cards instead of three, but then the three you're not calling suits. But it is less likely to do the two in river with suits. It's five and one in 10,000 instead of six and 10,000. But for this all to happen, that would have to be multiplying both of those chances together. So what you end up with is there's a 0.0000312% chance that you could do this. Pretty close to zero point zero. So that's about once in every 3.2 million hands would you be successful doing this. So if I were to sit you down and deal out a flop, turn, and river with four cards out, let's say we just take four cards out of the deck, turn them face up, we have 48 cards left, and I say call out the flop in order, then call out the exact turn with suit, exact river in suit. You would be able to successfully do that once out of every 3.2 million times we do that exercise. So how did this happen here? How did this happen if it's one in 3.2 million chance? We haven't had 3.2 million hands on live streams, and the flop, turn, and river has not been called out on live streams 3.2 million times or anywhere near that. 
So what happened here? How did this fluke thing occur? Well, the fluke thing occurred because it was just a fluke. That's all. Sometimes it can happen. And there probably have been a number of times that the flop's been called out on a live stream. And the reason he kept calling out the turn and river was because he got the previous thing right. If he said 8, 9, 10, and it came out different, even one different, let's say it was uh, 6, 9, 10, he probably wouldn't have called out the turn because he would have only gotten two out of three. It would have been far less impressive. So he was only doing it the whole way because he was getting it correct the whole way. So that's why we haven't seen that much of it. But we've probably seen on streams a number of times people calling out the flop they want to see or that they think they're going to see. And they just didn't get it right because it's hard to do. It's only uh, six in 10,000 times. So it's probably the first time it ever came down like that on a stream. And then after that, he happened to hit the uh, five in 10,000 chance that he was able to do the next two. So it was just a very improbable thing. But once in a while, very improbable things happen. So it really was a fluke, though, if you think about it, because there probably have been very few flops called out on live streams compared to 3.2 million. So how improbable was it? Well, let's think about it. Let's say it happened 100 times on live streams that someone called out the flop. Because let's just assume if someone calls out the flop, then they're probably going to call out the turn and river if they're, if they're correct with the flop. So let's just go by the flop. Let's say 100 times it's been called out on all streams. That would mean that the chance of one of these being correct all the way, not just the flop, but the whole thing, would be about 1 in 32,000. If there were a 1,000 times that the flop's been called out on live streams, which I doubt, but if there were a 1,000 times of this happening, then it would still be 1 in 3,200. And that is that one of those times it would be that. So that's pretty low odds, to be honest. Well, actually, it's not, you know, it's not even exactly that because uh, what you'd actually be figuring out there, I mean, it's kind of close to that, but uh, what it actually would be is you'd be figuring out, uh, like let's say it happened 100 times, you'd actually be figuring out the chance that uh, 100 of these would happen with uh, exactly one time of it occurring, which is a little bit different, but yeah, close enough. It's, it's approximately that. So what I'm trying to show you there is it's unusual. It's unlikely, very unlikely, but it's not impossible looking. Because let's go with the 1 in 32,000 number. Let's say 100 times flops been called out on uh, streams. Okay, so there's a 1 in 32,000 chance that by now that we would have seen it. Is that low? Yeah, oh yeah. But uh, is a 1 in 32,000 chance of something happening shocking? No, it's unusual, but it's not shocking. Uh, if this is the one and only time a flop was ever called out and then this happened, that would be shocking because that'd be a 1 in 32, 3.2 million chance. I think I told you guys before about uh, how I almost hit a Delt Royal on the Double Super Times Pay video poker machine where I was given a multiplier. And if you get that, then you get a very big payout. So even though it was a uh, 50 cent per credit machine and d double super times pay is seven credits every time it deals. So it would have been, uh, 
It's uh, $3.50 per, uh, per hand. So yeah, that's uh, would have been a huge payout because it was a $200,000 payout I would have gotten. The chance of getting that Delt Royal and the super ti- the double super times pay multiplier coming out, the chance of that event together was 1 in 9.6 million. And I came super close to it. I got four to the royal, and then I got the wrong queen, but I got the right color queen. I forgot if I wanted the queen of spades and I got the queen of clubs or vice versa, but I wanted a black queen, and I got the other black queen. Otherwise, I would have hit it. One 9.6 million chance I came that close by getting the, the wrong black queen. But... Was that my only hand of double super times pay at Harris Rincon in that session? No. I had been playing for five days by that point. I played a ton of hands. So while one in 9.6 million was super unlikely, when you then play that many hands, where each time I've got that same 1.96 million, one in 9.6 million chance of hitting it, when I play uh, thousands of hands, all of a sudden it turns from a complete fluke to unlikely. So yeah, that would have been an unlikely event, period. But uh, I couldn't say it was a 1 in 9.6 million I was going to get it if I played that many hands. So same thing here. The more people called flops on live TV, the, the higher chance that it becomes. And even just 100 times greatly changes things. So that's something to keep in mind, too. But still a pretty amazing event, and I'm sure we will never see this again on live streams in our lifetime. It's just too unusual. So I don't want to trivialize how unusual this was, but I also don't want to make it seem like it's uh, one in millions that we would have seen it because of the number of times it's probably happened. 775 fraud 55 775 372 8355. Got some texts here. You can text that same number if you want to text me here during the show or after the show or before the show, whenever you like. From the 505, my home state, New Mexico, is overreacting to COVID as bad as New York. They're acting as if it's still peak COVID. I believe these poor states that continue to lock down could possibly go bankrupt. What's funny is a good percentage of the state doesn't want to vaccinate. Like, what the fuck, LOL. It's time to reopen fully at this point and stop printing money. I'm legit concerned about hyperinflation. At what point do we attempt to get back to normalcy? Last thing, did my second Pfizer dose, got a fairly bad headache, fatigue, and sweats. Next day, no issues. I was surprised my arm didn't hurt as much as the first dose. I'm 31 years old, by the way. Okay, well, that's an interesting report. On all fronts there. Sounds like you didn't get that bad of a reaction to the second shot. I mean, it could have been better. I Like, Brandon did better than you did, but you did better than I did. The disappearance of the symptoms is pretty common the following day. People usually do not have more than 24 hours of bad symptoms from the second Pfizer shot or second Moderna shot. I was unusual in that I got to experience more than two days of it. That was crappy. Also, mine came on a bit later. 
you said you got the headache, fatigue, and sweats. I wonder if you took your temperature. Some people don't have a thermometer at home or don't bother to take it. I do have a thermometer, and I felt like I had a fever, and I did have a fever. And the fever sat there for quite some time, and I didn't take anything for it on purpose. I did not get a headache from the shot, which is good. I was kind of expecting I would, but I did get a headache from being in bed all day because of the other symptoms that caused me to be in bed, and then being in bed too long caused a tension headache, so I got the headache anyway. (laughs) Didn't really think about that happening. I'm like, oops, I forgot about that, so I'm getting an indirect headache from it. That's nice. That, That was not pleasant on top of everything else. But yeah, I agree with you that they they need to reopen and that there is too much money printing going on. There's too much uh, spending going on and that we're going to have to pay for this down the line fairly soon and it's going to be a problem. And yes, you have to watch out for things like hyperinflation and you have to watch out for a lot of negatives for the economy, even if we don't have hyperinflation. Or we can also have inflation that isn't hyperinflation, but still inflation that is harmful. Like, look at what happened in the, the 70s. I know if you're 31, you weren't around then. But in the late 70s, we had very bad inflation. It wasn't hyperinflation, but it was uh, they called it stagflation. And it was bad. I wasn't an adult during that, so I didn't uh, deal with this directly myself, but I heard my parents talking about it, and I learned about it later as I got older and could understand it better. So you can't just spend the type of money we've been spending without a consequence later. Now, if it's absolutely necessary, then do it. But here, a lot of the spending hasn't been necessary, and they've been pumping up a lot of the spending which has nothing to do with COVID, and they've been cramming it into COVID relief bills, which is a huge mistake. We should, When doing COVID relief bills, it should only be about COVID relief and nothing else. So we're definitely going to pay for this later, and not that much later. As I was saying earlier in the show, any decisions made to COVID, made in relation to COVID, need to be made based upon what is necessary to do and what is going to be helpful to do, not what looks good, Now, what's going to get someone elected? Now, what's going to get someone thrown out of office you don't like? Now, what's going to make your side look good or what's going to make your previous decisions look good, but actual informed decisions based upon the science and based upon the effect it's going to have upon the economy and people's lives. You have to consider that too. That's also a very important factor. And that's all that should go into the decision. But unfortunately, we have a lot more. For the 916, yes, the Indians will screw up the palms with their odd management. But this person also texted, I think the palms could really pull it off with rebranding, improvement, better offers, no resort tax, and promote the roof nightclub. Could happen if they really remodel and rebrand the property. Well, I I think they could do somewhat better, but I also think that uh, they're just not going to ever do that well there. Just the location is not good enough. For the 951, here's a good story. Short story, but a good one. 
Thanks for telling thanks for talking about your colonoscopy in prior episodes. It motivated me to get one since I have IBD, that's inflammatory bowel disease, and I was due for one. Yes. For those of you who have IBS, IBD, Crohn's, any of those type of uh, digestive issues, you are more prone to getting colon cancer than the average person. That doesn't mean you will. I'm just saying you have a higher chance of getting colon cancer. So if you have any of that stuff, you should do it and you should do it before 50. I don't know how this how old this listener is in uh, 951, but uh, he ended up uh, getting the colonoscopy after I talked about it. And he's not the only one. Even Calwatt got his colonoscopy because I talked about it. Though he had considered it before. And in fact, he had uh, an order written by his doctor to get it before I mentioned it here. But he was, he'd been dragging his feet on it because he didn't have a family history. And he's like, okay, you know, I should do it. I'm motivated now that Druff talked about it. So he went and did it. Bart Hansen got his, I think, uh, because I mentioned it. Bart's younger, but he has a family history. This guy in the 951 just texted he's 49, so the same age as me. So yeah, it's good to do that 49, especially if you have uh, IBD. So uh, he didn't tell us his results, though, unless he, unless he didn't get one yet, unless he just set it up. But yes, if you are over 50, you should get one. And if you're over 45, or even maybe over 40, and you have a family history, you should get one, too. And you can text me, 775-372-8355, if you would like some advice on making the process easiest. So I'm all about that. I'm all about making the process easiest. I think if you get the same result with less effort and less unpleasantry, then you've done it right. You don't always have to do things the hard way. Sometimes you can't avoid unpleasant things, but you can minimize the unpleasantry. I'm a big believer in that. Okay, so I want to talk about the new gaming compact in Florida, which could really change the legalized gambling scene online in Florida and throughout the U.S. Now, this is only about Florida we're going to talk about here. So this is not uh, something that affects other states, but it could eventually affect other states, at least poker-wise. And I'll get to that as we talk about this. So there's a new gaming compact in Florida. The compact is with the Seminole Indian tribe that will allow them to uh, have roulette and craps at their seven casinos they have in Florida. Right now, they cannot have those games. Now, that by itself is not an interesting, interesting enough development to report on this show. However, what's more interesting is what's in the, quote, miscellaneous section of the new compact. And it says that the state has agreed to negotiate in good faith to offer online games of all of its live casino games. So that's very interesting. Once this compact is approved by the Florida legislature then they will have three years to legalize online gambling. And uh, online gambling includes 
all forms of online gambling. It includes poker. It includes casino gambling. And it would be sports betting too. Florida does not yet have legalized sports betting, but it is believed this will launch either late 2021 or early 2022. So once that launches, that will become an option as well to have online. And this is being negotiated uh, starting, well, I guess now up through the next three years. It's not guaranteed to happen, but it looks like that this bill will be approved and then they're going to have these three years to legalize all these different forms of online gambling in Florida, which somebody who co-hosts this show sometimes spent a lot of time and grew up. Do we know anybody from Florida here? Is this is this a fraud show? Yes, and we're talking about Florida, your home state. I, I just heard. Yeah. What are they doing down there, those crazy people? Well, they, they've expanded what the Seminole tribe can do offer at their casinos with uh, roulette and craps, but uh, more importantly for this show, that uh, they are going to be negotiating online offerings sometime within the next three years, which could easily lead to the approval of online casino games, online poker, and online sports betting. So this would bring online poker to Florida, which would be the first large state to have online poker. And that would, number one, bring a lot of people into the legalized online poker market, which right now there just are not that many people because the states that have approved it just aren't that large. But also, if a big state like Florida were to legalize it, that could encourage the other large population states like California, New York, and Texas to do the same. If it it gets legalized there and is working out, then uh, they may feel more motivation to get that done in these other states. Now, it may happen in these other states before Florida anyway, because we're talking about a timetable. Well, I read of, that, uh, that Caitlyn Jenner, she's a big proponent of online poker. So uh, that's good for you. Maybe. Yep, Gov- Governor Jenner may, may get it done. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I see this trend with these Indians. Uh, now there's going to be another. Did you just hear about this? Oh, and we, uh, we talked about Vegas. it already. We talked oh, about okay. the Vital Vegas. Uh, Palm story in San Manuel. But what, what do you think of the Indian tribes coming to Vegas? I don't like it, but what do you think? I mean, I don't really know enough to not like it. I mean, if I had to base like other stuff, you know, in other states, I think it's it's bad. But I, I can't imagine they're going to be allowed to behave that way. Well, I mean, they won't you know, be, but the things the, that they've, that's you the, know, done. That my, my issue is that, yeah, they can't just decide to do what they want and go against uh, Nevada state law. Right. There's going to be enough oversight that they'll still have to you know, follow the rules like everybody else. But, but they can still be customer unfriendly is the problem. They're just kind of used to being customer unfriendly, and I just don't think that's a good thing to bring into the Vegas market. That's my problem. Well, wait, hold on one second. <laughs> okay. Can you hear me, Ari? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that would fly in Vegas. I mean, you can't really – especially a property like the Palms – you know, which still doesn't know what it is. You know, is are they going to? Well, I talked about that too. A, I mean, yeah, they're going to market it as a local property. Is it going to be a destination? Is it going to be both? But you can't really just do that because people start, you know, word of mouth. You know, people just start bad mouthing a place, and it becomes obvious that the customer services fail, and then people just don't go there. Well, that's what I think is going to happen. I think I, mean, gonna, I think it's going to fail, and they're going to sell it again. <laughs> that's my prediction. Well, 
What did what did what did stations lose? I mean, they had to lose a couple hundred million, three hundred million, maybe. Yeah, four hundred million, three hundred forty million. Like that. Yeah, three forty million. Jeez. You know, it's funny just to think when I first moved here. You know, two thousand and two, right after nine eleven, almost twenty years now. That place was the hot place to go in the entire city. Yeah, I talked about that too. I mean, you should you should have been here before. I I talked well, about. Yeah, uh, I don't know what's going on over there. I got my own life to live. <laughs> no, I know, uh, but uh, I, no, I was talking about how through the two thousands that was the hip place to be, the Palms, and then uh, the Cosmo opened in late twenty ten, and that uh, took its thunder. It, it nobody had a reason to go there anymore. Yeah, it was kind of like the Hard Rock was the original young hip place with the you know J Lo, Ben Affleck, Tiger Woods days. Then it kind of transition to the palms and then i mean it was on its last leg before the cosmo that just put the nail in the coffin i mean that place was just so mismanaged and they got lazy but when i first i used to go there that's where i learned that's where i first played poker that's where i first started playing oh Nolan. i didn't know that first time in my life i yep. didn't know that live wow. i i played stud a lot funny enough in florida growing up because that was the only uh, poker they had. That was it. So, I mean, I was underage. I was like 17, 16 playing because they didn't even ID back then. But that was at this Miccosukee uh, Indian tribe back like in the early 90s. And it was like a fail. Like I was so stupid. I mean, if I would have known you then, you would have told me even as a 15-year-old. Or you would have been, if I was 15, 16, you would have been like closer to 20. But you would have told me don't play because it was this game where you had the ante, I don't know, whatever it was is it maybe a dollar 50 cents but the max pot was like 20 dollars. it was like one two and they they would stop it when you you know when like you literally got to a street and there was 20 dollars in the pot you would just be all in like, <laughs> they would just treat it like everyone's all in like you couldn't get anyone to fold it but i but that was it that was all we had and then we had horse racing which i never got into enough like i you know the big races you know kentucky derby breeders cup stuff like that i get involved in but like, you know, just on a daily basis, I had three big racetracks all within like 20 miles of me. I had Flamingo, which was this legendary park or highly a Flamingo in, in the South Florida and then Calderon Gulfstream, which now I think they're all just like slot casinos or whatever they're, they're called now with poker rooms. But outside of that, you know, that's all we had, you know, yeah, for poker, we just had this one, two stud and they had like bingo and, and these pull, you know what pull tab slots are? Do you remember those? Yeah, ones? I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, okay, those were like how they got around the law of not allowing slots. They're called pull taps, which I never got into. Never, ever, ever. But those are the only three forms of gambling. Yeah, bingo, pull tabs. And so, but anyhow, so when I moved out here, uh, I first started playing poker in early 2002, like early, like maybe January, February, at the Sahara. And a friend of mine told me, or someone I just met out here told me, hey, they have this cute little tournament at the Sahara. It's No Limit Hold'em, it's 60 bucks. And I started playing and, you know, that's, that's how I, you know, learned, you know, before this was before I even started playing online and on, online was just a few months later, but then I started getting bored of the Sahara and then just, you know, the, the rake and just sitting there. So I started playing no limit and I jumped into probably a game I shouldn't be playing, but I, it, but I played two five. I learned playing two five at the bombs. Like that's not a game you just start playing, but maybe back then it was okay. Cause people were bad and I kind of held my own. I mean, I probably was like a loser the first two years or so, but not much. I just played really tight. And but anyhow, so but you go there on a Friday, Saturday night. You know, I remember uh, I was there once on a Friday night. It's like three in the morning, so maybe it's like Saturday morning now. 
And anyone that's been to the Palms knows they have a food, a food court. It was there until the closure, same food court. And all the other restaurants have come and gone, whatever. You know, they had, had a McDonald's there since it opened. So I'm at the McDonald's like at 2 in the morning. And I don't eat McDonald's. I'm, I'm not a fast food person. Um, you know, just it's not even just health reasons. It just, it's just kind of that menu just disgusts me. I've never been a big McDonald's fan. But there's nothing else there. And I'm so hungry, I'm getting a headache. So I'm standing in line. And right behind me with this beautiful young woman, I look over my shoulder. I end up doing a double take. It's fucking Suge Knight. Literally right behind me, like to order next after I order. And it's a thousand percent him. Like, I mean, I know who he is. I would, you know, it doesn't matter, but it's with this beautiful girl. And, you know, I'm just, you know, start getting a little nervous because I'm, you know, listen, this guy had been shot like the year before, or a couple years before during the Tupac thing and people have taken shots at him otherwise. And anyhow, but the point I'm making is you could go there on most weekends. And if you stay there long enough and walk around, you'd see famous people. Like it was the place to be like, it just, it just was like there was, they had this nightclub there called rain. And very often like Britney Spears would just be there on her own. And she would do like, basically just like a pop-up concert where like, it wasn't even planned. Like somebody would hand her a microphone and she, you know, obviously this was at like the height of her popularity. But the point I'm making is it was just, it was the in place to be. Like the rooms, everyone wanted to stay there, and I can't. What what year was that Real World thing with Trishel? Oh yeah, what, it was. Uh, I, I, it was sometime in the early two thousands, I think. Yeah, so that so right, so that was a lot of it too, because I remember a lot of my friends from like college and high school. I'd never heard of the Palms, and they would like text me or call me or whatever, and they'd want to stay there when they came here, only based on the Real World. They thought how cool it was, and you know, got all this mainstream attention, and literally the Maloofs, the the brothers. Were like these, uh, I don't know, I don't know if you want to say like the Hugh Hefner of, of Vegas, but they kind of were like these eligible bachelors that were like celebrities everywhere they went. They, they drew crowds and they had an entourage. And so, but anyhow, the, the point is, it's really interesting just in 20 years how you how something can just change so much. And I mean, it's not even like it, it just happened. I mean, that place literally, it's probably been on a downward spiral now for about 10 years. Um, they started another thing that was really interesting about the Palms that they did the Vegas was they started or they were in the beginning. I don't know if they're like the first or the second, the high rise trend that later transpired all up and down the strip and downtown. And so they were so successful. Not only did they build a second tower, which they call like the Playboy Tower. And I think that even other names, but they built a totally residential tower. Maybe, I don't know, 100 yards, maybe less away from the main tower that were just high rises for sale. And, of course, they had like their own spa and, and, you know, pool and restaurants. And, I mean, people were just jumping. Like, I remember looking back then. And this was obviously before the, uh, the market totally just, you know, went haywire. But back then I was looking because I didn't own anything then. And I, I remember looking at, I think it was like a 500, maybe 600 square foot uh, studio and it's like a one room bedroom living room you know and then you have a full shower kind of like a full kitchen but it's small so anyhow i remember looking it was somewhere around 600 square feet what do you think back then at the height of all this something like that went for or what they wanted what did it start at in other words because i remember looking because i spent some time on this before i decided obviously something else but what would be your best guess you mean like in like in 07 or something no, seven. This was like oh four. Oh, it was 05? cheaper in oh four than oh seven. Oh seven went up more. Well, you know, I don't, you'd have to Google it. 
I, I'm trying. I don't remember what year. The the peak of the whole thing was in oh, in, in 07. Okay, go ahead. I'm gonna look this up. What Palm's Place? Let me just. I don't know when Palm's Place this. opened. I mean, I, I I know what it is. I just don't know exactly the year it opened. Oh, okay. All right. It was so it was it was 2006. It opened in 2007. Yeah, seven. So, okay. so that was the peak, pretty much, of the yeah. of the real estate it was, before it crashed. Because it was ridiculous. So what was it like? Like nine hundred thousand? One point two million. Okay, I was. And and, and I remember this. Cause <laughs> I remember like talking to like a family member, and they were just laughing because it was so outrageous. And now those same units, and they're all over. They're flooded. Maybe this might stop the bleeding, because you know I'm sure you mentioned when you talked about it. You know, it's been closed now since since the pandemic. So, you know, it didn't even open up. But now it kind of makes more sense because, you know, why are they going to open it just to sell it? And, but anyhow, what do you think those same 500 square footage uh, studios go for now? Like you can easily find them. Well, it would have been – it actually would have been cheaper about a year ago. It's It's gone up since then probably. But uh, I, I would say that uh, – was it uh, two hundred fifty thousand? Yeah, the mid to high two hundreds, low three hundreds. Yeah, oh, and there are good. tons of them. There's, you could find twenty of them right now that that are just on the market. And but you know it's kind of misleading because it's not it's not even the fee of of purchasing the unit. What really gets you, you know, people don't realize that until they really start inquiring is the HOA fee, which is even for a unit like that, it's well over. It's like eleven hundred a month. I mean, so you're, you know, say you have a mortgage or say you even just pay it off. You still have that fee forever. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because after the crash in 08, I was looking in 09 to maybe buy one or more uh, condos at very cheap rates. Boy, did it crash hard. The condos condos crashed much more than the houses did. So the condos were just so cheap compared to what they were just a few years ago even two years ago back then and yep. i thought okay it's it's probably can't go any lower than this and uh, and it, it seemed to have bottomed out and kind of just sitting there so it, it looked like the, the crash had stopped and then it was just a matter yep. of when it would go back up so i said okay I'll, I'll buy one or more of these use one for myself and then uh the rest of them i made just hold and, and rent out or something and what pushed me away from it was what didn't go down was the HOA fees. The HOA fees were still there, and a lot of these places were starting to have problems because of that because a lot of people couldn't afford the HOA fees because they were underwater yep. and the whole thing anyway. And I said, all right, yeah. I, I, I don't even like what the future is of these places. Like, I, who knows where this is going to go? I don't want to hassle with sure. it. So, And now, of course, in hindsight, I wish I had because if I just did it and kind of held yeah. it, even if I just well, ate the HOA imagine, all this time, I could have made a lot imagine, of money. Yeah, imagine back then buying – a property, you know, at the at the top of the market for you know a million, you know, it's listed for one point one, one point two. Say so you get it for a million, and ten years later you're struggling to sell it for two hundred sixty, two hundred seventy thousand. You know, it's it's it's. You know. But anyhow, I'm glad that these uh, this tribe is buying it just so it's open because it's kind of gonna, you know, be an eyesore just being you know sitting there. And they still have the marquee up, which is nice. I mean, you know, I don't know what the electric bill is, but they've been keeping the marquee up and. They light it up at night, even though it's been closed. Um, but, you know, the problem is they have a lot of rooms. You know, they added a whole other tower there, and it's just outside of the weekends. I mean, before the pandemic struck and, and after stations bought them, I mean, you you know, it was like the Rio. You know, it's like $30 a night or even nineteen ninety nine a night, and then, of course, you got the resort fee, you know, because outside of the weekend, they just can't sell those rooms. Well, There's right, and that, that's what I was saying is that I just don't – too many rooms. I just don't see – that 
they're going to be able to make something really that viable out of this because it it, it what's going to draw people over there? It, it, they, the one thing that was drawing people over there is gone. So they and they can't bring it back. Yeah. So I well. So then I so I read also that they're likely not going to go the route of headliners or, or you know think something like that to try to draw people in. Uh, because they learned that you know from previous. This is just this is on the vital vein. No, I saw, I saw it so, and I and I read it there. Oh, but okay. what I'm saying here is that uh, I think. No, I'm th- agreeing with you. I'm, I'm not disagreeing. I'm agreeing. I'm no, I know you are. But but I'm yeah, saying that I, I see what they're going for. They're they're going to run a lower budget operation so they don't have to spend as much money. Well, they have to. They have. There's no choice. Yes, but but I still yeah. don't think it's going to be viable even with that. So we'll yeah, have to see. I, I read they're not even going to have a, a day club. They're, they're not going to go heavy on the nightclub scene, which, you know, that's what you kind of have to do to get the young crowd in. But besides those busy weekends and, you know, those three-day weekends and, and special events, you know, Sunday night through Friday morning, it's going to just be a ghost town. Yes. You know, for the most part. It's very, very hard to uh, fill that many, you know. I mean, even right across the street, you have a place like the Gold Coast, which, of course, doesn't have as many rooms to fill. But, you know, that's still a very, believe it or not, as dumpy as it is, it's still a very thriving casino. I mean, it is. It is. It's it's still a locals casino that people love, and even some tourists that come to town stay there, and you know they have good food, and you know they built it up over the years. So, uh, but it, it will be interesting to see. And you know, I'm, I'm trying, as you mentioned, not to prejudge any. I, I don't have any bad experiences with any Indian casinos because I was too young back then to ever do anything that would even draw any attention to me when i you know lived in florida and since i've been out here i've had no need um i think a couple times or actually not, i think a couple times i've gone to temecula uh to the casino there i can't think of the name of it but it's the one on the way to you know the what's the big casino in temecula i mean it's a gorgeous resort do you know which one i'm talking about oh you're uh pachanga yeah pachanga i've been there several times gorgeous it's, it's amazing and I've been to a couple in Palm Springs when I vacationed there. But outside of that, I don't have really any any history like you would because they're not, you know, they're not near me. So, but again, as, as you said, and I agreed with, they, you know, they still have a certain, you know, amount of guidelines they have to follow. They can't go rogue. They start, they can't, you know, just violate state law, you know, just because that's how they've operated in other states. So, um, and then the other thing that was really nice I read in that same blog was I saw that. Uh, what was, is it San Manuel? Is that the name of the tribe? It's San Manuel. Yeah. San Manuel that they, uh, have already donated. It was a lot of money. It was like $10 million to yeah. various Vegas, uh, charities. And this is even before anyone knew this sale was going to go through. Most of it was months and months ago, uh, with the pandemic. And I was reading, they've made other contributions to the city. So, you know, who knows, give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, I'll tell you. I think it's been about a month now, maybe a little bit more. I have not been to the Virgin. Uh, what is it? Even? Is it just called Virgin Atlantic? Is well, it's it's the Mohegan Sun Casino, and then the Virgin is the uh, hotel. Okay, so I have not been there, and I don't have any inclination to go there. And I'm thinking about this, you know, the other day. Normally, you know, when a new place opens, when it kind of slows down, like you know, I've already been to the Circa. I'll be at the resort world sometime during the, their first month. But outside of someone coming to town and me having to visit them there or some kind of request to eat a meal there that somebody loves, you know, that happens to be there, I don't see myself even going there. There's nothing there in this world that would be even appealing for me to drive to that 
part of town, you know, cross the strip and then navigate my way in, you know, into that property. And it's not just because of the bad press. I mean, I've read some of the stuff, the reviews, it's pretty brutal. You know, the, the banning of, I know you covered all this, but the banning of bloggers and just the way they've treated people, the, the, the free room stuff. But uh, I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking, man. I mean, I know that guy's a lot of money, that Richard Branson, but it just seems like, how can that place be successful? Nah, someone didn't I think just, it through. Someone made a mistake. That's what happened. And not just someone, like a number of someone's made a mistake. Yeah. They just didn't think a lot of things through. Like like you just don't, in Vegas, have a different company own the hotel and the casino and then have to charge each other for comps and then and then have uh, each side want to be able to make up the money from each customer. Like it, it, you're asking for disaster there when things like that are – they just sure. didn't think about that until people are like, wait a minute. You're telling me you're going to start charging people for comps if they didn't play enough? Like no one else does that. <laughs> like you can't just – you can't just say, "Well, we have to get back the money somehow because we're paying, uh, we're paying the hotel for the room." Like that's that's the whole problem. Yeah. Like you can't, uh, you have to think it all through. And if you're starting to do non-standard things like that, which are customer unfriendly, then you're going to drive everybody away. Especially if you are not really bringing anyone over there for anything good. You have if there's not, if you don't have very much that's good, and then right. you have a lot that's bad. No one's going to come. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I'll say I'll say one more thing since we're just talking about Vegas and, and all this stuff. Last week, uh, bef- right before I got my second shot. And I mean, I know you would disagree with this, but, it, it, you know, I've done this a few times since the pandemic. And I'm, you know, when I go to hotels, I've stayed in a number of hotels during the last year just to kind of, you know, break up the monotony. Ninety five percent of the time when I'm doing this, I'm just in my room or I'm by myself, you know, so I but anyhow, so last week I had the opportunity to get a free room, which I very, very rarely do at the win. And I stayed there for three nights. And so, you know, since the pandemic has started, I've stayed at the Cosmo several times. I've stayed at Caesars. I've stayed at the Venetian. I've stayed at the Wynn, um, stayed at South Point. I've stayed at the Circa. Anyhow. I just want to say, and of course, they're not paying me, but for people that come here that really just want a great experience and, you know, assuming you could obviously either find a really good deal or if money isn't an issue, uh, I just want to go on record and say at this point, win is far and above every other property when it comes to customer service, when it comes to cleanliness, food, I mean, just every level. I was so impressed and I'd stayed there once or twice before. Uh, since I've moved here, since I've lived here, but it's been years ago. And, you know, I just, for whatever reason, wasn't able to focus on a lot of this, maybe because I was in my room so much this time, but just everything from the cleanliness to the friendliness to the food. I mean, it's just, it's above, it's above every other casino. It's not even close. Like it's like a star above, like a full star. So anyone that, that, you know, is coming to Vegas that, that can afford it, you can still get pretty good room rates there. Um, during the week. I mean, when I say pretty good, I mean like 200 or less for like, you know, just a standard room. Uh, it's going to be way more than that on the weekends, but, uh, if you know, that's not an issue to you. Uh, and I'm not talking about the gambling because, you know, I would never tell anybody to play on the strip because it's just, you know, it's a money pit, but anyhow, uh, just really, really enjoyable stay. I mean, obviously everything's expensive, but it's, you know, it's not much more if you're at Aria or if you're at, you know, Bellagio or MGM, I mean, everything's always going to be marked up. Um, have you ever stayed at the win? I mean, I know you've never, you wouldn't play there or do anything to get your own comps, but have you had friends or any hookups that have ever 
given you an opportunity to stay I, there? I have stayed there. Uh, it's been a while. I have played there in the past, not recently, but uh, I did, I've played there before. Not just poker. I'm saying I've played uh, elsewhere in the win. I haven't spent a ton of time there, but I've, I've been there a number of times. And what was your what was your impression for the most part? Do you kind of agree with me? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's, yeah. it's, a, okay. it's a nice place. Yeah. So I'm basing that off of when Resort Worlds opens. I'm going to use that kind of as a comparison in terms of, you know, if, if the service is up to par, you know, if it's a little bit less, you know, I'm curious to see. Um, so anyhow, uh, I know I was on the show with you last week and – I had some very, very, very mild symptoms from the second shot, but I'm feeling great now. Uh, it didn't get any worse. You know, I, I had some stomach cramping and just minor things like that, but never any fever or any body aches. Um, I talked to, like, I don't think he would mind me saying this, uh, or I exchanged texts over the last few days with uh, Daredevil, who's in Vegas, as he talked about on radio, still grinding poker here. And he had his shot this past Friday and he was concerned and he had sent me a number of texts asking, you know, how I was like, you know, a couple hours in the next day, but anyhow, fortunately he was a little tired and nothing, nothing at all. And he had the same shot. I believe we both had, he had the Pfizer and uh, outside of some grogginess, nothing at all. Didn't feel a thing. No headaches, no fever, no body aches, nothing. Little arm soreness. So he's, he's good to go. Um, and I'm probably going to meet up with him at some point, uh, later in the week. Uh, I just hit my, what is this? Seven, eight, nine, 10. I'm on day 14 now since I'm sorry, day 13, since my second shot. And I think from what I've read, what do they say? Like two weeks, 14 to 20 days is, is the amount it takes of time it takes before you have the full. No, 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 it's just just two weeks. Okay. So I'm, I'm, yeah, so I'm basically good to go now. No, it couldn't be two weeks. You're, you're, I, I just said two weeks uh, today, and and I, I was before you. Friday? No, I'm sorry. So I'm at, I'm at Saturday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Then another oh, half okay, week. I'm sorry. I'm at, yeah, I'm at 11 days. Yeah. So I'm, I'm three days short. If that's, yeah, I got it a week ago Friday. Yeah, okay. So, so, so you have you have, uh, you have till Friday. You have like four more days. But uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, so I, I returned to doing normal things yesterday, and. I, I what was the what did you do? What was the first thing you did out you know outside of your range for the last year? I got a haircut. Oh yeah, it's funny you said you were gonna do that. Yeah, nice. that's what I did. Eleven thirty AM I went and did it. Did had you had your girlfriend or anyone else even trim your hair or did you do it no. yourself? No, no. So your hair has fully had been growing for a year. Yes. Wow. More than no, a year. I since, that, that since early early February was the last time of twenty twenty. I assume by by far that was the longest your hair had ever been. Yes, but it actually slowed down a lot. It didn't get as long as I thought it would because it slowed down a lot after it got to a certain length. Well, what about your son? Uh, same thing with him until close to uh, maybe about a month ago. My my girlfriend finally cut his hair, so I actually didn't take him for the haircut because wow. he didn't really need it. But uh, I went, and uh, so I, my hair has been cut now. Nice. And uh, did uh, did you do anything else? Do a dinner? Go anywhere else? Yeah, yeah. I, I just... went. No, I actually went and uh, visited, visited some people and uh, brought Benjamin with me. And then uh, then I went nice. to, I went to a home poker game at night. I, mean, I don't even know if uh, you talked about it. And if, if this is not something you wanted to say on the air, I totally get it. But I assume your 
girlfriend got the second shot as well. Did she have any symptoms? Yeah, I actually mentioned it a little bit in the thread on on the forum. So I'll I'll tell the same thing on here as I said in the forum. She had a completely different uh, experience than I did. She had two symptoms, which I did not have. Uh, Her overall experience was easier than mine. She did not get sick at all. I got sick, as you guys know, for two days uh, plus. She did not, and she, and then I got a, like a kind of an after sickness too. She didn't get sick, but she got a kind of ball, like a swelling under her arm that kind of looked like a ball, and uh, and I've it hurts. Some people and, that. and yes, some people get that. It is normal. Someone else on the site got this. Uh, someone posted on the forum that he had this ball under his arm. He said it was hard to even uh, keep his arm down because it hurt so much. And so he was complaining about that. And then she also had a weird pain on the top of her hands. Both hands on the tops were very sore. So both of those are, are normal, especially the uh, the arm, the underarm pain is known. They, they don't really mention that as a possible side effect, but it was found that some people get this. And she did not get sick, though. And I did not get anything with my underarm nor the tops of my hands. So the symptoms she got, I didn't get. And then she didn't get sick, but I did get sick, and my sickness lasted longer than it usually does for people with a second shot. So that was the bad thing for me. I I actually scared a number of people who were going to get the second shot shortly after I did. And when I reported my experience, uh, some people were very nervous to get it. And then I know even you said you kind of got shaken a bit from my description. But it's different for everybody. I mean, it you know, it's just... The main thing with me was I was thinking in my head my entire life, if I ever could think of a scenario in which I basically was feeling great and knew ahead of time I was shortly thereafter not be feeling great. And that was what was kind of fucking with me a little bit because, you know, you get sick and you don't normally see it coming or, you know what I mean? Like, it's just weird. You know what I'm Yeah, saying? I thought of that, too. Mind. I thought about, the, yeah, I've never thought, okay, well, I'm going to be sick tomorrow. <laughs> I think. Right, exactly. Like when you're feeling great the day before. So that, so that's what it was. And I just kind of wanted to get it over with. It was more the anticipation than anything. Like, it wasn't like, oh, you know, I'm scared. Now, I know people that are scared. You know, I know people that literally, or I have, I have friends that were so scared of either, either the sickness or, or also the needle that they just decided to get Johnson & Johnson just to be one and done, even though, you know, it, it, yeah, I know some people like that the, too, which is just strange to me, but I guess, you know, I don't have that kind of a, a phobia, but you know, what's funny but is my, my, my biggest, uh, thing that I kept telling myself beforehand was, okay, well, at least I know how long it lasts. I know that, uh, no matter what, once, if it does get bad, uh, once 24 hours pass yeah. from that point, then, uh, it'll be better. And that's not yeah. how it worked out for me. It's funny. I'm one of the, yeah. I kept telling myself that, and then it actually didn't happen for me that way, and I actually got stuck with it for extra time. And then at that point, I'm like, shit, now I don't know when this is going to end. <laughs> now now it's yeah. just like being regularly sick where you don't know when it's going to be over. But uh, sure. but I, I don't regret getting it. I mean, I, I, th- I said I know there's some sort of relatively short amount of time that I'm going to feel that way, and then the benefit I get from it is so much better than that. Than the than how bad that is, so yeah, sure. those days are going to suck, and they did. But uh, and then you never know; there may be in all likelihood we'll have to get a third shot. Yeah, I thought about that. Maybe even in a year, I have to go through this again. Which at least I kind of know what to expect. But yeah, still. yeah. Uh, so two other things that I could think of that I should probably mention. Uh, so while I was at the win, and you know I don't gamble there much, so this could have been going on for quite some time. 
but I'm walking, I don't know, to my room or I got some food, whatever it may be. And there's a number of table games there, but the two main roulette tables that are like right in front of where the cashier is. I'm sure anyone that's been there knows what I'm talking about. There's you know, a couple of craps tables. Anyhow, two roulette tables facing the cashier and the main walkway that leads to rooms and kind of like a you know circle or square walk around the property. Both of them triple zero. Great. <laughs> and both packed. And I don't know, you know, I guess after the Venetian started this and it got a lot of bad press or, you know, I guess got press, but probably most of it was negative. I don't know if the wind did it, you know, suddenly thereafter. No one talked about it because it was already, already been done. But anyhow, it's definitely there now. And I'm looking and there's people that, you know, it's packed. Like you couldn't, you know, you couldn't, I couldn't get in and play if I wanted to. People are just lining up to th- throw their money in and, and I'm wondering, I'm in my head, like, do these people not know? Do they not care? Like, it's just, it's, it's a very strange thing. So, and then the other thing is, uh, I don't know if you touched on this. In the last week, there's been a crazy amount of multi-million dollar jackpots hit on slot machines in Vegas. Like, it's like, like it hasn't happened before. I think there's like, there's been six or seven of them over like the last eight days. Something ridiculous. No, um, I didn't know that. Like South Point one mega bucks or I, don't know, I think it was wheel of fortune whatever it was they put 40 bucks in they won 10 million there's another few million that hit at uh i think it was the d downtown but any other there's been several of these and you know it made news because it's normally not like this and so it led some to think you know is vegas doing this on purpose just to kind of get the publicity and people are going to hear another jackpot hit you know they're going to kind of drum it up and, you know, for marketing purposes, uh, I don't know if you've seen that, but uh, a ton of them, you know, guy from Alaska hit uh, somewhere on the strip for like five million dollars. And, you know, the whole point is and they emphasize these in these press releases that every single one of these, uh, at least the ones I've read in detail about, were all people that put forty dollars or less into a machine. <laughs> like these weren't people that were just firing. You know, these were three. I think the most was a five dollar slot was you know the most and that was like one of the jackpot ones most of them were like three dollar one of them was even like a dollar 25 like wheel of fortune that hit but there's been a number of those which you know yeah you live here you you hear about them you know all the time but not like this not like you know in such a row so it does kind of make you think if you know something like that's going on but uh outside of that i know i read in the radio thread before i called in I just kind of glanced it over. There's somebody in there, forgive me, I don't remember who it was, who said they were going to maybe call in and give an update on Vegas. Well, actually, he, he um, said he was going to be, uh, that was Go Buckos. He called in already, no. and he, he said he was going to be traveling throughout all of Nevada, and he'll give an update later. He hasn't done it yet. Oh, okay. But I can tell you, uh, the city is definitely picking up. You can see it. You can sense it. Um, every Almost every casino now, has either had some sort of job fair or they're going to have a job fair because they just need to hire. There's a, I mean, there's a mass employee shortage here, even in, in local, even in the locals market. And I'm talking not casinos, like restaurants. So basically the service industry in general, there's a major, major, major shortage. And a lot of these places are giving sign, sign up bonuses or hiring bonuses or other incentives to try to get people in because every, you know, a lot of places, I mean, there's been article after article, about restaurants that are only running at like 50, 60% because that's all they have staff wise. 
Um, I'm sure you know there's like a big Uber. We might have even talked about this on here. There's a big Uber and Lyft shortage here now where they've lost literally close to 70% of the drivers that they had pre-pandemic. And people are getting frustrated and, and they're getting mad and, and leaving bad reviews for casinos. And the casinos are trying to say, listen, we can't control, you know, people are missing their flights. You know, they used to be able to say, oh, we have an hour, you know, hour and a half. We'll get an Uber real fast. But it's it's not, you know, it's not like that anymore. Sometimes it's taken, you know, up to two hours and in, in certain peak times to get. And if you're, uh, I've heard at the airport, people have had a hard time getting out of there. And, and- well, and the main reason is because right when this pandemic started, the, the governor uh, of Nevada, Governor Sisolak, put a moratorium or a block, whatever you want to call it, on surge pricing that these companies used to use during peak times that would incentivize drivers to to work, even when you know it's a Friday night, a Saturday night, it's a big fight, you know, whatever it is on the strip. Um, and now, because of the pandemic, you you have to charge the same amount at eight o'clock on a Saturday night that you have to do at four in the morning on a Tuesday. Um, so until that goes away, and I think that's still scheduled to, as it stands now, it's still months away. I mean, I haven't heard anything about any kind of legislation to change it or cancel it or go back to the status quo. Um, but anyhow, the point I'm making is things are, are good. I mean, things are, you know, picking up here. Um, I've read some forecasts that even have said as early as January or February of next year that they expect Las Vegas to either be right at the pre-pandemic levels or slightly even above it. I don't know if I believe that, but maybe. Uh, I know that the city was very excited that CES um, has already agreed to come back next year to Vegas. And that's going to be, as of right now at least, that's the first major convention that's already been signed, sealed, and delivered. Um, And CES, I don't know how many people they bring in, but it's it's six figures. I mean, it's well over 100,000 that come in, you know, that, so I mean, that's massive for the city. So that was announced and that got people excited um, because as I'm sure, you know, I mean, that's where really where the money comes from. These yeah. Days. I mean, yeah. I've discussed that you know, without here. convention businesses, like this, this city would just literally become an Atlantic city over time. Like well, that, just, that's, that, that's, I that's discussed that on, I think last week, uh, I didn't discuss this tonight, but I've, I've talked about that before, how the, it became very convention dependent over the years and that's killing the city that they can't have them. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's basically it on 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 my side. What what about yourself? Uh, how has the show been? How many subjects do you have left? What what is left to talk about? Uh, we we don't anything? have that much left. Uh, I was in the middle of talking about the uh, legalization in Florida that uh, can bring sports betting and uh, and online poker. Eventually, oh. it, may, it may be it may be years until this happens mm-hmm. because they the, the agreement only says they're going to negotiate in good faith with the state over the next three years. But uh, I, I, what I'm hoping for with online poker, and uh, this is really the only way online poker in the legalized market is going to be anything but a fail, and that is if there is a big population that can access it all on the same network. That uh, sure, and because you you need a large population to feed into it, and if you don't have that large population, games just aren't going to go, and yeah. and so they. They need to get the big states aboard, and then they need to network them together. And then when you start having over 100 million people that can legally access it, of course, you're not going to get 100 million people playing. In fact, a lot aren't even going to be of age. But uh, once you have that population that that is uh, in legalized 
online poker territory, and if they can all play together, then you can have a, a good-sized pool, and then it's not going to return to poker boom levels because there's not an interest in the game like there was in the 2000s, but th- there will be a lesser version of that that's still very viable. But the way it's... Well, listen, it's- I, think, I think this pandemic has proved that there's still a lust for poker. Well, it's I mean, funny, it's at, funny you at- mention that because uh, online poker has been dying over the past few weeks. It's been well, right because people aren't home. Some people that were working at home and able to kind of play, you know, or you know, whatever it may be, you know, that they're not finding that they have that same amount of time. But I'm saying the fact that all these home games and groups, and I mean, I can't even. T- I'm sure you know. I can't even tell you how many groups I've been invited to over the last year. And you know, I was in this group with, where there were people consistently playing tournaments every day, twice a day for for a year. For a year. Oh yeah, I I know. But but that's because they couldn't play live. What's happened now in the last few months, in the last few weeks, not months, is that people are starting to go back to play live again. Either they got vaccinated, sure. or that just games are getting going and they're willing to go take right. the chance unvaccinated. But, so so that the people right. who were kind of forced to online poker didn't really want to didn't want to normally be there. Well, are leaving. Not now. everybody. No, not everyone. But, but point taken. But what what I'm suggesting is that if. Over some time, online poker does come back, and it's a good enough product with good enough tournaments and, and enough value. I think that it, 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 I mean, although obviously, yeah, it won't get back to where it was, you know, 15 years ago. But I'm saying it still has the potential to, to, I don't know, pick up some momentum. I mean, I, I just think there's still enough of, of a craving, you know, enough people out there that crave it, that enjoy it, that. If it got to that point where it's so easy and, you know, because you talk to people now, oh, there's still online poker. A lot of people didn't even know. Oh, you know, oh, Amer- you know, th- there are people I know that play that didn't even know that Americans can play on any sites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know there's not awareness of it massively. Exactly. So, but and- if there was a, oh, you know, poker stars come back and there's 30 states that are all connected or, you know, party poker, or, you know, 88 poker. I think there, there, there would be interest. I think it could cause, you know, maybe a mini boom. You know, don't you possibly? Well, what what could you know. especially happen is because this is all being driven by sports, including the Florida thing. Okay, so because it's all being driven by sports, if they can combine the poker sites and the sports offerings to where you can use the same bankroll on the same site and and switch them over or use the same money, and then then you'll especially have a mini boom because then you're going to have sports betting people moving over and playing poker also and these people tend to not be very good and then you have fish feeding the games again rather than just a bunch of existing good players who who kind of got better at poker over the years uh trading the same money around so what you need is fish to feed the game like you had in the 2000s and that that could bring them as a sports now speaking of of poker uh and forgive me i don't know if you even touched on this uh and should have mentioned this when we were talking about the win uh, I assume you saw the big announcement that the win made probably five, six days ago about this summer. Actually, I did not see what was the announcement. Okay, so the win is having a massive poker series that's going to start the end of this month and go into July, and it's basically a mini World Series. Um, they decided that you know what. The WSOP is going to play it safe, so let's just see if we can take some of that market and, and some of that desire that people have for playing poker and, and coming here during the summer. Go ahead while I'm talking about it and pull it up so you can go over the schedule because it is kind of interesting. So 
when I say it, it's a mini World Series, they're giving it a brand new name. They're not like calling it, you know, the win, you know, whatever that, you know, like they normally have their various smaller series. Um, I think it's called the Win Millions. I think that's the yeah. Name I see that Win Millions. Yeah, yeah, with Win as like W Y N N, and you know, instead of Win, play on words. But what they're doing is they're doing a main event, which I can't. I think it's ten. Yeah, it's ten. I'm pretty certain it's ten thousand dollars. With four starting days, uh, you can re-enter twice, um, and I believe it just can't be the same day. But I know it's only double double re-entries for the main event. And I believe again, it's just you know if you buy in the first time day one A, then you can't buy in again day one A. You have to come back the next day, and you can also obviously surrender your stock. But and I think it was, and I just read this you know once or twice, so you know I want you to read this while I'm talking, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. And I believe the guarantee for the main event was seven million dollars, which is by far their biggest guarantee. No, it's actually ten million. It's ten. Okay. Which is by far the big, yeah, it is 10. That's right. Because I was doing the math the other day. They need 1,000 people, blah, blah, blah. So, which is by far the biggest guarantee they've ever had. And I know what they're doing. They're thinking, well, you know, maybe this will take off. And this can, you know, they know people aren't happy. Some people aren't happy with the WSOP product and the, the brand and something that's been, you know, disrespected. Anyhow, but what's interesting is, as I said, it's like a mini WSOP. They're also going to be offering other games, other tournaments, I should say that are offered at the WSOP that the win is never offered. They're going to have a, uh, and I believe it's only one of each. They're going to have a eight game tournament, eight game mix. Yeah, I see they're that. They're going to have a limit Omaha 08 tournament that they don't have. They don't have a limit Hold'em tournament. And they're going to have a number of PLO high PLO eight PLO high roller tournaments. And of course, most of it's concentrated on no limit because that's what, what, you know, the market is that's where, where people are going to come play um but i'll tell you to give you a brief idea of just how thirsty people are for some of these mixed games i did not play in it but genie and a number of other friends of mine that enjoy mixed games played in a omaha eight tournament last thursday at the win it was three hundred dollars i think it was like a twenty five thousand dollar guarantee how many people do you think they had three hundred dollar tournament Limit 08. Take a guess. 120? At 180 people. Mm. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot for, for you know, just that, is. that kind of a one-day yeah, one tournament. So anyhow, it's very, very interesting, and, and I'm surprised. You know, I'm actually glad that I called in and, and told you because this is something you definitely want to cover. Um, I haven't looked at the structures. I, don't, I haven't looked at the rake or any of that to determine value but whatever i'm sure it's going to be similar to what it always is but this is definitely their attempt to try to at least take a mini stab and and, and get that market that's craving uh poker because it's funny while that's going on all through the end of may and then early june and into, into july the wsop is going to be offering a competing set of, of tournaments but they're all going to be online. Yeah, I know. The online World Series yeah. in the summer and then the live and, ones in, right. in uh, then, the fall. Right, yes. But the interesting thing is because you have to travel to one of two states, either Nevada or Atlantic City. Yeah, so if you're in Atlantic City, you're in New Jersey. I should say not Atlantic City. You have to be in New Jersey. If you're in New Jersey or close to it, you know, you're probably just going to do that. But I can't imagine 
that you know unless you're one of those people that are just like bracelet hunters and and that's what just matters just the fact that it's a bracelet and not you know the, the buy-ins or any of that stuff but i imagine if you're going to actually come and fly to vegas you're much more inclined especially the uh you know the the, the casual player you know the amateur or just the recreational player it's much more likely to come here to vegas and play live than to check into a hotel room like some people did last year and play you know online so i think it's really going to kill those numbers maybe not kill it but i definitely it's going to hurt those numbers. yeah it probably will now i'm looking at the schedule right now something i am noticing is the i haven't looked at the online world series schedule yet but the buy-ins are not that high for this it's uh it's much lower than what the world series would be for most of the events so uh, most of them tend to be 400 550 or 600 and there's a few that are four figures in there. And then, of course, there's the main event that's 10K. Sure. Well, they're going after the casual gambler. They're going after the recreational like gambler that normally would come here and play like a Planet Hollywood series or, you know, something like that where they want to play a number of, you know, low to mid stakes buy-ins but not, you know, shoot off 30,000. But I can tell you all the big name, you know, players are likely going to play that 10K. It's probably, yeah, you know, it's, I think it's so, easily, yes. Yeah, it's easily going to crush – it's not going to be a fail. I mean, it's easily going to crush the guarantee. You know, they'll get a, they'll get a thousand players. Absolutely. Yeah, they they should a, get. So I see. There's there's also a million dollar guarantee that's well, a well, sixteen hundred so, entry. So why don't you do this? I'll, I'll I'll mute myself for a minute here, or we can just go through it together. Why don't you go through the schedule? Because it's kind of interesting. Why don't you start from the top and just kind of quickly go over the schedule for people that aren't even aware of this? Well, it, it starts on May twenty seventh. And uh, it's it's a four hundred dollar buy in with only a forty k guarantee, so that's not that anything that exciting. The first major one they have is the next day on the twenty eighth. There's a million dollar guarantee, eleven hundred dollar event, which is no limit hold'em, and that's got three starting days. That's on the twenty eighth, twenty ninth, and thirtieth of May. Then uh, then they have a hundred fifty k guarantee that's six hundred dollar buy in on June first and second. Then they have a series of. Uh, uh, other tournaments, which are 400, 550, or I guess it's either 400 or 550 for the Limit Omaha 8 or better, then uh, No Limit Hold'em, then Seniors No Limit Hold'em, then Horse, then uh, some No Limit Hold'ems, then PLO. Then on the, on the June 7th, then they have the 250K guarantee for $600. So that one, I guess, is people who want uh, a good guarantee for something that's three, a three-figure buy-in. Then on, on the 10th, they're they're back to some no limits, and the eight game mix is a uh, five fifty to enter. That's on June eleventh. They have a ladies event on June thirteenth. No limit hold'em. They have a, a PLO five hundred bounty with a hundred thousand guarantee on June thirteenth. Uh, then they have a few more no limit events. Then there is the million dollar guarantee, which is a sixteen hundred buy in, which is on June seventeenth. Then they have a smaller event for a 400 buy-in with a 100K guarantee, which is on uh, June 21st. Then uh, the big 10 million guarantee for the 10K buy-in, there's three starting days, June 25th, 26th, and 27th. And then they have some uh, other no-limit tournaments after that, such as there's something they call the mystery bounty. I'm not exactly sure how yeah, that, that works. Yeah, that looks interesting with a $1.5 million guarantee. Yeah, for $1,600 buy-in. And then there's a million-dollar guarantee for a $3,500 buy-in, which is, I guess they're expecting a smaller field, but it's a pretty big buy-in for only a million guarantee. Oh, I'm sorry, and I forgot to mention that. I, I don't know if you did. There's a horse as well. I said the Yeah, I said, I said the horse, that. yeah. 
Okay, gotcha. Yeah. All right. And then, and then there's a and then it finishes off with a 500k guarantee for 500 buy-in. So they're, they're again they're wanting uh, and that one actually has six starting days. So this last thing they're holding in starting July 10th with six starting flights over three days, they're hoping to get a thousand people at least for that too. Otherwise, they won't cover it. Sure. So this is and you know. It, it will. It makes sense because they don't want to, you know, offer a tournament series where everything is, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred, and up, and then it just be a, a total fair, fail and embarrassment. This is a safe way to play, and I'm sure they they realize there is a market for these tournaments. Absolutely. As of right now, this is the only thing in town for like the summer. And I know, like I've read, a couple other places are likely the Orleans, maybe the Golden Nugget, are off are, are likely to offer some summer series in, in the next week or so that we might hear about that's what i've been told but uh wouldn't you agree there's definitely a market for this and it's kind of i wouldn't say bold of them but you know it, it's smart i think it's smart business wise i think what they what they would be smarter to do would be to invent something that's similar to a bracelet which could be used yeah, to, to yeah, compete because yeah. if if the goal is that in future years they try to run this again and then start to get even a little more aggressive with uh, the competition with the World Series, especially if they think there are some people who are disenchanted with the World Series but feel that uh, that's really – it's kind of got a monopoly on, on that sort of series, which, which is a, a bunch of different – forms of poker being offered that's the only series that really exists for any decent buy-in that uh that you can do that so maybe if if people are if some of the pros are starting to get disenchanted with it and and would like to try something else maybe maybe this is their way to dip their foot in it they figure they can do it here during the summer when there is no world series except online but I, i agree with you that this will probably hurt the online version somewhat Especially with the people oh, sure. who are, uh, I mean, unless you're unless you're a bracelet hunter, you know, or just for some reason you just prefer online versus live. I mean, why would you come here to play that? Like, I wouldn't. I would never. If I didn't live here, I wouldn't come here. To you know, if I came here, I would come here to play that series. Well, yeah, and I'm I, like, and I, I'm going to be vaccinated. I am vaccinated, and I'm not going to come for this online series. And and whether I come for the like, if I happen to be there, maybe I'll play something, but I wouldn't come for it. And uh, well, that brings me to my next point, which you're not going to like. Um, I don't remember the person's name, but I read an article in the Las Vegas Review Journal. That's our local paper owned by the Adelson family, by the way. And they had somebody from UNLV. I don't know. Obviously, something to do with the communicable diseases or whatever it was. And he was of the opinion that the mask mandate is likely to stay put in Nevada until at least early next year. That was his opinion. I, I think he might be right. And, and you know, so any other point I was making, I know you've said before that you wouldn't play with a mask on. Um, and, I you know, I've said that I really didn't want to. But so my question, again, is if you knew that was a case, and in all likelihood, you know, whether it's early next year or whatever, probably if you wanted to play – the WSOP this year, you're going to have to wear a mask. It's yeah, I, gonna I'm probably going to skip it then. That's that's probably what's going to happen. Yeah, would you would you skip it this year? Or would you yes. even try? Yeah, I would skip it because um, I I wouldn't want to do it and then be stuck. Is the problem? And that's that's well, let me, let me, now. Let me ask you something. I know that and this is a suggestion. I know, and you've seen these, I'm sure, from just being out and about when you when you have left over the last year. That there's certain maybe not as safe, 
but there's certain cloth masks that are a lot looser and, and, and you know, made of a, a nicer fabric that are at least I have a couple of these. And I, I didn't wear these when I had to go out because I know they're not, you know, they don't protect you as much. But now, you know, for both of us, we don't need that, you know, the need to have, you know, a surgical mask completely covering our nose and just snug tight. Would you even attempt to maybe find a mask that you could breathe more comfortable through that was maybe more loose fitting and had a nicer fabric and it just see if that was more manageable? Or are you just totally at the point where any combination of having to wear any sort of mask whatsoever is just a deal breaker for you? No, it's just too bothersome for that many hours. That's the problem. It's just it's just the length of time. It's just too oppressive to be stuck there yeah. in something I don't have to do. So that's that's well, the problem. I mean, yeah. I'm well, hoping if by you, if you balance it versus the enjoyment of playing versus not being manageable, and you determine it's not manageable, then yeah, then you know there's no enjoyment out of it. Then it's an easy it's an easy easy answer. You just don't play. Yeah, and and so I'm hoping maybe by September 30th that maybe there will be some massive improvement in the COVID situation. That it's still yeah. a fair amount of time. We're still, we're still talking about. Uh, uh, five months so hopefully by then that uh, there will be enough improvement to where they can right. lift this or at least something like you show proof you're vaccinated and you lift it you get some kind of some well, kind of thing you wear also, to show th- they're also predicting because of the, the loosening of of the mandate as of yesterday or i guess now technically two days ago that in about 30 to 45 days that we are going to see a spike here again in, in nevada see i don't and know about that a- because that they said that in Texas and it didn't happen. Though it may happen, yeah. but it's well, that's a- what I read. That's what I read. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know. I'm not, you know, a, a, a scientist. And um, but that's what. So they're saying that that likely in about thirty to forty five days because the contact has been reduced to three feet. Which I don't even. I mean, that's just a joke, anyhow. You know, go from six to three when they just released a study saying that it doesn't even matter if it's six. But either way, um, and then you know, obviously occupancy and the fact that people are going to be more closely packed into each other. Um, that's what they're saying. You know, I've read a couple articles out here that are predicting that, and you know, they're just going to see how bad it is before they decide, you know, what to do or how to counteract it. Um, but the point is, you likely, yeah, you wouldn't be able to likely. I don't see any scenario where you can play the main event or any tournaments this year in a casino in Vegas and not have a mask. Well, on see, I don't, I don't, I don't say that you don't see any. You may not see it, but I do see some scenarios. I'm not saying it's likely. The scenario I see to where is if there's a massive improvement by September, by late September, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not even the main event's in November, that's even further away. Yeah. There's a massive improvement by then, and then they start to say, you know what? The masking doesn't make sense anymore. You, it's, or, or mask, it, maybe they'll make it to where if you show, uh, um, if you show you have full vaccination, they give you a little thing to put out around your wrist to show you don't have to wear a mask. Something like that. Um, and, and that means, believe me, they, they don't want you, they don't want to have to require it if they don't have to, if that's driving people away sure. and it probably will drive some people away and they know it. So they'd probably much but rather, the also, but, the, but the also other side of that is that is, is long. And as of right now, the, the various unions that do have pull are pro mask in terms of their employees that, that are working on these properties, unless they change their tune as well. Uh, it could be a struggle. Well, it could be, but I, that's why I said something like where you'd get something to put around your wrist showing you've been vaccinated, yeah. and maybe they'd be happy enough with that where it's one of the two. Yeah. 
And uh, sure. so, so, so something like that. I'm not saying that I think that's going to be what occurs. I'm saying that it's got sure. a possibility. So I'm not writing it off. I'm not saying I'm not playing this year. I'm saying that there's a yeah. decent chance I won't play this year. And if that's what happens, that's what happens. And uh, now you wouldn't, you wouldn't, if you had the time and you know your son's taken care of or however it may be. Would you consider coming out here, you know, getting a room and playing in a couple events online, WSOP bracelet events, or that's not something you're even interested in? Probably not, unless I feel like coming anyway, and it just happens to be there too. But it's 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 just so much different than coming out for the actual World Series, which I actually look forward to and am excited to do, and, and make sure to make the time to have it happen. This would be one of these things like, oh well. Okay, I want to come anyway, so this is here. I'll kind of just time it there. That would be my attitude if I wanted to do it at all. But so yeah. it's it's something I really don't have that much interest in doing. When I've said for the years they've had these online events, I'm not just talking about last year. I'm talking about even before the pandemic. I always thought the online events were kind of stupid. I wasn't uh, a big fan. I wasn't super opposed to where no, I said I'd never course, play one. But they but, have to, I mean, they have, they have this online site, so they have to do it. You know what I mean? They can't just, they'd be more laughed at if they chose to ignore that. You know what I mean? I mean yeah, I, have, I'm just, you know, I'm just saying that, that it's, it's something that I, I haven't found uh, that appealing. Like, I don't even, I wouldn't even feel the same way winning an online bracelet as, as I did when I won my bracelet that I have now or a future bracelet in a live event. If I, like if I were to win another live bracelet, I, I would feel pretty similar to how I felt from the first bracelet, uh, maybe a little less yeah. excited because it'd be the second instead of the first, but I, I would, uh, I would uh, well, be very excited, very happy about remember, it. Remember there's, and I'm not saying this to, to damper the mood or nothing, but there's some dude that uh, I think he was remember reading, right? He's in his early twenties that lives in Eastern Europea somewhere in Eastern Europe, somewhere in Eastern Europe that uh, deposited $50 last summer and he has just as many bracelets as you do. I know. It's very sad. It's embarrassing. <laughs> and of course, for those that don't get that, I'm talking about that there was a uh, $50 WSOP event last yes, year that was, that on was... GG Poker. It wasn't made available to uh, American players unless, of course, you traveled overseas. But there's some dude and I mean, that's got to be the record like that lasts forever. Like I can't see them ever making a bracelet lower than that. <laughs> it was a five dollar bracelet one day. Even be a fifty. It, it, it was such a novelty. I can't even imagine there'll be another fifty dollar event. I mean, even you know this year when they, I don't have they released any sort of uh, outside of North America series yet. Uh, like, I don't think so. Year? I don't think we've seen that yet. Okay. I, only only so, like but that even online. if they did, I can't imagine there's going to be another fifty dollar event. Like that's just so ridiculous. That's a, that's the most ridiculous thing I, I I mean that I think I've ever heard of with the, you know the WSOP. You know what? Maybe they'll come out with a new event, a massive field new event called the Nickel, which is five dollar entry. The Nickel, the big, the big Nickel, the big Nickel, <laughs> the big Nickel. Unbelievable. So, but anyhow, uh, for those that don't didn't know about it and just still want to get your fix of poker. Um, I'll tell you, I don't know where these tournaments are going to be played in the win. I imagine they won't be in the poker room. Um, but as of right now, uh, they've been running tournaments and their cash games in the Encore, uh, which is the you know connected property to the win. And it's just it's a beautiful poker room. Uh, I've been there. Uh, amazing seats. Very, very spacious. What's very important to me, great air quality. You don't smell smoke. Um 
you know, it's not loud. There's not slot machines and, and other. It's it's a beautiful poker room. So if this is something that that those that are listening, uh, you know, are into, I highly recommend the property, uh, playing there. You know, obviously not necessarily staying there if that's not in your budget, but uh, you know, it's, it's a good way to maybe get back into live poker. Um, I don't know. I'll see how I feel. You know, later this month in, in June, but I may play one of them. You know, I have this mask that I got as I mentioned to you early in the pandemic before I knew how severe it was going to get. And it's kind of cloth and it's real light and soft. And I think if I wear that, it would, it would, it would be manageable. I think I probably could wear that and, and be all right. Uh, everybody's really got their so own standard. And it's so soft. Huh? Everybody's got their own standard. You know, if yeah, no, no, sure. I get it. You know, it's funny you say that. Cause I, I know people that like, I mean, that have been playing since the casinos open and they have no problem. I know people that play six, seven hours, they have no problem. It doesn't bother them at all. And then I know people like you and, and, and to some degree me that just can't stand it. So it, it, it just kind of goes both ways. You know, like Jeannie, she plays a ton. Oh, she's probably played in, geez, maybe 50 tournaments over the last few months easily. And she has no problem. She's played 10, 12, 14 hours in a day. And it just doesn't bother her. So, yeah, like you said, I guess to, to each their own. But uh, I wonder if the WSOP knew a few months ago what they knew now, if they would have still had a summer series, even if it was scaled back. You know what I mean? If they knew that things would be thriving again and people would really, really just be having the urge to get out. If they knew this back in, say, February, March, do you think they would have come up with something? Yeah, they might have, even just yeah. delayed a little bit. Yeah. Or even like had like a WSOP A and then a WSOP B like in the fall, like two of them, you know, just like a mini one now or, you know, however you want to, you know, describe it. So, um, but anyhow, that, that's all I really got. Um, what did you say there were any more to, are all yeah, the topics done? No, there's a few more topics here. What are the ones you have left? If you don't mind me asking uh, the, uh, the Pennsylvania market's going to have some uh, more sites besides poker stars. And, uh, then we also have uh, a limit holdem with Dan Druff discussion. Oh, can we do that? Okay, we'll do that. I next. like this downline. Okay, that. let's do yeah, it. Okay. What's the okay? So us. listen, listen to this crazy hand, and uh, let's see if you, who I know has played a good deal of limit holdem yourself, I wonder if you can uh, explain what what I was thinking here. This is an unusual hand now. I, I want to tell everybody that this was a 3060 online game on uh, Ignition, also Bovada, same network, and that uh, this is something that applies to that game with those specific opponents, which I'm going to talk about. This isn't something you would do every time. It's also only a three-handed game, which, of course, changes a lot uh, what you would do versus like a nine-handed game or even a six-handed game. So you have to keep all these in mind that uh, the high-stakes games play differently. And this is considered you know, kind of high-stakes for, for online. And uh, they're, they're more aggressive. You, if, if, Of course, when it's three-handed, you, you give people less credit for things. All that uh, you have to keep in mind here. So here's the situation. I was dealt pocket sixes, and uh, I was in the small blind. And remember, there's only three players. There's the button, there's me, small blind, and then there's a big blind. Neither of them is a bad player. We have the uh, the big blind, who is very good. And then we have the button, who's kind of okay, but kind of uh, calls a bit too loosely sometimes when it, he's probably beat and should fold 
pre, uh, post-flop. So that's the profile of the two opponents. So the button raises. I've got sixes in the small blind. Obviously, I three bet. Remember, this is limit hold'em. And then the big blind. Remember, he's the one who uh, I said is uh, he's a top pro. He uh, is aggressive pre-flop, but he's also careful post-flop not to put his money in bad. He's pretty good at figuring out post-flop if he's ahead or behind. So while he's aggressive, he doesn't just hammer when he's behind. He, he thinks very carefully about things like that. So he caps at pre-flop, which again doesn't necessarily mean he has a premium hand, but he's not doing this with junk either. See, he, the big blind caps, and both of us call. Well, I flop a set. 10-6-5 is the board with two diamonds. We've got pocket sixes, remember. So, um, Brandon, what do you think I do next? Do you think uh, I just lead out and hope to get raised, or do you think I check raise it, or do you think I slow play it and just check call? It's three-handed here. Oh, I'm sorry. Tell me one more time. Where are you? I'm in the what small blind, and the big blind. I was a three-better, and then the big blind was a capper. Okay. And now it's uh, uh, flopped the set. I'm going to guess that you checked. But do you think I check with a attempt to check raise or just a check call? No, it's a check raise. Okay, well, you're right. So I I, uh, I planned to check raise, and I did. I checked. The big blind who had capped it uh, is the better of the two opponents. He bet. Button calls. I check raise. They both call. Okay, pretty standard. The turn, a three of diamonds, not what I wanted to see. Because uh, now there's three the diamonds on the there. deck. So, uh, what do you think I do at that point? There, uh, remember I, I check raised the the big blind yeah. called the well, button. Uh, call. So should um, I still fire? I think you probably slowed down and checked the turn. I did not. I bet. Wait till wait well, till you hear wait till you hear the the craziness here. I still bet it, and now the big blind raised, and then the button. Cold calls two on the turn. Remember, the guys, the turn is right. double the flop in limit hold'em. You have to, they had to, okay. so I bet 60. Big blind made it 120. Button calls the 120. Big, the big blind, or sorry, the button likely has the ace of diamonds or maybe the king of diamonds. And then it comes back to me. Now, obviously, I'm not folding, but would you believe I three bet? I three bet this out of I, yeah, position. I See, that's probably why you're better than me. Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to be result oriented. I'm going to take a guess that you won the hand because we're talking about it, but I, I would not have three bet there. So you can go ahead and tell us what was your yeah. reason. So I'll, I'll tell you after I explain the hand why I did this here. So th- this is the big hold question. On, hold on, I think it's easier this way. Like, so what were you thinking at that moment? No, no, I, I'd rather get to the end than I'll okay. explain it. All right. So, All right. so this, right. this is the big decision here, though. That the, the flop was pretty obvious, not super obvious, but fairly. It was pretty standard. The, uh, not everybody plays it that way, but it's uh, not unusual to do it the way I did. The turn was what was unusual, that I three-bet this out of position. Remember, I'm the first one to act. Out of position, three-betting into this three-flush board when I just have a set against two opponents. So I three-bet and both called. The river probably didn't change very much. A jack- well, and also, you have to kind of understand that you can't just assume... Every time that I mean, if you just assume and slow down every time a flush gets there and limit hold them, you're gonna you're gonna lose a ton of value. Yes, overall, well, that, right that was part of it. Yeah. So the so, river, I mean, you can't just assume. You know, it's still hard to make a flush. I mean, it's not. You know, it's 
anyhow, go on. The river was a jack of clubs. So I bet the big blind called, the button folded. Well, I was... Uh, so, so the button did have the ace or king of spades then. Well, we'll, we'll, or diamonds. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about this. Diamonds, we'll talk about that in a second. The so obviously the big blind didn't have the nuts, or otherwise he would have raised the the river. But before showdown, I wasn't sure if I took down the hand or not because, for example, if the button had flopped top set with pocket tens, he would have played the same way. He probably would not have capped it because I was three betting out of position with a flush on the board. So um, I wasn't sure I won this just because he called the the river. A lot of times in limit holdem, if you bet the river and get called. Based on what you have, you know you've won 100%. Uh, here, I wasn't sure whether he was going to show down a flush, or like a low flush, or, or, or something like pocket tens beating me. Well, he didn't, and I won the hand. So let's let's talk about why I did what I did on the turn. But actually, I'm going to talk about the whole way why I, why I did what I did. Okay, pre-flop standard. No point to talk about that. Let's get let's get to post-flop. On the flop, when I flop the set, you can check raise, you could slow play till the turn, or you can just what's called donk betting mean you just fire out and hope to get raised and you can three bet so why did i just why did i just do the check raise well in limit hold'em a big mistake that a lot of people make who are not uh great limit hold'em players or, or people who are no limit hold'em players that are trying to play limit hold'em is they think that if they flop something big you have to slow play you don't want to give away on the flop. You're strong, so you've got you've got to wait to the turn to check raise. That's what a lot of people think in limit hold'em. That's incorrect. What you want to do in limit hold'em if you hit something big is check raise the flop because in li- limit hold'em there is a lot of times when people will check raise the flop with something not all that strong because they think they have the best hand, but it's uh, in reality not super strong. So what you're hoping to do there is not only do you get extra bets on the flop from the check raising, but then you're hoping they're going, you're going to get raised on the turn by someone thinking that you wouldn't have check raised the flop if you were that strong. In fact, I remember reading in one Limit Hold'em book, and this is from a long time ago, but it kind of still applies, that uh, aggression on the flop shows weakness, aggression on the turn shows strength. That you should keep your mind that in mind of your opponents. And in a lot of cases, that's true in Limit Hold'em. So you want to do the opposite. You want to show the aggression on the flop both when you're not super strong and when you're very strong. So number one, you become harder to read in the future. Future meaning the immediate future when you're still playing the same opponents. And because uh, they will often misread you on the flop, they'll say, oh, he's not going to check raise the flop if he flopped a, if he flopped a set there. He'll wait till the turn there. So then they're going to raise you on the turn and you get to pop him for a three bet. So that's... Uh, that's the reason I did that. Okay, so that was, but still, a lot of people will check raise there. So that I'm not taking credit for that being a non-standard or unusual play. The turn. This was the hardest street because the flush card hit. Now let's remember the action here. The button, who I I mentioned, does call a little bit too much from what I'd seen of him so far. He's not terrible, but he sometimes calls a little bit too much. He flatted. Uh, he, he, he flatted the flop bet and then the check raise. So he was kind of passively calling along. And then the turn hit. And uh, when I bet, the reason I bet was because, as Brandon said, you can't always assume that just because the flush hit that someone has it in limit hold'em. And the reason it matters that it's limit hold'em is that there's only so much the extra they can charge you. So it's not like no limit where you're trying to do pot control. 
and and you don't want to end up playing a huge pot and making very tough decisions about you know calling or folding uh, because you pumped up the pot when someone could easily be beating you. Here, the limit hold them. There's only so much they can charge you. Now, you don't want to waste bets and, and put in bets when you're behind and get raised. But at the same time, uh, the, the concern is less. So what you really don't want to do is not get value out of your hand if you're ahead. So since it was only three-handed, you can't. You especially can't just assume that they got there with it, especially because nothing on the flop really indicated a flush draw. Nothing indicated nobody has a flush draw, but also nobody played any way that would show that they likely have a flush draw. So you you just don't have any information indicating that a flush draw is what anybody has. So And, of course, you have outs. Even if you do run into the flush, you're not drawing dead. If you have the board pairs, provided you're not against the higher set, which at this point would only be tens, uh, you win. If, if you, or, you, if, or you hit your six. Yeah, or you hit your six. So, okay, so... So, uh... So, so... Huh? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. What? I, 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 yes, you, or you could hit your six. So, you, you bet... So, sorry, I bet... Saying, yeah. So, I bet the, the turn, and that's what most people would do here. There would be some who would check, but the would be three-handed. That's a common thing is to bet out. But then when I got raised, to be honest, what most people would do at that point would be they'd call because you're betting and now you just got raised and then you got a cold caller. So a lot of people would be afraid that either the big blind made the flush or the big or the maybe even the button has a small flush but is kind of confused what to do because someone already raised. So what if the what if the button has a small flush and doesn't want a three bet and then get four bet with a small flush? So they're just calling along, and they're going to call to the end. So between the two of them, how can you say with that type of action where you bet, get raised on the turn, and then the button calls too cold, how can you say nobody has the flush? And also that the button doesn't have pocket tens, because remember, the button capped it pre-flop. So he could have pocket tens and beat you even without a flush. So how could I possibly, out of position, three-bet this? I'll tell you why. That's That's the most interesting part of this hand of course the reason i three bet despite being out of position and the three flush being out there was i i thought critically about what each of them had the big blind remember i said he's he's aggressive pre-flop but he doesn't like and he doesn't like putting his money in from behind and uh so he's not just firing like crazy but let's look at his pre-flop play he's capping it now, when he's capping at pre-flop, that's usually going to show he's got big cards or a pair. It doesn't have to be aces or kings or something like that. He could even be doing it with king jack, king queen. Um, he could be doing it with, with any pair, even like sevens. But uh, he's he's doing it with something like that. And then when I check-raised the flop, I thought, okay, what he's doing is he's probably assuming I have something like ace-10, king-10, and that's why I'm check-raising the flop. So he thinks he has me beat, and he's waiting for the turn. He doesn't think I'm doing this out of position with a flush draw. He thinks I probably don't have a flush draw. That's what I'm thinking he thinks of me. He thinks I'm check-raising the flop with uh, something that I believe is the best hand at the moment. So in turn, he is waiting to the turn to raise me to possibly knock out the button and, and make it heads up between me and him where he's way ahead of me. That's his thinking. He's not that he is not that worried. He doesn't love it, but he is I I think he he doesn't have the flush. He incorrectly thought he was ahead of me on the flop with a big pair. And he is 
thinking he's going to raise the turn and he's not that worried about a flush because he thinks I don't have it. So I, I'm thinking that's why he's raising. At this point, I'm thinking he probably has an overpair and that even if he does have me beat with pocket tens, he's not going to have the balls to keep raising because I'm playing it now on the turn. If I three bet it on the turn, he's not going to four bet me if all he has is tens with a set. He's going to be afraid of the flush at that point. So I'm not going to lose that many more bets. I will lose one additional bets, even one additional bet that one three bet, even if he has tens there. So, so my downside is not that low, and I I really still think I'm ahead. But what about this person on the button who called along on the flop, and now he's calling too cold on the turn? Well, this looks like he's chasing something, as Brandon says could be the ace of diamonds uh whatever it is it looks like he's chasing something yes he could be calling with the uh with a lower flush but it's a lot more likely that he's calling with uh with something that he's trying to chase like that fourth diamond or he just has a hand he just doesn't want to let go just being irrationally calling something that uh too light as i said he had the tendency to do now uh, if he th- now if this guy raised, let's say I bet the tur- let's say I bet the turn, and instead of being raised on the turn by the big blind, it would capped before the flop. Let's say the big blind just called and then the button raised. Then I would not three bet. Why? Because then it looks like the button had a flush draw the whole time. Is the button's passive, passive, passive? Bang! Three, three, three diamonds out there. Now suddenly he's raising. That's very concerning. But someone who's been aggressive, who has capped it pre-flop and then raises the turn, that looks a lot more like someone who just thinks he has a better hand than me, not someone who made something. So for that reason, since it was the big blind raising and the button just calling, I'm thinking, okay, the button probably isn't there. He probably doesn't have the flush. And I don't think the big blind has the flush either. So I think I have the best hand. Despite the scary board, I think I have the best hand. So I three bet it. And when they both call, when nobody caps me, obviously I'm, I'm happy to see that, but I'm not sure I'm ahead. Now, the jack on the river, the jack of clubs on the river is a pretty good card, but not a perfect card. Why? Because while it does not put a four flush out there, which would have been a disaster, it does put out an over card. And remember, I'm thinking the big blind might be doing this with an overpair. So this is one of the possible overpairs, jacks. However, I'm not that worried because, again, he's putting me on a flush at this point. And he's probably not raising me, even if he has pocket jacks. But that is one possibility I thought that I might bet he might call and then turn over pocket jacks and I'll be sad. Well, as I already mentioned, I won the hand, so he didn't have pocket jacks. Uh, Obviously, the button did not have a flush. He probably did have the ace of diamonds uh, because he folded the river. He didn't like that jack of clubs. So what do you think he showed? I was able to see in the hand history. What do you think the big blind had, Brandon? Uh, Ace 10 or King 10? He had Kings. Oh, wow. So I was right about the, the, what I, what I thought the whole way there was what he had. I thought it was an overpair and that he was slow playing it, hoping to just raise me off on the turn because he, he didn't believe that I would be check raising from the position I was in if I had the flush draw. He thought from watching me that I'm not going to pound a flush. He's he's right though. I I was not going to pound a flush draw there. 
See, that's the funny thing. That guy who's a good player was correct in assuming that I'm not going to pound it just a flush draw out of position in this spot. Wow. Because because I know that I'll be able to get value. He's not going to put me on a flush draw if, if I just check call the flop with a flush draw. So if I hit it on the turn, I'll be able to check raise him and and possibly the other player too. So he's well, correct. I w- you this. Do you re- if you even remember, what did you put him on? In your, do you remember thinking what you put him on before showdown? Yes, I, I, I put him on uh, – before showdown, I put him on jacks through aces, and I was hoping it wasn't jacks. Oh, wow. Okay. Or actually, tens through – I actually did a tens through aces, not even jacks. I, t- I didn't want tens or jacks, but tens through aces. And I thought uh, just just because uh, the jack and the ten were out there now, I thought queen through aces was more likely. But uh, um, but I thought tens through aces here. And um, tens or jacks I didn't want to see. So I, when I bet, this is one of the rare cases in this type of thing where I bet and I'm not sure if I'm good on the river if I get called. Like usually if it's bet call, I have a very good idea whether I won or lost. And here I didn't have all that good of an idea. Obviously if I get ra- raised, it's a disaster. But uh, disaster meaning I have a very low chance of winning at that point based upon that guy's play. But uh, bet call, I thought I'm more likely winning than losing, but I'm not sure I'm winning. So, anyway, that was my thinking there. So, if you take a look at this, on the surface, this looks crazy. Why out of position would you ever three bet against two opponents with three flesh cards out there when you just got a set? But I had second set, and I, so the only set beating me was tens. And I just really, based upon the way they played it, I did not think they had a flesh. And see, that's what Limit Hold'em is all about, is getting value out of every hand. It's not about trapping someone into a huge pot because you don't get that much more on any individual hand. I made some a little extra money here because of that. I made one additional big bet, which is two big blinds. So I made four extra big blinds here in this one hand from doing that three bet because if I didn't do the three bet, then I would have just called and then I would have check called the river and then won. That's what would have happened. So if, if I played it more standard... I would have made less, but I still would have won if not that far from what I ended up actually winning. But the thing is, over time, over playing a lot of these hands, if you get extra bets here, extra bets there, and save extra bets here, extra bets there, that's very important too. Making correct folds on the river when a lot of people would otherwise call and, and things like that, uh, you end up winning over time. And And when I say time, I don't mean over months. I mean over a relatively short time. It all adds up. So that's what Limit Hold'em is about. It's not so much about trapping people into very big pots like it is in No Limit. So you have to understand the objective of the game is different, and you have to always look for spots where you can maximize what you win and minimize what you lose. And that becomes very important because you're playing a lot more hands too because you're, uh, the hands move a lot faster. So one table of limit hold'em gets in a lot more hands than one table of no limit hold'em. That's some, especially shorthanded. You just it just flies by. So that's uh, that's the thinking in limit hold'em where it's different. And uh, of course, I also thought as I did this that even if I'm wrong with the way I'm seeing this, it's possible the deck will bail me out anyway because I'm not drawing dead. The only way I'm drawing really thin is if I'm against tens. Other than that. I've got the board pairing out and 
tens is the only thing where I'm really in horrible shape where I have one out to get out of the whole thing. So that's, that was the other thing that the downside of being wrong, uh, it still left me with ways out of the matter. So that, that's just an analysis of, of a hand here. Um, that might surprise you if you were to be standing behind me while I was playing it. I've also had people watch and become surprised when I've uh, capped it with something like ace-king in a shorthanded game against two opponents, and the board comes just trash, like 2-4-7. And it's check-check, I bet, call-call. Turn is like another seven. Check-check, bet, call-call. River is a ten. Check-check, bet, call-call. I show ace-king, they go muck-muck, and I win. And the people go, how the hell did you get a pot that big with ace-high? And how do you get callers all the way there? Like, how how would you ever, why would you do that? And how, how was that right? Forget ace-king, I've done with ace-queen, ace-jack. So there's even that weirdness where sometimes you will actually, without even a pair, bet through the whole way, knowing you have the best hand. And uh, it's, it's things like that which which allow you to, to win extra money, which becomes very important because you have to win things like that in order to uh, account for when you're slumping and not running well. Because there will be times limit hold'em, you just get clobbered because the the deck doesn't fall the right way and there's nothing you can do. Uh, Caller, you're on the air. That's why you're going to win a third place because you are that good, Todd. Save us double. What? That was, you don't know who that was? No, I know who it was. Oh, okay. I didn't recognize the number. That was a 2 and 3 number. It's an LA number. What's going on with that? Huh. Yeah. Money. A third bracelet. I want a second bracelet. Forget the third bracelet. Maybe he thinks I have two bracelets. <laughs> maybe, maybe he maybe he's predicting something. Maybe I'm going to win two bracelets uh, in the next World Series I play. I'll take that. <clears throat> I'll I'll say right now that if I win two bracelets in the next World Series I play, whether it's this year or next year, I will not complain about any other result. So if I brick the main event and don't cash or. Uh, I, I bubble something. Even if I bubble the main event, I, I promise not to complain about anything, no matter how bad the beats are, if I win two bracelets next year or next World Series, whatever that is. I'll hold you to it. Okay. You guys can all hold me to it. <laughs> I don't have to worry because I'm probably not going to win two bracelets. But if I do, if I do, I mean, the guy did say a third bracelet, and he said I'm going to win a third bracelet. I have to remember that. Okay, so... Um, the last topic before I do the coronavirus thing is about uh, Pennsylvania. They have only poker stars right now, as far as poker. Poker Stars PA is the only legalized online poker site in Pennsylvania. But that's not going to stay that way for long. What's going to happen here, and this has been the case since late 2019. But what's going to happen is the competition is coming. And this is already in motion. It's going to happen. The Pennsylvania Gaming Control Board Director of Communications, Doug Harbach, said that BetMGM and Borgata Poker are going to begin what's known as a two-day testing phase on Tuesday. And that means they're going to be pretty soon opening like a full launch to the public. I'm not sure exactly when, but it's going to be pretty soon. And 
WSOP.com is also going to be opening there. And we know this because there's actually a Pennsylvania tab now on WSOP.com. So while you can't play yet, they have that tab on there. And uh, Kevmath actually discovered this. He tweeted on April 23rd, looks like WSOP.com will be available in Pennsylvania in the near future after visiting these pages. And it says uh, real money. And if you you can click on uh, New Jersey, Nevada, or Pennsylvania. So they kind of jumped the gun <laughs> with the website. That's supposed to go live? They, they, they haven't even announced it. It's just uh, Kevmath discovered this. Yeah. On their site that they actually put a tab for Pennsylvania there in the real money online poker selections and just didn't explain it. It's just there. It's like the web designer did this ahead of them actually launching. So it's just showing that they are coming. They just haven't told anyone yet. So there's definitely going to be WSOB.com and BetMGM and Borgata. Now, BetMGM and Borgata are going to be using the same software, but there will be separate rooms and there will not be the same player pool. So is is this going to affect Nevada at all? At the moment, it will not, though Pennsylvania has expressed a desire to eventually uh, merge pools with other markets, but it just hasn't happened yet. So it's something that can happen, but Pennsylvania just hasn't laid it out yet, and therefore right now it can't. So that's why PokerStars is uh, there by itself, and they they're not able to merge with anything else either. They they do have another poker star. They have two other poker stars. They have New Jersey, and then they have uh, Michigan, but they can't merge with either at the moment. The only one that is merging with other states is New Jersey. And then for poker stars to merge two together, they need a second state that would get with New Jersey. At the moment, uh, neither Pennsylvania nor Michigan has this. But the, there will be competition coming to Pennsylvania and I even though that market is doing decently I just don't think it's big enough it's just not the player pool is still not big enough there to support all those sites so I'm not exactly sure what they're doing there except if they're kind of just positioning themselves for when other states open up and then they can all merge together if they just want to have a presence but I don't really see them doing that well and I think it's going to fragment the market in Pennsylvania and possibly even make it worse. PokerStars Pennsylvania has a seven-day average of 325 cash players online and a peak of 848. Oh, wow. So that's a lot better than the at some places like with, uh, with WSOP which is Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware combined, they have an average of 240 with a peak of 385. Here, not only does PokerStars Pennsylvania have a better average, but they have a much better peak. Still, they're not killing it. And if you can imagine three different sites opening to compete with them, that's going to be a problem. Also, at the moment, WSOP Pennsylvania won't be able to merge with New Jersey, Nevada, and Delaware. That's uh, another issue. And there's only... What, what, what controls that? Is that the state legislature in Pennsylvania? Yes. Okay. Or the Gaming Commission? Or Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not... Yeah, it's the Gaming Commission. It's not uh, 
up to the federal government. The federal government's already okay with it. That's why they can do it with Nevada and uh, Delaware and New Jersey. Is it more likely that they're just discussing the financials right now, and that's why it just hasn't been I'm not sure. I'm not sure. They, they've discussed that they're interested in doing it. It just hasn't happened yet. They, they probably just need to lay it out, and yeah, maybe the financials or, or the way they're going to regulate it, because there is some complication with regulating it when some of the players are in other states. Even if it's not their players, if it's players they're playing against. So they have to figure those things out. And it's already been done with the other states, with Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware. So it's not like they're inventing the wheel here. But they may not want to do it exactly like those states did. So they're still looking into it. And same with Michigan. They've also said that they're open to it. It just uh, hasn't happened there yet. Michigan does have one site competing with poker stars there that's BetMGM, but it's been a fail site so far. It's averaging only 75 players and a peak of 136, according to Poker Scout. To show you that uh, Poker Stars PA is not killing it or really uh, a major site yet, right now it is almost 7 a.m. in Pennsylvania on a Monday. So yeah, that's not exactly prime time for poker play. That's pretty much close to the deadest time you can have. But there's a whopping 47 cash players on right now on PokerStars PA. So the only place you can play in Pennsylvania online, legalized online poker, there are 47 people online. Yes, as I said, the least popular time, a weekday at 7 a.m. But still, I mean, think of... Other sites, they have a lot more than 47 players on there, the the sites that are not licensed and regulated. Far more than 47 cash players right now on Bovada or ACR. So 47 is not very good. And even 325 as an average isn't that great. 848 for a peak isn't even that great. I mean, for legalized online poker, that's the best number right now in any of these states. But it's still not wonderful, 848 peak players. So there's a long way to go. And something like Florida, New York, Texas, California, they, they really need states like that to join in and then all join together. If they don't, it's going to be a fail. That's the bottom line. Yeah. All right. I'm going to move on to the last topic here. The coronavirus, we just have one topic here. And that is about... What's going on in India and Brazil looks very different from what we're seeing here in the U.S. The U.S. is rapidly improving. And yeah, if you take a look at worldometers, you see that there's still some days where there's like 800 reported deaths in the U.S. And you can look and say, okay, that's not very good. Yesterday was only reported as 312 deaths in the U.S., but it's always lower on the weekends because some hospitals don't report on the weekends till Monday. So really, to get accurate numbers, you have to look at the numbers reported for Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, because Monday will sometimes get excess from the weekends, and that's that'll be too high, and then the weekends will be too low. But putting that aside, we are still seeing deaths sometimes as high as 800-something per day in the U.S., and we still see a five-figure number of new cases per day in the U.S. So the coronavirus is not gone. However... The big difference is before you were powerless as far as uh, preventing the coronavirus, aside from just 
staying home and avoiding it like I did. But now the power is in your hands to prevent it, and that is the vaccine. So it's a tremendous difference. And as time is passing, the situation is getting better in most places in the U.S. There are some states where it's worsened a little bit. There's no huge surge where it's terrible right now. But there, there's some places that are getting worse again. California is actually doing the best at the moment as far as uh, the coronavirus and new cases. The ERs are actually wide open in California now. The death numbers are going down. The new case numbers are going down. And it's not a coincidence that California also has one of the best vaccination rates in the country. And I'm not talking about the government's administration of the vaccine, which hasn't been that great in California. But I'm talking about the willingness of people to take it, that California has a high vaccine compliance rate. And that has probably been the biggest factor in bringing down the number of people getting it. So, the in the U.S., the, the bottom line is the problem's not over, but it's greatly reduced, especially because of the very effective vaccines that are out there. And the future looks bright unless there's variants that come out that are able to dodge the vaccine. The future is going to be better and better as we go along. So, for the U.S. and other Western countries it's looking pretty good as far as what we can see going forward. But not everywhere is like the U.S. and other first world countries. The vaccine situation is something that's kind of complicated when it comes to other countries. On one hand, we want to save as many human lives as possible. And we can't just say, well, lives elsewhere are expendable. F them. These people can suffer and they can die too bad. But at the same time, you have to look at your own country's interests first and other countries' interests second. So there has been some debate and discussion of what countries with vaccines owe countries that are not able to develop their own vaccines, or in some cases maybe can't even afford to buy the vaccine. So uh, what do you do there? And... uh, That is some of the reason that uh, some of these countries are experiencing a lot of cases and death still while the Western countries are rapidly improving. And then some of it is is just from the the way the countries are uh, or or inability to distribute vaccines well or the... uh, or just people don't have an interest in taking them. Listen to my, uh, my vaccinated friend. I do beg to differ because from what I've read, unless my reading is is fake news, certainly didn't help India's cause that over a million people have been at various religious rallies and outdoors in close contact with each other over the last two, three months. I mean, that's what I've read has caused a lot of their issues that they're having now. I don't know if you've read about that. Well, They basically ignored it. The government didn't want to... uh, further any lockdowns or any sort of guidance in that area and they were encouraging people to i I can't remember what it was but there was some holy day i don't know the name of it in india and buddhism and people were making pilgrimages and they were outdoors and they were closely packed and that's what did a lot of this 
Well, that had to do, at least with some of it, uh, if, if you're very closely packed outdoors, then yes, uh, you can transmit the virus uh, fairly easily. If you're not all that closely packed, it's actually not that bad to be outdoors. It, it, in fact, it's pretty safe. But if, if people are right in their face, if you're really packed in a closed yeah, group. Yeah, I've seen pictures. This was right in your face. Yeah, so, the, so that's uh, – but of course, if these people were vaccinated, then still they'd have had a much better result. But they they haven't gotten the vaccine it's, out very well. Sure. And uh, well, it's India. I mean, how many how many you think these poor villagers are getting access to the vaccine? Of well, they, they 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 the government could have made more of an effort to make it happen. Now they have a much bigger population than we do. They have about four times the number of people we do. They in China have well over a billion people, and uh, that, so that's some of it too. That there's just a massive number of, of people to vaccinate, even compared to us. But look at Brazil. They have a lower population compared to us. They they still have a large population in Brazil, but not not. Uh, they have about two thirds of our population, and they they're having a horrible problem. Uh, we before I go on though, we have somebody else on here who hopefully doesn't have a horrible problem. Uh, Trader Risky, Trader Risky, hello. Yo, buddy, what's happening? <laughs> We're just talk, up, t- talking about the coronavirus here. Thank you for the uh, fifty dollars you gave right, for the free you. roll for uh, Calwatt. Happy birthday to him! Fifty dollars back. And uh, but yeah, yesterday it was reported in India that there were over three hundred seventy thousand new cases. Three hundred seventy thousand yeah, new cases. Now remember, that. they do have four times our population, but still, three hundred seventy thousand new cases just yesterday reported. And those are the ones that are verified. They probably don't have. Uh, as easy of a way to verify cases as uh, we did in the U.S. when we were having our problems. So they, they're having a big problem there. Uh, 3,422 reported new deaths yesterday alone. And Brazil, uh, well, 1,210 reported new deaths yesterday alone with a lot smaller population hmm. than India. So that's where the two big hotspots are at the moment. Well, let me just say our own uh, very lucky here tonight. Our own Trader Ruski uh, has some friends and contacts on the ground uh, level there in India. So maybe he can kind of be our virtual man on the scene. Trader Ruski, what are you hearing from India? No, I mean, I speak to my people there pretty much every day. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. You know, I think they their numbers were great. And then apparently there was some... So apparently what happened was some political leader wanted to have a rally. Oh, yeah, I mentioned that. And for him to do, right, okay, so for him to do it, he had to let all things happen. They had this 10 million person thing happen. Not a good idea during a pandemic to have no 10 million person thing. Right? Uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, so never going to the eight digits, but crazy, now, though. Trader Ruski, have you ever been to India? I have not. Todd, have you ever been to India? Nope. Would you ever want to go to India? It would be interesting to see at some point. I wouldn't want to go there right now, but no, uh, well, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, I know I would like to see it at some point. There, there's some interesting things to see there. But uh, yeah, they're having yeah. a big problem over there now. They, interestingly, India was actually a country that was that had committed to distribute the vaccine to other countries that did not have the ability to develop the vaccine on their own or even to produce existing vaccines. Sure. So they had the AstraZeneca vaccine, which isn't 
one of the best vaccines. That's what they're using in Canada, too, by the way. That's, uh, Daredevil gets the better vaccine by coming to the U.S. <laughs> but uh, um, AstraZeneca, it's, it still works for the most part. It, but it, they were going to distribute that one to other countries. They made a commitment to do that. And now they're like, ah, you know what? We're going to hold this for ourselves because we're having such a terrible problem here. So uh, things have kind of changed me, for the moment. Let me ask you guys something here. I'm just be honest, and I'm not – I'm not trying to make this a political show or anything, but over the weekend, maybe it was Friday, I think, uh, the Biden administration announced that on Wednesday, the 5th of May, that there will be no no one allowed into the United States from India or that's traveled through India. Uh, are you familiar with this? Did you read about it? No, actually, I hadn't heard that. Okay. Yeah. Well, they did. Trader Ruski, did you read about it? Trader Risky. All right. I thought they'd be able. I thought if they were a U.S. citizen, they could travel. Anyone that's still. been in India, whether it's on their passport indirectly or, or or directly, will not be allowed starting Wednesday at midnight. Um, so, my question is: I saw a lot of people on Facebook that said this was good. It was smart. The Biden administration. And my question is: if our prior president had done the same thing. Do you think you would have been accused of racism or xenophobia or, or something similar? I actually, I believe it or not, I think he probably wouldn't have at this point. Uh, he was accused of this back in uh, late January when he didn't want to uh, let people from China into this country. But um, I, I think at this point, it became such the norm around the world that. Uh, certain areas are not allowed to travel to other certain areas that people got to accept it it was just at the beginning it was kind of like a shock to people that certain countries weren't allowed to visit other countries because of uh, the very beginning of, of a virus that people didn't really understand that well uh, now it's it's kind of become normalized so you know i i, I can understand this because of this coronavirus I'm sorry, it begins to, it begins tomorrow the fourth both the United States and also Australia, and I'm sure there are other countries as well, have completely banned uh, anyone traveling into their country. Yeah, uh, and no, it, I, I don't think it's racist. I mean, it, it's it's. I mean, they would do the same thing if it was any country. Uh, I mean, it, it, it makes sense too because you don't want to invite any new possible variants in here that can then dodge our vaccine. We we want to keep everything. That's yeah. happening well, in the U.S. They're gonna, listen, they're going to get here anyhow. It's just don't make it easier. I yeah, mean, well, that's what I'm saying. You, you don't want more. You don't want more of that here. So, you you want to keep the status quo right now. We're improving. We don't want to in- introduce anything else that can complicate it and make it worse. So that's that's why that's being done. And uh, but the problem yeah. is here that re- this has really thrown a wrench into vaccinating other countries because they. India was really one of the big ones that was supposed to be distributing the vaccines to other countries. Now they're declaring they have a vaccine shortage for themselves. All of a sudden they feel like uh, they, they've got to start vaccinating and do it quickly because it's getting so terrible there. So that's, now, now they actually want vaccines. They're not going to be uh, exporting vaccines. And we now have other countries which are accusing the U.S. and other Western countries of vaccine hoarding, where they're saying that... Uh, yeah. The U.S. India was one of them. India was one of them. I read that. Yeah, and that uh, saying that the U.S. can afford to ship out some of its own vaccines, 
and that they shouldn't be holding them back. But uh, I th- I think that really you, you have to be sure that we're not going to need them before you do something like that. The bottom line is if your country is the one that has uh, developed the I vaccine. I don't think it was necessarily the vaccines in a whole, but there, there was a... Uh I don't know, a ban on some of the components that make up the vaccine. That's, I think, where India was complaining about, that the U.S. needs to lax that policy. You know what, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't the actual, like, they're going to ship over, you know, 20 million vaccines. It was, I, I don't know, I know it sounds uneducated, but the ingredients or components or whatever that, that you know what I'm saying? I, I actually had read something different. I, I, I actually read the IP. I thought it was the IP for the drug companies. We may have two different things going on. There was also said that the U.S. has extra doses they don't need at the moment. And, and not just the U.S., but other country, U.S. and other Western countries have existing doses that they're just not using right now and they could part with and are choosing not to and they want to be cautious just in case they need it. So that's that, that's opening up a new debate well, of, of what, what do you really owe the other countries? Yeah. Uh, should you well, ship just, out? I mean, you should, yeah. Your excess that you're you're keeping as as a backup, just for the good of mankind. If you have enough, you should help out anyone. Well, the the question is, what's enough at that point? See, the the question is, if you have a certain amount and you say, okay, well, at the moment we have X percentage of people who are choosing not to get vaccinated, but uh, what if they change their minds, or what if some of what we're holding goes bad? Do we really want to have a shortage here? Things like that. So, uh, so there's. Yes, if we have an absolute excess to where we just don't need it, we should ship it out. But uh, the question becomes, if we have something we don't have an immediate need for, but we are taking a chance that we could end up with a shortage if we need it later, should we ship it to countries that need it now or say, tough luck, we we got to take care of ourselves first, and if we really only have a full excess, then we're shipping it to you. So it's, it's a hard answer to give because it, uh, either way, it could end up uh, looking bad. You, you could either screw your own country or you can uh, end up with vaccines that just sit there that could have saved lives else, elsewhere that you just uh, didn't send out. So it's, it's a very hard thing to answer. And uh, I'm not sure what the right decision is there, but we're going to start seeing this around the world where you're going to see differences in results with COVID. And then there's also an incentive, not just to prevent loss of life, but there's an incentive for the Western countries to eradicate it around the world so you don't have uh, as high of a chance of variants developing that uh, come back to the Western countries and, and kill people. So that's the other thing, is that the the more it runs out of control in places like India the higher chance that there, there will be a variant showing up, which could be a problem. And I think what the U.S. should be doing is the U.S. should be getting ready to very rapidly developing a new vaccine in case there is such a variant. Because one feature of these mRNA vaccines, like Pfizer and Moderna, is that they're very easy to modify. So if a variant shows up, it shouldn't be that hard to modify the vaccine to take care of it. But the challenge is going to be getting everybody vaccinated all over again. Look how long it's taking. We started this in December. So we, we don't want to have to wait a number of months to get all this out again. So I, I think 
that the money should be spent to get ready to rapidly produce a mass number of vaccines for the U.S. if they need to make a new one in response to variants showing up. Otherwise, we're going to have many months of intense sure. death again if this if this uh, mutates. So this and this is sure. all uncharted well, I mean, territory. Listen, even if it was Iran, you know. If we could help, it, it's you know it's not about the governments. It should be about the people. Like it, you know what I'm saying? It, it it just you know. But I you know I don't even know how we would know, like the people, like us, if we have enough of the vaccine. If we if we're being cautious, if we're being greedy, greedy. If it's just being mismanaged, like how would we even know? Like you know, I mean, I don't even think they know. I don't even know if they really accurately know. You know what I'm saying? Well, they they know somewhat because the states have reported what they have on hand and what they're using, so they they can figure it out. But but it is subjective what is enough, and it uh, there, there's a difference between just having absolute excess that you know you couldn't use, and having a certain amount that you think you may not use but you also may need, and that's where it starts to get tricky about giving sure. it away to anybody else. There's no easy answer to this. And and yeah, there's also the other factors about uh, giving away the ability to produce it to other countries to just allow them to make it themselves and give away the knowledge that these uh, U.S. companies spent developing this thing. They spent a lot of money to develop this in the first place and the question is uh, should for the good of mankind this just be handed out to other countries so they can save lives but then doesn't this screw the companies that put a lot of research into making it because the vaccines we're seeing now are not all the vaccines that were in development a lot of companies put a lot of time and money and effort into doing it some of them got federal funding some did not but they, there was a lot put into developing vaccines, and the ones we're seeing now are the ones that were approved for emergency use. And uh, you, you have to keep that in mind as well, that these country, these companies did take a chance, including uh, like Pfizer, for example. They did not take the government money to do this. And they've, they've pointed that out before. Right. They did this all on their own. They, they didn't want to have to answer to the federal government. That was why. They wanted to just do it themselves, and they, they could afford it. But they did spend a lot of money. And if their effort was a fail, then they would have just wasted that money. So then is it fair to tell these companies, okay, you, you have to now hand it over to other countries, even though you spent your money, your own private money, in developing this? So there's a, a lot of complicated it's definitely, questions. It's definitely a, slip, a slippery slope. Yeah, it's it's a lot of complicated questions here. And it's it is very sad to see people dying in other countries at rapid rates when we're seeing our rate going down. It's sad to think well we have this here, so why can't we save these people? And I know it's not super simple even then because you have to distribute it, well, and you have to get people willing to take I, it. Yeah. I know I read that they were sending over supplies like days ago. You know, so or vaccines or whatever, you know, oxygen, whatever they could send. Um, but I mean, uh, I'm sure other countries are chipping in, too. It can't just be the burden of the United States states to, you know, fix a country as large as India. Like everyone should be chipping in. Yeah. No. 
Yeah, and, and also you have to have the people willing to, you have to have the ability sure. to distribute the vaccine and people willing to take it. Something I saw in the U.S., which is disturbing and actually kind of surprising regarding the vaccine uh, compliance, if you want to call it that, the willingness to take it. It said that uh, as of April 28th, only uh, 3.7% of black people had taken the vaccine yet, which I thought was crazy. Wait, what was the number? 3.7. That seems off. That's a very low number. I I think I saw this on an official government website, too. Huh. So it's uh, like a very low. And I knew they had a much lower desire to take the vaccine because of distrust of uh other vaccines and other uh similar uh government programs that had been uh where, where things were tested on black people basically in the past and we're talking about the distant past like uh most of the people who were involved in that are, are long dead but uh still it's remembered in the black community wow. and there's I, some I, distrust I of it see that's that's a that's a crazy statistic yeah so and i don't believe it's because of lack of access to it i think it's lack of desire to, to, to do it and they that's well of it, course it would have to be i mean anyone can get a vaccine now anywhere you are i mean you know yeah and it's, it's free it's, and, and 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 there's it's it's much easier now than it used to be so um so they they really need to work on the compliance with with people taking it people being willing to take it and i i think that the the messaging for this just hasn't been very good. I've said this before on other shows. They really need to get across that vac- vaccination equals a return to being normal. And that's what most other countries, at least first world countries, have done. Is That's the message they've put out. You take the vaccine, you can go back to normal. In the U.S., it's constantly doom and gloom of, oh, well, you're going to have to wear a mask or maybe even a double mask for the rest of the year and you you, you can't do very much still and you have, yeah. to, you have to take well, this listen, precaution. I'll tell you something crazy. I read I read an article, you know, I do a lot of reading, on ESPN, and it was this golfer. I can't remember his name, but he if you follow golf, he's not like one of the, the, the top three, five, whatever, but he's a big-name golfer. Anyhow, he was talking about the PGA Tour's new policy uh, about testing players – uh, before a golf tournament. And anyhow, the new policy basically is if you're vaccinated, uh, the restrictions are going to be severely loosened. And if you're not vaccinated by this date, I can't remember what the date was, but whatever it was, then you are required, if you want to play, that you have to pay for your own testing and, uh, and, and the restrictions aren't as relaxed. So anyhow, this golfer was talking about the fact that he had been vaccinated uh, but he had been talking with a lot of other golfers who either hadn't or didn't want to make their decision public. And he said, and this is, again, like not a joke, not a troll. This is on ESPN, that one of the concerns that he was hearing from other golfers, and, and these weren't Americans, by the way, because he was he's a European golfer. Uh, one of the concerns he was hearing from other golfers were the possibility or concern of being microchipped, meaning that they believed that when they receive the vaccine, it gives the government or other entities the ability to track human beings. I'm not making this up. And I'm reading that and I'm thinking, you know, these are multimillionaires. You know, some of them, some of these people are, you know, I mean, just insanely rich. And this is and they're educated. You know, these aren't like just crazy conspiracy theorists. And that's keeping 
So anyway, so the point I'm making is I really wonder how much that plays a role. Like just people that really have such widespread conspiracies that they just refuse to, uh, you know, get a vaccine. Everyone I'm close to in my life uh, has got it. I know one person I'm close to, uh, and I'm not going to say who who it is because it's someone that I've talked about on radio refuses to get it. Someone that's that's our age in their 40s, a female, because she thinks that uh, not not necessarily that, but she thinks that it's definitely going to cause other health ramifications for everybody down the line, and she refuses to do it, even at their own peril of her getting sick. Hmm. So, by the way, I want to correct. I, I want to correct something. Um, what I saw. It really seemed low to me too. That three point seven percent of black people. Yeah, that's I, th- really I think I figured out why it's that low. I think they're talking about the percentage of total vaccinations that have been received. And since black people are uh, like like twelve or thirteen percent of the po- of the U.S. population, that's that's why it makes sense. Oh, so okay. It's, it's, that, that would make so sense. it's more saying like about a quarter of them have, which is makes more sense here. Which is still low, well, but it's not uh, insanely low. So I apologize yeah. for the. Uh, mistake there but i was i was it was not my fault it was that the site i was reading or some government site didn't state it well then i had to do some further looking into it to see what that really meant but uh yeah that there's there are some people who see i have this discussion theory before what have you heard that microchip theory before no, but I have heard. Well, I think I've seen it online. But uh, but I I've seen people say this is what I hear most often because I actually hear this from other people who are on the right that I know online or that I talk to, and some won't take the vaccine. And what a lot of them like to say is that it hasn't been tested enough, and that it's something being uh, forced on people by the government and that uh, they're being pressured to do it and that it's not safe that all vaccines before this took years to test and this one they tested for months and and that's all true but what what they're missing the big piece they're missing and i try to tell them this is i I say see the problem is this is another problem with the vaccination messaging is that there's not enough concession that this one's different instead of admitting yes this one's different and yes, we rushed it through. And yes, we tested it for months instead of years. And yes, that makes it not as safety tested as the others. Instead of dancing around that and letting people come to these uh, conclusions on their own that it's not safe to take and they shouldn't do it, they, they need to concede this, explain why, meaning we didn't have years to test it. We, we had to do this faster. And I think the best way to put it to people to get them to do it, and this is what I say, is I say, yes, there's unknowns. Yes, we have not tested the long-term effects of this because there's no way to in this short of a time. And yes, other vaccines do that. But because we didn't have time to do that, we did. And the reason you should take it anyway is that COVID also has long-term unknowns. It's also a new thing. It's also thing something we don't understand very well. And that you can get COVID, be fine, get over it, have no apparent damage, and there may be damage waiting for you long-term in the future. So everything you're afraid of with the vaccine regarding hurting you in the future also applies to COVID, which also can easily hurt or kill you in the present. So as far as where you're much more likely to suffer something that is harmful long-term, 
COVID for sure is a lot more dangerous than the vaccine, especially if you're over 40. And that's why I keep telling people that uh, the chance, yes, you're taking a chance, but it's a much smaller chance. And then what you're preventing is a lot better than, it's a lot, there's a lot more upside to preventing COVID than the downside of taking a vaccine that had months to test instead of years. So that's why to do it. That's why you should do it. You don't need to know it's perfect to take it. And I say, look at this. Look at somebody who's uh, 100 years old. And if they get COVID, there's a good chance they're going to die. A very good chance they're going to die. Okay. If you're 100, do you take the vaccine? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people, even those who object to the vaccine and won't take it now, if they were 100, they would take it because they know what a death sentence COVID would be at 100. So it goes down from there. If you're 90, it's not as dangerous as if you're 100, but it's still very dangerous to get COVID at 90. So there, the vaccine is, is uh, less of a concern, even if it's got some downsides. Uh, the downside of COVID is so terrible. So as you go down from 100 to younger and younger and younger, COVID becomes less dangerous. And you, you've got to balance the two. How dangerous do you think the vaccine is, even long-term? How dangerous do you think COVID is, both short and long-term? And you, you move down there, and uh, I would say all the way through 40 for sure, COVID is far worse than what you could expect the vaccine to harm, harm you long-term. And even beyond 40, even 35, 30 anything. Uh, because there's people in their 30s still getting the permanent lung damage from COVID. So even people in their 30s who are otherwise healthy, they're not, uh, it's not super unusual to end up with something like permanent lung damage from COVID. So that's, now once you get into your 20s and teens, then it becomes more reasonable to say, you know, I, I'm not going to take this, at least not now. I'm going to wait a little longer. So, you know, that's a good point you brought up because i don't know this myself what is the age that they're either not allowing or they're not advising children to get the vaccine it's uh, 15 and under cannot take it right now so that you're not even allowed to if you're 15 yes they will not administer to anyone 15 and under and that's in every that's that's a federal guideline yes, yes. okay but they do recommend what, it for 16 is, and up are they so, but what could be the difference between a fifteen-year-old and a sixteen-year-old? It's not. It's the, it's the same thing of like saying, uh, "Why is it yeah. uh, okay to have sex yeah, yeah. When, with an eighteen-year-old, not someone who's seventeen and three hundred sixty-four days?" It's just at some point right. they draw a line. So, how old is your how old is this is your son? Ten and a half. Okay. So if if they allowed it, would you guys as parents gotten him the vaccine, or would you not? Not yet, but I, I would consider it for the future. Uh, if, if more time passes, the more time that passes, the more we will know about the vaccine. Now, admittedly, even next year, we still won't know everything. There will be some possible long-term sure. implications from it. Maybe nothing. Maybe it'll be fine. Maybe it'll be super safe. But it's also possible we'll find out things in four or five years that people are suffering from with the vaccine. There's even possibilities with kids that it could have some kind of developmental implications. There's some... Now- are you concerned at all when he starts going back out 
to school or, or you know, visiting friends, running around, playgrounds, et cetera, that even though you're vaccinated, there's, you're still, you know, what, 5 7% chance that you can still contract it. Are you concerned about that? No, I'll tell you why. Uh, I'm more concerned for him just in case uh, COVID has long-term implications that could harm him. I'm not so worried about him with COVID that it's going to do anything to him presently because kids who get COVID are usually asymptomatic. And when they're not asymptomatic, they're close. It's like they get a headache and then next day they're fine. Or they're, they kind of feels like the flu for a few days and they're fine. So that's, that's usually the case with kids, with kids like his age who get COVID, but there's some unknowns. Like what's, what's the long-term effects of getting COVID as a little kid. We won't know this for a very long time. There may be nothing, but it, it may be something too. So, I am. I, I don't want him to get COVID. I prefer he does not get COVID at all, and that it just disappears. And that's sure. where that's where there's, there's some motivation to give him the vaccine. But now, but what I was going to say about vaccine? me, I, I, let me get to the, your question about for myself about him bringing it home to me, because I, I I do have a big concern about me getting it, and that's why he's been home all this time. It's been more for me and his mom than for him. Uh, the reason I'm not that worried about it is because the vaccines have an excellent record with preventing severe COVID illness. So it's not just preventing illness at all. It's that if you do get COVID with the vaccine, it tends to not rise beyond a moderate level. And that's where it's been very good, very effective at that too. Are you going to put any safe, or I should say you or or, or Benjamin's mom, going to put any safeguards in place uh, for the immediate future just to, lower the risk of him potentially getting it yes was he going to uh, be allowed to okay yeah the, so um he did just see a friend yesterday and yeah they, they ran around and played normally as if nothing was happening but uh, that friend also was in a family that was pretty cautious not quite as much as we were but close so mm-hmm. so that I, I wasn't that worried anyway but um as far as other things what about schools well okay so he's not he's not he's not going to be back in regular school until next school year in august uh he's going to finish out the year on zoom school he might as well since it's so close to the end right now right but uh as far as uh other things i i'm not going to put him in situations where there's a big covid risk uh like uh, you know, where, where he's indoors with a whole lot of kids or something, or indoors with a whole lot, a ton of people. I'm not going to want him exposed to that for very long, as if there's no COVID going on, or as if he's vaccinated. And it, it's going to be a little complicated in things like like our trip we're going to take in the summer. He's going to be uh, the only one that isn't vaccinated, and so we're we. Ha- it's a possibility he could get COVID on the trip. Yeah, uh, it's it's so, and then also when we're doing things on the trip, we have to think about well, he's the one who's not vaccinated. We can't just dismiss it and not worry, because one, he can get sick, it could ruin the trip, and two, but we just don't want him to get COVID. But at the same time, um, you you have to do certain things on trip. You know, stay in hotels, uh, eat in restaurants, things like that that are uh, that that are going to have some degree of risk. But what what I'm going to approach it as is not be fanatically cautious because he is at an age that is uh it really has very little major covid danger like he's really at about the best age for it that just about no kids die who don't have known pre-existing conditions and even 
very, very, very few kids get severe illness from COVID his age. And the truth is that there's more kids dying of the flu in a regular flu season than there have been from COVID. And that's something very important to remember. Uh, How often have we worried about the flu on a trip? Never. So why, why are we, so you've got to be careful with COVID with kids to put it all into perspective and say, well, if it's less dangerous than the flu, at least as far as we know, then why are we that worried? So there is that, but I, I also don't want to put him at risk to get it because my hope is that COVID just kind of dies and disappears and he just never gets it. Now, if, if COVID hangs around forever, then we have to handle this differently. So uh, when deciding what to do on the trip, a little of the factor will be to not place him in not do things which place him in a situation where it's uh, really COVID dangerous, but at the same time, not to really go crazy with it. But even things like eating at restaurants, like if we can eat outdoors and the weather's nice, then we'll eat outdoors. But at the same time, I'm not going to eat if it's cold or windy outside just because I'm obsessed with eating outdoors because of COVID. There's only so far I'll go with it because right. he is a, he is still a kid uh, at an age that most people just don't feel very much like he had a kid in his class actually in the zoom school that got COVID somehow and like during class one day the kid's like yeah i kind of feel like i have a headache and then the kid stayed in class then stayed in the zoom class for the rest of the day with a headache and then it turned out he had COVID, and the kid was right back in the zoom school the next day and the headache was gone that was the extent of the COVID symptoms for that kid so and that's not unusual sometimes they a lot of times they don't even know they had it a lot of times they just don't even feel it. So just for whatever reason, kids just their bodies handle it very differently than ours do. And even people in their 20s handle it a lot different than ours do. So it's uh, that that's important to consider. So it's it's as a parent of a kid that age it's, it, he, who's not vaccinated now, it, it's a strange thing to think about. It's, I, I've, I've got kind of two things I've got to think about right now. One is when he is able to be legally vaccinated, which probably won't be till early next year. Will I do it? And and number two, uh, in the meantime, what risk should he take? And how bothersome will it be to me if he gets COVID? And I, you know, I've kind of gone back and forth with that. But if you look at the numbers for kids, it's... Uh, it's incredible the difference when you see the uh, the deaths for kids kids with uh, like sixty million I think like sixty million people under fifteen in the country and there the, the number of deaths is so low out of those sixty million so yeah. it's it's very very different than adults and it's kind of easy to overlook that because you have all the panic about it and, and, and with the real danger that exists even to people our age. So anyway, that's, uh, that's all I got here. I don't have much else to say here. Anything uh, you'd like to discuss here, uh, Trader Risky? I'm good. Good to talk to you guys. Glad you were still going when I got up. Yo, buddy. Yeah, you can thank Brandon for that. We would have been done a while ago, but uh, whenever he comes on, the show gets longer, so... Uh, Brandon, anything else uh, that you'd like to say? 
No, I can tell you're getting tired, and and I, I actually I haven't been to sleep yet, or I did for a little while, so I'm gonna go back to sleep when we're done. So okay. no, we can wind it up. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you for it's coming good here. When the three of us get together, Trederuski, what? Did, before we go, you really haven't talked much. Just tell us uh, something. What's going on in the world of Trederuski? What's going on uh, today? I don't know. Just talk to us. Tell us something about you. Everything's good. Our new CEO starts today, so that's exciting. Ooh. It's a big day, buddy. And I've worked my ass off to get her to join us, and now it's happening. So it's good. I'm hoping it. I'll, hopefully, I'll have a meeting with Drop a little later in the week about a little project we're working on. Yeah, and, I, I um, may actually do some yeah, work. Amazingly. Oh wait, you and Drop are going into business together, huh? Well, I, not quite, but I may. I may. I may do some. I may give some assistance on something. So, um, yeah, it's. It's good for Trader Ruski there. You got the CEO in place. And uh, Trader Ruski, I'm forgetting your uh, your vaccination situation. Have you gotten the second shot yet? I did. I got the second shot on the 19th. Or no, on the uh, 26th. The 26th? Okay. So, and, and so what happened? Oh, yeah. No, I was good. I mean, I you know normally wake up at 4. The next morning, I woke up at 5. So I got it on Monday night. So I felt fine all week. I mean, Friday I went to take a nap at like five after work and didn't wake up till till midnight, and then just slept, you know, again till till five. So hmm. I don't know if that had to do with the vaccine or, or me just, you know, working so much for the past month. But yeah, but I felt good. You know, I dodged a bullet. I mean, I, you know, I, I was like, I'll, I was somewhat worried because I just heard a lot of people having issues. But I just, you know, I ate something right after, drank a lot of water before and after, and then just tried to get in my head that I was not going to get sick. And yeah, I seemed to be okay. My arm was definitely sore for a few days, but, you know, that's no big deal. It's funny. The arm soreness actually got better for me pretty fast, even with all the other problems I had. The the first day after it was very bad, just like the first shot where I couldn't sleep on that side, and it, it, it was it was very sore. But then the following day, while I, when I was very sick, uh, the arm I, I touched it. I go, you know what? It hurts a little bit, but it's not bad. I could sleep on that side. That got better. It was it was the rest that was such a problem for me. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you guys both had a good experience with it. Uh, mine was not so good. But I'm past it now. I don't feel anything anymore. So that's it's over. And now I am vaccinated and now I can do things again. And I, I really felt like I was released from jail in a way when I went out on uh, May 1st, Saturday, May 1st, and was just able to do things and I started a little bit early with one thing. I actually started doing takeout on Thursday night, two days before May 1st. Because I figured the takeout, I was never even sure whether that was dangerous or not, and it's never really been studied. So that was something I did to be overly cautious. But I figured by that point, when it had been 11 days since I was vaccinated, I said, okay, with a second shot, I said, okay, it, it's got to be safe for the takeout food at this point, because that's not even a major mode of transmission. In fact, it may not be a mode of transmission at all. So I feel safe with that. So I did take out starting Thursday and then Saturday I just returned to things. And it was nice to be able to walk into places and not worry. And 
things like that. So I, I just like felt like, okay, wow, I, I can do everything again. Because before, when I left, not, not only did I feel restricted of what I could do, who I could see, but I'd be so afraid of going indoors anywhere. And it was such a pain in the ass sometimes. Like I'd think, oh, I'd, I want to go and grab such and such item, but nope, I can't do it. I, I'm not going to go in that store. I'm not going to go in that supermarket. I've got to have it delivered. And then I have to wait till the next day or a few days from there. And I just like, I wish I could just run out and grab this, but I don't want to do it. So like now I, I don't have to worry about that anymore. I just go in. In fact, I was, uh, uh <laughs> last night I was late at night. Uh, I was driving back from that home poker game I was at and I was hungry and I was going by a Denny's, and they said, you know what? I haven't had chicken strips from here in a long time, so I just stopped at the Denny's, walked in, ordered the chicken strips to go, and uh, then they made it. Ten minutes later, I, I came back out of my car, went went into the Denny's, picked it up, walked out, went back home and ate the chicken strips. So I didn't... Normally, I would be worried to walk in that Denny's and order it and go back in and pick it up here. It's like, okay, just going in like I did before. So it feels good to be able to do this again. Yeah. And it'll feel good when I can, uh, when we actually take our trip. I mean, I could travel now, but it's just not scheduled for right now because Ben's in school. But it'll, it'll feel good to do all that again. And uh, it's nice to be back at that home poker game after uh, a year. It's actually been going <laughs> for a long time. It didn't shut down for very long, it turned out. They just took a chance, but... I did not. I left it, and now I'm back. And uh, I, I just kind of reserved that Saturday, May first, to just do several things that I've been waiting to do. Now I have some less pleasant things I'm going to go do, like get some cavities filled and other stuff like that that I've been waiting to do. So some of those things won't be fun. Anyway, uh, yeah. that's it. We're we're done here, and uh, I know Brandon, you'll be fully vaccinated within a few days and Trader Ruski, you said you got your shot on the 26th, so you've got about another week. Week from today. Yeah. That's well, all pretty close. Alright, very good. And uh, thank you guys for coming on here. And we will be back on this show either Friday or Saturday, most likely. I will let you guys know. You can check Poker Fraud Alert or you can go to twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert, and we will have the information on there at some point. Sunday's not really a good day for me, usually. But this week, that's what we did. Hello? Yeah, we're here. I'm just playing the music. All right, well, good night, gentlemen. It was a pleasure, as always. All right. Good night, Brandon. Thank you for coming. Have a great day, fellas. Good night. Usually at this time of year, I'm thinking about how close the World Series is. That's what May kind of means to me. May usually means that in a few weeks I'll be at the Rio trying to win bracelets. Not this May. Still quite some time away from the World Series. This year, May just means the first month that I can be fully vaccinated. It's kind of convenient that May 1st was the date 
that I could consider myself fully vaccinated. Technically, it was May 2nd, but I said I'm going to do a day early. Just because it's May 1st and Saturday, so... I said, okay. That will be the day, May 1st. That'll be turn the new page and go back to normal life. But if you haven't been vaccinated, just think about it. Think about how stupid you'll feel if you get COVID and you get a bad version of it, especially if you're older. When I say older, I mean like over 45 and you get permanent lung damage or if you get something worse. Imagine if you're dying and you think, oh, wow, if I just took that damn vaccine. It's all realistic stuff to think about at that age. So better safe than sorry. Either. The vaccine's not completely safe, I won't tell you that, but safer than the alternative. Just think about that. Okay, that is all. See you guys Friday or Saturday this week. Shalom. Shalom.